Steve and Kevin review Throne of Eldraine on episode 94 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 94 of So Many Insane Plays, our Throne of Eldraine review show. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this show, Steve, let's touch on upcoming tournaments. I don't have anything special to announce except to reiterate that in the Southwest Michigan area, we've got monthly tournaments in Grand Rapids at the Gaming Warehouse in Granville on the fourth Sunday of each month, and then in Battle Creek at Perfect Storm Comics and Games on the third Saturday of each month. Yes, that is consecutive weekends for us here, and they're both full proxy events. Anything coming up that you want to describe in your area? Here's what I wanted to mention. So this isn't a tournament in my area, uh, because by the time this comes up live, it's likely that the vintage in Udo games in September will have occurred. But uh, Wizards of the Coast recently announced, Kevin, that for the vintage format online championship event in next January, they're adding a fifth qualifier event, mm-hmm. uh, which will be, I believe, October 19th. Um, it's another which- Saturday, right? Another Saturday. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, the top eight from the four qualifiers gets entry into the vintage format championship, which has a fantastic prize, including basically qualifying you for the Pro Tour, mm-hmm. whatever it's called these days. Um, so they're adding eight entrants, which means that instead of 32 players, it'll be 40 players. But here is actually what I think is most interesting, Kevin. October 19th is actually importantly timed. It's exactly two weekends before... Eternal Weekend North America, mm-hmm. which means the Vintage Playoff will likely replace the Vintage Challenge that day, which means that there will be a missing Vintage Challenge for open com- competition two weeks before the championship. Which would otherwise be noteworthy, except it's going to be replaced with uh, a very exclusive, highly competitive mm-hmm. event, so it'll have right. a, a similar but different kind of insight. Well, I say all that to say that if you're listening to this this podcast and you are planning to dry run some decks in high-level competition, and you don't have 35 vintage format qualifier points, which you earn by top-aiding a vintage challenge or by going 3-2, and 4-1, oh, and, uh, and, and or 5-0 and oh in a vintage league. So in other words, if you don't grind leagues and you don't regularly play in the challenges, and you're hoping to test or dry run a deck before a tournament weekend in the challenges, just bear in mind that you won't be able to do it two weeks before the the tournament. <laughs> so if you had like looked at your calendar and said, you know, circled two weeks before the vintage challenge, it's not going to exist. So you need to plan for that is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Good point. For those of you who are counting on Magic Online to prepare, that's an important realization. Fewer challenges between now and then, especially fewer challenges post Throne of Eldraine's release. Right. And that's that's usually a really the two weekends the two weeks before is usually the real critical period. So that will only leave one open competition challenge, which will be on the twenty sixth, which is less than a week before the vintage championship. And relatedly, Card Titan has finally released the full schedule. 
Kevin, yeah. would you like to share share what that is? Well, there's a lot of info to share, some good, some bad. The the high level is that in Pittsburgh this year, the schedule for vintage and legacy is the same as it was last year, basically, and has been Friday, for a while. Vintage championship, legacy on Saturday, mm-hmm. and then top eights played on Sunday. Exactly correct. With the requisite trials all day on Thursday for both. And they've also fixed my complaint about the trials, by the way. They've spaced them so that you, you should be able to play in the first one, which will now start at 12.30 afternoon, and then the last one, which I think starts at like 6, which is nice. Yeah, so if you go like 4-0, and oh, what, what, how many rounds were they? 4 or 5? Five, five. I forget. Yeah, five. if you go 4-0 so and, four and, oh, and then lose in the fifth round of the first one, you don't get completely punished. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. don't get completely punished uh, like you have in years past. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good observation. Another key thing, which is maybe a little less relevant for our audience, but noteworthy, is they've added a Modern Champs to Eternal Weekend now. The Modern Champs is a two-day event. It starts on Friday, overlapping with Vintage, continuing to a day two as needed for Swiss rounds on Saturday, overlapping with Legacy Champs, and then it's playing its top eight also on Saturday, again, overlapping with Legacy Champs. So Modern is Friday-Saturday. Which is I've had this conversation with Brian DeMars before, but Modern is not an eternal format. Right? No, not technically. It does not and meet their standard definition, although many players describe it as eternal using a bit of a colloquial definition, meaning non-rotating. Right. Non-rotating. But it is it's not interesting technically if, an eternal if, format. I mean, so eternal is kind of narrowly defined as a format that in, allows essentially every set since the beginning of the game. But... In a technical sense, eternal just means unchanged. The word means forever, right? <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's why it's so poten- easily used. Or potentially un- unchanging, right? That's right. another way of looking at internal. So non-rotating, I think, is, should be, in, in some sense, is definitionally, as a, as a label, right, is, is definitionally implies, would suggest that it would encompass modern, even though it, in fact, does not. Yeah, so. I, I agree. And but, it's, but, it's, it's easy to understand why people feel that way. But it's cool that they've created another championship it just means uh, it's a problem for vintage players and legacy players because kevin because it means it overlaps with these tournaments absolutely potentially both of the tournaments right if you do well enough in modern you're not going to be able to play in vintage or legacy which is a bit of a which is sad so it's a plus and a minus right theoretically it will increase attendance in a turtle weekend with another large event and modern's a very popular format so my instincts are that Modern will probably be the largest of the three events because it's so much larger and, and more widely played. The flip side is is that my guess is Vintage and Legacy will suffer a little bit. It's hard to say how much, but a little bit. That is going to complicate our predictions in terms of total player <laughs> yeah, levels. Absolutely. And it will also conflate people's assessments of the quality of the format. Uh, yep, absolutely. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Insofar as... Uh, Attendance is usually indicative of, right, yeah. how much people are enjoying the particular version of the format. Yeah, agreed. Well, we'll uh, we we'll keep you posted on that as as we learn more. Follow our Twitter. Our Twitter uh, account usually disseminates, distributes, retweets all the information that we have about the championship. Kevin. Yeah, and the Card Titan account is tweeting a lot of details this past week, so if you've missed any of the updates, just go look at their Twitter account. You'll see a whole bunch of links there. The main page on their website is live with all the details now, which is great. 
I'd like to talk briefly about uh, prizes and playmats. Yes, I want to do the same. Go ahead. Yeah, so I don't know where exactly you'd like to begin, but let's, let's start, start with, with the playmats. <laughs> yeah, the vintage playmat this year for those who everyone who registers God. is drum roll, please. Survival of the fittest. Now, Steve, hey, Kevin, I, you and you and ahead. I had a kind of a funny conversation <laughs> yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. I said if you were to if you, if I were to be pulled or you were somewhere to pull me or you. Like, name the 50 most vintage cards in the Magic card pool. Survival probably wouldn't even be in my top 100. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit of an odd choice, and it still wouldn't be in my top 100, even if you excluded cards that had already been printed on playmats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I would probably add every card from the restricted list first. I mean, it's probably in my top 300, top 200. <laughs> it's certainly seen, it certainly had top eights. I mean, it was a runner-up in the t- 2003 Vintage Championship with Vengear Mask. Um, nice. That's, the ty- a, you know, that's a deep cut. <laughs> um, and it would top aided last year, but survival isn't like a, and it's certainly a, a, a kind of a major archetype in the format, but it's not the kind of card that screams vintage to me. I think that's a completely fair assessment. I also think it's, it's still a legitimately reasonable card. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a card that has a, a, an archetype named after it, albeit not a top three or five archetype, really. But also, it's a pretty iconic piece of magic art looking back through time, not including vintage by definition, but across all formats. I agree with you. It's not, it's really not that high on the list in terms of vintage cards that I think of in terms of art. But in terms of magic cards, through a little bit of a vintage flavor, I think it's okay. Well, they still haven't made playmats for like Mishra's Workshop, you know, <laughs> um, Bizarre Baghdad. Yeah. You know, th- things well, no, that. No, they did Bizarre are- Baghdad last year. Okay. That was the VIP mat last year. But still, okay. your point is well made. There are plenty of more iconic cards that would be right. higher on the list. Now, the last year's play mat was Chaos Orb, which isn't even vintage playable. Which so was we totally should... weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But awesome. I love it because it's just sweet for old school. Um, I mean, Chaos Orb scores pretty one. similarly on, on a lot of um, just uh, iconic scales as survival, in my opinion. Right. Yes, it's older and more iconic. But you flavor in the fact that it's not even playable in vintage, and it makes for a weird mat. So yes. this is we're continuing Especially a bit of a trend. Vintage championship. <laughs> I know. Now, if the there VIP, had been an old skill, an old school championship, then yeah. The the type one, sorry, the vintage VIP mat this year is Moat, <laughs> which, which is, is awesome. one of one of my top three favorite cards of all time. <laughs> um, it's which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but again, Moat is not a type one card that's really seen play. I mean, I guess it saw play a little bit in like the Keeper era. Like well, for a it, minute, it's been a Warfling. sideboard card for like standstill, landstill decks. That's true. Uh, yeah, it, going back, it might have years. actually appeared. I'm gonna think about it. I think there was a moat in last year's top eight in the landstill deck. Well, there you so, go. See, yeah, but there were four times as many survivals as that. Moat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were many more Mishra's workshops. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And then the legacy mat this year is a really great one, and that's Mox Diamond. I mean. In my opinion, it's it's hard to get better than Mox Diamond in that slot, given that it is a four of and a very long-standing, po- multiple long-standing popular legacy archetypes. And also, you know, it's a Mox. It's it's yeah. it's the second oldest Mox. It goes back, you know, it, it shares more DNA yes. with the original five than any other Mox does. And that's true. It for is many the, reasons. It is it's the great. first post alpha beta unlimited Mox. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gotten since then Chrome in order. If I can get this right, <laughs> uh, it was Chrome, Opal, and then what's the new one? Well, then the, the Amber, then Tantalite. Amber and Tantalite. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, the one, don't forget Mox Lotus, which I'm sure you had forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's also Jack and the Mox, and yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so, and then the, so you got right, the VIP, we got the vintage. Oh, let's talk about the prizes then. So the vintage prize this year is a reinterpretation by Philip Bourbon, Berberin, excuse me, of Mox Jet. It's a really cool, intense um, image of a skull with a jet in its in one of its eye sockets. It's really Love good. It. It's going to be a great piece. It's kind of got a, like a pirate flavor a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's going to be a great piece for whoever wins that. And then, oh, we didn't mention modern. The modern playmat is Cavern of Souls, um, <laughs> a pretty widely played modern staple. And then the vintage prize is is an interesting one. So we just said the vintage prize. I'm sorry, the legacy prize. Excuse me. The legacy prize is an interesting one. It's art of a city by the artist is Ralph Horsley. It's listed on their site as City of Traitors. <laughs> but I got to be honest. <laughs> it's yeah, got, it's got that straight Arabian feel that yep. makes it looks exactly like an Arabian uh, card, which means to me this is City of Brass or and this is generous library of alexandria yes but it's like you read my mind <laughs> i i do not see this as a city of traitors there's no. nothing on here that says traitorousness to me and so no. i'm wondering i'm wondering actually if their website is wrong i'm wondering yeah. if they meant to say city of brass and it was just whoever typed this had uh muscle memory because <laughs> that is not city of traitors that seems like an odd thing to mix up but it's also it it, it totally has an arabian feel yeah i so. mean yeah it has yeah the radium career excuse me it has the Arabian architecture, and yeah, it's it's obviously meant to be City of Brass. Even then, it's not very brass-like. It, it looks more like a library of Alexandria with the archways yeah, and things like that. It really and, does. As well as the composition of the art being, you know, walking up the staircase. So, I, it feels like something about this got confused along the way. It could be uh, this conspiracy theory here. One, The first conspiracy theory is level zero, which is that they just mistyped it on their website. The second level is is that they meant it to be one thing and couldn't get the rights <laughs> to call it that thing, which is which is also really weird. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, it's a beautiful it's piece of art. City of asterisk. It's, yeah, city of something. City of fill in the blank. Whoever wins it can put it on their wall and label it whatever they want with their with their little placard. And then modern doesn't have a trophy painting. So. No, th- that's a really interesting decision on their part. It might be because modern was added later. Who knows? But the the primary prize for modern, that is the first place prize, is actually airfare to the 2020 European Eternal Weekend. Plus, there's some card prizes and stuff too. Modern Horizons. But I be- that's I a pretty that cool prize. Also, I believe that also is true for the Vintage Championship, by the way. Oh, is it? If so, yeah. that's really interesting. Let me see. The prize for vintage is listed. Oh, you're right. Framed Mox Jet plus airfare to the EU 2020. That's plus some really cash or uh, card titan. Plus one full set of each vintage legal booster expansion released on Magic Online. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. Uh, so, I, yeah, I hadn't noticed that before. I don't know why. Oh, I see. I see. They've bolstered the modern prize with also $2,500. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the placeholder Trade for the, the painting. Yeah, there you go. Wait, wait, wait. No, I'm wrong. The vintage prize also has $2,500. Yeah, I remember, that's what I said. But now, it is scaled to the number of players. And so, if there's there's a table there that says, like, if it's oh, under 600 right. players, then if it's over 600 players, I don't remember how that scales out. But anyway. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know why. It appears that Modern is just not getting as much prize. <laughs> I mean, they've got the Modern Horizon stuff. That's, that's no slouch. That's worth a fair bit of money, but it's not the same as a painting. So, well, regardless, there's good prizes to be had <laughs> either way. Uh, you know you and i have been conditioned to be in it for the painting right like the yeah. painting is key. Well, we're in it for the title 
the title, and yes, <laughs> and, and the painting is representative of that. But uh, the simple truth is, is, I would be pretty sad if I won something, uh, a major event at Eternal Weekend and didn't get a painting. It's just the two are just so directly <laughs> equated in my eyes. All right. Anything else on Eternal Weekend, Steve? No. Thank you. All right. Let's move on then. And uh, we always know this is our Throne of Eldraine uh, review show, but it wouldn't be a review show without our report card. In this case, because of weird scheduling, it's for Modern Horizons. So let's see how we did. Kevin, before we dive into Modern Horizons, I just want to note that this year has been very odd. I don't know how unprecedented, it unprecedented, I would say. Yeah, I don't it definitely. I don't know how it lands for you and I don't know how it lands for our listeners, but for me, it feels almost like like two different years. I mean, so the sets this year have been that have the new sets that have introduced vintage cards, legal cards are uh Ravnica Allegiance, War of the Spark, Modern Horizons, uh Magic 2020, Commander 2019, and now Throne of Eldraine, which is the last set of the year that we're aware of. And Ravnica Allegiance just seems like forever ago. It doesn't even seem like a... What? It totally does. It doesn't even seem like a 2019 set. (laughs) If you you think about it, it seems like it was maybe like a couple of years ago to me. (laughs) Modern Horizons screwed us all up. Yeah, because the gap... So Ravnica Allegiance was technically released on January 25th, which was you know, uh, nine months ago, um, or eight months ago. But what's interesting is that there was such an enormous gap. So between yeah. Ravnica Allegiance, you have January 25th to May 3rd, between, uh, between Ravnica Allegiance and War of the Spark. That is a huge gap in sets. Yeah. Uh, usually, I- usually in terms of blocks, what we see is October, January, February is block- the second set, and the third set is usually like April, May, right? Yeah. Typically, isn't that the pattern? Right. Well, I mean, I, I I'm conditioned to think of them as three months apart, but right. I, late January to early May is just a couple of weeks, maybe longer than usual. Right. But I think so. I think that's slightly unusual. But I really feel like the thing that is contributing <laughs> more to this is the rapid following of Modern Horizons. Right. We got repeat so then- high quality sets in in War of the Spark and Modern Horizons. High quality is maybe the wrong term. High power is what I'm really speaking about. <laughs> and so yeah. we got in this rapid fire cycle of evaluating cards, and plus, both of those sets were way were leagues beyond Ravnica Allegiance in terms of power and contribution to vintage. Right. So here are the release dates. So you go from January twenty fifth, Ravnica Allegiance, to May second. Sorry, May third for release for War of the Spark, and then June thirteenth for Modern Horizons release. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, barely Magic, a month later. Right. Then Mad. Then July second for Magic twenty twenty, basically. Yep. Because it was legal on Magic Online that day, even though it came a week later. So less than a month, right? So May 3rd, June 13th, July 2nd, and then Commander 2019 is August 23rd. And now we're, we're basically, um, you know, the, we're in the middle of September, although the technical release date for Eldraine is October 2nd. But it's basically the last, I mean, May, June, July, August, September, five months in a row, and basically five new sets. Yeah. It's just rapid fire. Yeah. It's it's wild. This has been an interesting year. I think I expect in some near future point that you will go back and do a historical analysis of this year in context of prior years and things like uh, I don't know cards added to the format in terms of playability and things like that. And this year 
will probably go down as the second most influential year after uh, 1993 <laughs> in terms of the format, right? Yeah, it's hard to to do that kind of evaluation on the fly. <laughs> Great. I mean, there were there were big years, but most of the years are because of like a cycle, like onslaught, you know, or Mirrodin block, you know, thing. 2003 was a big year, yeah. really big year, because you had Scourge and Mirrodin come the same year. But this, you know, in Urza, the 1999, 90, uh, 98, you know, th- this is just, this is really wild. It's, it's hard to compare, honestly. And it, I don't think we'll really fully appreciate the, you know, the, it's hard to it, hold, take a holistic step back when you're in the middle of it, you know? I mean, I think in our War of the Spark review, we kind of, we had a conclusory section in which we said that we were concerned that these planeswalkers with static abilities were basically like, you know, two, like two and one, two for one, right? Immediate off the bat. And we thought they might be overpowered. And that's, that's proven to be the case, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I think I was even more excited about Modern Horizons. I think Modern Horizons, it's interesting. I think War of the Spark is kind of like the tentpole set, but I think Modern Horizons will have a more profound long-term effect on the, uh, yeah. on the format. Well, gosh. Because, because, I think, like, basically, at the end of the day, War of the Spark is known for two planeswalkers. There was, you know, in, in Dreadhorde Arcanist, whereas Modern Horizon, in Dreadhorde Arcanist, not, doesn't really a novel effect. It's just an upgrade on the recursion critter, you know, the Ophidian effect. Yeah. Whereas Modern Horizons, I think, was actually with Force of Vigor, with Collector's Oaf, with Force of Negation. I think those cards and the other ones in the set are, are like cards that we will be playing with like 15 years from now. That's a good point. And, yeah, the two I forces, just, yeah, the two forces in Oof are so similar to pillar cards, Null, uh, null Rod and Force yeah. of Will, that you're right. Like like Leyline of the Void type effects, yeah. you know, just just so staple. I think their cards will be playing with 15 years from now, 10, 15 years from now. I don't know, I mean, obviously if Narset's restricted, that affects it, and, and obviously the restriction of Karn, but if Karn hadn't been restricted and Narset isn't restricted... I could, you can't say that about those cards that they'll see play 10 years from now. Yeah. But the chances that Force of Vigor will be played from 10 years now is extremely high. Yeah. You know, so, so I I think that War of the Spark, and I'm going to use kind of language that's imprecise here. I think War of the Spark may have had a bigger immediate effect, but Modern Horizons will be more enduring and will also be more in the long run format sculpting. Put it that way. Yeah. And then Magic 2020 was just basically known for one card, although there are a couple of cards, right? I mean, Manifold Key, but mainly it was about Mystic Forge. Yeah. And that's restricted and gone. And then Commander 2019 really didn't do much, but this set has plenty of playables. I'm not going to, I'm going to reserve, let's reserve all holistic judgment until we get to the end of the review, but it's got, it's got a lot of good stuff in here. I think it's, I think we're going to see it's better than Ravnica Allegiance, which is known for basically one card, <laughs> Lavinia. <laughs> yeah. I'm Any, with anything you. Anything else? So, I'm- so do you, Go ahead. Sorry, I, I just think that that's a, a completely reasonable take. I mean the the long term effects of of Modern Horizons will be felt for a decade or more to come. I think that's almost inevitable at this point, and I couldn't agree with you more. Or the Spark will be known for those cards which have powerful spikes, but restriction is going to, I think, prove to be the thing that tampers tampers. That's not the right word. Tamps down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Restriction will be the thing that tamps down the impression of that set in the long run. It'll be hard for us to bottle ten years from now how impactful War of the Spark was. Like it's it's kind of like um, picture Mind's Desire, right? 
how impactful Scourge is, is is influenced by the fact that Mind's Desire was preemptively restricted, right? We didn't even get to have our Karn moment with Mind's Desire, where it was the best thing in the format briefly. And so that's just, it's unavoidable how much that colors your impression of a set in the long run. Yeah, there's another thing. So Leyline of the Void is an interesting card. It came out in Guild Pact in 2006. It's basically, you know, as kind of staple today as it was when it came out, right? I mean, almost 15 years later. Mm-hmm. 13 years later. I, I think that one of the things that will make uh, War of the Spark less impactful, it's hard to know, of course, but my guess is that over time, we will see more and more printings of anti-Planeswalker effects. And, um, you know, we've already started to see them, like cards that say, like, destroyed target creature or Planeswalker. I mean, at some point, it's going to be... E- they're they're going to print a card that's an answer for a really powerful Planeswalker, and it's going to make it easy for... You know, it won't last forever in standard, but it'll be there eternally for vintage. Mm-hmm. So at some point, I think planeswalkers are going to be easier to handle, even ones with static abilities. And you know, frankly, it, this may have been harmful to vintage, but if they're if they've done it once, they're probably going to make planeswalkers with static abilities again in the future. I mean, at some point. So um, you know, I I just think that the impact that Karn and Narset have at some point will be countermanded by effects that make it easier to effects not only that make it easier to address planeswalkers but also effects that are uh have broad enough utility that they will actually see play in vintage right yeah. i mean just it's just at some point we're gonna get there there'll be one that slips in <laughs> right and so you well, know it'll be like, like a like force of negation is a is a step on that road yeah but i'm thinking of something like a pyroblast that like does one you know destroys a, a red you know counters a, a red Car, a uh, blue card rather, and or destroys an, uh, a planeswalker. You know, I'm just making that up, but s- something along that road, right? Yeah. Things that just have, you know, like a disenchant that like destroys a planeswalker and or let's say an artifact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, I agree with you. It seems inevitable. Which means that I think that War of the Spark will be. I mean, just the, the nature of the cards in Modern Horizon are such that. Those are cards are just gonna. You know, there's always going to be artifacts and enchantments, and being able to destroy them for free is just going to be better than paying mana for it. Whether it's you know 2019, 2019, <laughs> or whether it's 2043. So yeah, completely agree. Let's see how we did then on Modern Horizons. We have Can't a bit, wait. a bit of a long report card here because there were a lot of cards we reviewed. As with most sets, there are a number of cards where we predicted zero, and the result was zero. So for the likes of Mirrodin Besieged, Planebound Accomplice, Seasoned Pyromancer, Echo of Eons, Cobble Therapist, Bizarre Trade Mage, Scrapyard, Recombiner, Archmage's Charm, and Mox Tantalite, we predicted zero and the result was zero. Everything else, we either predicted non-zero or the result was non-zero. Let's start with one of the heavy hitters. Top of our list was Collector Oof. Steve, you predicted 15. I predicted 12. The actual was 34. Jesus. 34 <laughs> Collector's Oof. And this, uh, is, top eight this is in the the timeline from yeah the three the, months that actually ends yesterday or yeah. two days ago now the the, wow. the 14th to the 14th yeah so i was extremely bullish on this card and i said 15 but still it even <laughs> exceeded my wildest well imagined. there's there's no two ways about it our predictions here the results are strongly influenced by what happened in the metagame right in the middle of this period which was bugs just complete dominance of the format online for a month right where it yeah. was five out of eight for a while and that directly impacts the prediction here, and, and it will for Force of Vigor as well. It was a little bit of a slow burn. It I mean, was. Because I, and I was, you know, I was ex- 
extremely bullish in our set review. And that was not bearing out at first. I, I agree completely. I would like to table that topic for after this report card about the fact that you view yourself as very bullish and yet had less than half of the actual. <laughs> okay. I, I'd like to put a pin in that topic because I think there's a theme here that we need to address that speaks to set reviews as a whole. Anyway, that goes down as a win for you, but um, the fact that you had less than half of the actual total is is a bit of an asterisk there, I would say. Next up is Goblin Engineer. You and I both predicted zero. The actual was one. There was one top eight in a Control Slaver deck and a Vintage Challenge for Goblin Engineer. I remember that. So congratulations to the Engineer. Next up is Urza, Lord High Artificer. Oh, this, this is a big one. <laughs> and, oh, this is a big one because... <laughs> I was a big skeptic on this one, Kevin. Yeah, and I, I uh, was wagging. I was a finger wagger here <laughs> that I thought a lot of people would be excited about this card, but I would just couldn't imagine it making top eight. Now, someone could obviously take like a really good deck and make it their seventy fifth card, but um, I just didn't see this giving enough advantage. Yeah. Well, turns out you were vindicated. You predicted zero. Wow. I predicted two. <laughs> the actual was zero. Wow. Straight up goose egg for Urza, Lord Hyde, Artificer, despite the, the best efforts of our friend Justin Gennari. Uh, Justin, you know, keep hope alive. I believe in you. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I genuinely think that Urza is a, at some point in the future, is a playable vintage card. There are a lot of things conspiring against Urza in this latest um, iteration of the metagame. It doesn't well, help that the, the best card in the format was a card that turns off artifacts, right? So Urza was an uphill battle. <laughs> I th- so here's here's part of what informed my 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 deci- my skepticism. There have been in the last two years, I would say, maybe a little bit longer. Let's say ever since Paradoxical Outcome was printed, and we had a whole big discussion, even in our Paradoxical Outcomes at review, as to whether it would see play. You know, we spent like an hour talking about it, and we said, yes, it's enormous card advantage, but the problem is it's so bad against taxing effects. And at the you know obviously at the end of our conversation, you know we saw, we we both were fully on board for playing Paradoxical Outcome at that Vintage Champs, but. What I think we alert at every interval since then was there are these cards that we would say, boy, this would be really good in the PO deck. Yeah. Right? Like the Thopter thing, generator. <laughs> yep. The, you know, th- there were just a handful, maybe three or four cards like that. that Sahili like, and Sai. Sahili, yeah, two, three, four mana cards that could just, you could pop into the PO deck. And it's one of those, it's a card that is not going to anchor the PO deck, but you would, you would just find one slot for it and it would be useful. Right. And I got burned too many times on those cards. They just, there's, the, the PO deck just doesn't have room for that kind of thing. And the card slots it needs to spend on are basically two things. Number one, bounce slash removal. For or Null Rod two, or Oof. Yeah, Null Rod or Oof. Or number two, highly disruptive cards like Lavinia, Narset, that kind of thing. There's just no room for this kind of like cutesy Johnny. <laughs> Value. It's really a, value like i'm gonna you know generate just you know the the one card that's kind of like that is the is the previous card you know but it actually is a it's just a monster in terms of like punching through power well and not being pyroblastable not being pyroblastable these other cards are pyroblastable and they just don't punch through they don't give you like the full spectrum alternative angle that you really need it it doesn't create a lane for you to victory and so i just got burned by the that you know this those cards and and i just was gonna stick to my guns here be a hard-nosed realist i think i paid off but <laughs> well that's a good lesson for the future i agree with everything you said we'll have to keep that in mind when we talk about the next decent value card that would be good in po shell you know 
is, a, is like a one of yeah 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 exactly when we find ourselves saying that in the future we're gonna have to put up a red flag all right next up is force of negation steve you predicted 15 i predicted 10 the actual was 15 called yeah! shot for you. <laughs> yep. one, one good call good call <laughs> wow <laughs> next up is shenanigans you predicted two i predicted three the actual was straight up zero zero wow. shenanigans what? yeah I, that's a win for me because I was I took the under. <laughs> you took the under on that one. You're right. Now here comes the big one. This is this is the the home run hitter for this set. Force of vigor. You predicted 24. I predicted 20. The actual before you, was before you give the number. Before you give the number, I just want to point out that 24 is a very high number in the history that's of this more, exercise. Yes, it is. That's more. I think that isn't that more than I predicted for for Karn and or Narset, which I think we gave both. I was in. I think between. I think I may have been in round 20 for those. Do you remember? I I really don't, but you're right. Historically, 20 is a very high number. So I think Force of Vigor is the highest number I've made this year in terms of a prediction. Yeah. By far. So, so for, so just flat out for 2019, Force of Vigor was the card I said would see the most play this year. Yep. Yep. Easy. The actual was 60. (laughs) Oh my God. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Now, we've said it already, but this has a direct correlation to the the dominance of Bug uh, during the time period in question, but also strongly contributed to uh, all of the the dredge decks basically featured Force of Vigor by default through this whole period. Well, one of the things that we talked about in our set review was we said, look at all the decks this goes in. It goes in Survival, it goes in Oath, it goes in Bug, and it goes in Dredge. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously, Oath isn't a thing, but those other three things are all very big things. Now, we had a debate as to whether we're going rug. I said, I don't remember where we landed, but I think we were pretty skeptical. It doesn't have enough green. Yeah, agreed. Um, but, I mean, just the fact that it does what it does. And I think what's so astonishing about this is how, when you read the chatter on the Twitter, vintage Twitter, and the Mana Drain, there just wasn't much buzz around this card. Yeah. Just the, it's like, how can you have this? I mean, this is more, these are more top eights than we saw for Karn. Yeah. In Narset. I think Karn was like 50 something. Yeah. This is above, this is, this is the card from 2019. It is. Not, not Karn, this in terms of number of playable, uh, actual top eight appearances. And I would argue so, that is such a good thing to have a, a strong oh, yeah. removal card as being the, the takeaway from the year, the restriction notwithstanding. It's a very good thing for the format, in my opinion. Interesting to note that of the 60, eight of those appearances were in the main only, 10 were in the side only, and 42 of them were a mixture of main and side. In my opinion, that is a very unique place for a magic card in Vintage, with for the preponderance, the vast majority of its appearances to be mixed through main and side. Can you think of another card that follows that pattern? It's so strange. The bug decks that were so popular, the ones that were, you know, within plus or minus five cards that kept winning all had two force of vigor main and two force of vigor side. I think I think that like stony silence effects are like that, ancient grudge effects are like that. Um yeah, ancient grudge is a good example. I, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen that. It but that's a that's a really rare configuration for a card's popularity and use in the format, which I yeah, think is is interesting. Usually a card is, you know, pyroblast is usually a main and side card. Um lightning bolt is a little bit like that. It just speaks that it's such a staple. I mean, yeah. you know, I also I Kevin, I, th- I think you care you care more about like the actual number. I think what matters is the magnitude, right? I mean, well, that's the asterisk topic, yeah. Well, but I mean, just just to, just to be straightforward about it, what we are doing for our audience is predicting whether a card is going to see play and how, and basically how significant the card is going to be in the format. Yeah, to what if degree? If we were to say thirty or forty, 
it's not really that it's not really that big of a difference. I mean, there are these ex- very few outliers in the history of the format. I mean, in the in the ten years that we've been doing podcasts, not quite ten years, mm-hmm. we there's been like Snapcaster Mage, Graph Diggers Cage, and then more recently Karn, Narset, Force of Vigor, and then Collector Zoom. I mean, there are probably a few other cards that even th- that breach thirty. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've seen anything that very few cards actually breach forty. So when, I, when I we say that list when is I, fewer than four, yeah. When we say when I say twenty four, what I'm saying is this is going to be a massive card, and it's you know whether it's from twenty to eighty, it's it's not frankly material. What I'm saying is this is going to appear in a lot of top eights. It's going to see a lot of play. Mm-hmm. It's going to be played by a lot of decks. That's actually what matters. So I don't I don't really want to get hung up on what you know the difference between twenty four and forty. To me, the point is we made high double digit predictions and this proved exceeded our predictions which does not it's not a statement on us it's just saying like this is an amazing card and the fact that we were saying this is you know above 20 which almost nothing i mean gristle brand was i think i i rem- that was one of the cards i actually predicted exactly the number it would be <laughs> it was like 15 and we predicted like abrupt decay and death right shaman which were two cards that were very skeptical people like i remember people saying i think you were like zero on both of them i said like five and i think i was like it was like maybe 12 or something you know so which we considered a very high number at the time yeah Yeah. so i mean the the, i I don't the the point we're making is we're predicting whether a card will see a lot of play a moderate play a little bit of play or no play and if i say 24 to me that's not materially different than 40 so i i take these as we both got it right on force of vigor you were a little more skeptical, so I, I get the win. And on Collector's Oof, I mean, the ratio is right. I mean, if Force of Vigor was 60 and the yeah. actual was 34, right? My ratio, my ratio was what? Like two, like, uh, two and a half to one and a half there. And that's pretty much exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. So, we discussed actually the fact that there would be more Force of Vigors than Collector's Oofs in the long run. We knew that there had to be, and we were vindicated on that point. F- force of Vigors than Collector's Oofs, right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, You've, you've hit it right on the head, and I would just like to add to what you've said, that we are not in the business exactly of predicting the metagame during this exercise. No. And one of the reasons... That's the hard part, because yeah. it shifts so much. I mean, this we've, we've gone from, like, bug being basically none of the metagame to the bug becoming the metagame to actually disappearing again <laughs> yeah. post-restrictions. So, yeah. And so we try to make and a point of, of calling out, as you've just said, when we got the type of play, the expected type of play for a card correct, and when we didn't, and then when it's just a matter of scale as to how much play you know really was seen. And this is a matter where we we called it pretty closely. You and I, I mean, we were only four off, 24 to 20. We agreed on, both, on yeah. yeah. And the same for Oof, 15 to 12. We were agreed on the scope of these things. The thing that stymied us is the scale of Bugs' dominance during this period. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a big win for us. We were on top of these two cards that were not did not get a lot of chatter, and we said they'd see massive amounts of play. Twenty four top eights is a lot. It's a tremendous amount of top eights. We <laughs> yeah. basically said it would be like two decks per top eight for the next three months, which it yeah. was. Yeah. So, um, anyway, well, so we gotta we gotta talk about this effect as we predict uh, in the future and, as well. But we will continue and, and to. Nail- Nailing force of negation for me—that's a huge win I mean, <laughs> on the nose, right? I mean, yeah, for a card that's, that's so that's so odd in that you know, like it's 
Is it going to see more play than Mind Break Trap? You know, or is it going to be a mental misstep? Or is it going to see no play? I mean, the scope for Force of Negation was pretty wide. <laughs> and you know? I think the fact that you hit that one right on the money is a testament to the phenomenon that you're talking about. Meaning, you, we were not in the business of predicting exactly what the metagame would look like. You just described, right. and we talked about the the ways in which Force of Negation would be played, the roles it plays, where it fits, et cetera, right. et cetera. The fact that Force of Negation was not as strongly impacted by the massive um, influx of bug in the format, right? It sort of sidesteps the bug deck in terms of its yeah. play. That's what contributed basically to your prediction being so accurate, is it wasn't as influenced by the, the massive metagame shift. The cards that I was really bullish on this year, the three cards that really were underestimated by a lot of players were Dreadhorde Arcanist, which I was huge on and didn't really do much. Force of Force of Vigor and Collector's Oof. Those are the three cards this year that I feel like I was really on top of. And if folks listened and then heated, you know, got on top in front of that, they they were able to benefit, I think, from listening to this podcast. But we still have a lot of cards to go, and we spent a lot of time, a controversial <laughs> amount of time, talking about Ren and Six. So I'm eager to see what the actual numbers were. Yeah, so there's one more, there's two more between there. Force of Despair, we both predicted zero. The actual was one. There was one appearance in <laughs> the sideboard for Force of was, Despair. Was that the black one? Yeah, that's the black destroy all the creatures Wrath. that came into play this turn. Yeah, um, so see that's an example where it technically is is a, goes down as a loss for us because we were off by one. But the simple truth is is that card's not actually very good in the format, and our description of it, I think, it realizes that. The next one is an interesting one, and I don't know if I would call this a miss, but it certainly feels like it. We're talking about Hogak, Arisen Necropolis. Steve, you predicted one. I predicted zero. The actual was nine. The actual yeah. was nine. It basically, Hogak became kind of standard fare in a certain flavor of Dredge for a while. Yeah. And I so, did not see that coming. Well, there's two things to bear in mind here. The first is, I thought there was no way this card wouldn't see play. I was actually... <laughs> the funny part is, during the conversation, I was the total skeptic, and then I was switched around to becoming a believer. <laughs> it was your points that persuaded me. Nice. You kept talking about, you know, this card can be cast through a containment priest, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Sidesteps cage and priest. Y- yeah, I was like, wow, that's very useful for Dredge. I didn't think it would be a Dredge mainstay, but this is an example of doing kind of things in isolation. Mm-hmm. What I didn't fit together was that this is a, coming with force of, force of vigor. Yeah. And that's really where Hogak becomes something else entirely. And yeah. I also hadn't anticipated the multi, this is, this would have really been a next level assessment, but the fact that you can, use two Hogaks together to generate an, an absurdly large number of zombie tokens with, with a pair of two, with two or three bridges, two or more bridges. Yeah. It's very, very powerful. I, I think absolutely did not observe that. And, and that would have taken some really deep level analysis. I mean, like spending as much time on that card as we did on PO, <laughs> but um, I will, I will take the win here. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, simply because, you know, it, it did fill a niche. I, I think I was saying one, Mostly because I just didn't want to be zero, but it was hard to make a prediction. Then nine isn't like, you know, it's still single digits. So mm-hmm. it's I as mean, far as you can be from single digits. But <laughs> nine, nine is a healthy amount, right? Given yes. the context of 24 being a really high prediction, nine yeah. speaks to the fact that this card really was almost it, a staple, almost a staple yes. in dredge during this period. It's not a nine means it's not a fringe card. It's not like it's not like a card that shows up, you know, once or twice and then disappears, or even a card that's like a five or six of. It's a card that is kind of a. It's not quite a staple, 
Meaning that, but I guess it depends on how you define staple. It's, I'll put it this way. It's a staple, not a mainstay, with something as a nine. Yeah, I agree. And also, the deck dredge went through some variations during this period, right? There was a lot of upheaval, and this period also includes the restriction, obviously. So there may be some extra hogak near at the end because the dredge players needed more green cards, that kind of thing. Right. All right, let's talk about one that was controversial and interesting uh, during our review, and that is Renin 6. Steve, you predicted... 4.5, which... <laughs> is that fair? Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> um, I don't remember I, I doing mean, non... We talked about the fact that we're not really beholden to, uh, you know, to ordinal numerals here exactly, yeah. but uh, I predicted 6. You want to know what the funny part is? What? The actual was 5. <laughs> oh my god! Did I win every one in this, in this entire thing? Oh my god! <laughs> No, you did not win every okay. one. But so the simple truth is that 4.5 does kind of go down technicality oh as a win. God, you win by so half a card. Funny. I was half a coin. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to steal it from you. Steal your I I just look I'm just looking so far. So I won collector Zoof. Uh I won Force of Negation. Urza, Force of Negation, Shenanigans, shenanigans Force of Negation. Yeah, you we won most of them this time. Yeah. Is there have I lost any of the ones so far? Not yet. Okay, so it's a slaughter so far. It's a slaughter so you. far, yeah, but I've got, I've got <laughs> okay. a comeback coming. I, I have to say, though, I was bracing myself, girding myself. I thought I was going to lose that. I thought you had that one in the bag because, I mean, so when we spoke, just, to, you know, just so it's not about me and you, for the benefit <laughs> of the audience, what we talked about with respect to Ren was two things. One, we said this card is a slam dunk in a lands deck. It's just going to be awesome in lands. And we talked about a, kind of a, the difference between Xerox and midrange. And what I said is I don't think this card is a Xerox card, but I think it's a very strong mid-range card. Mm-hmm. And there were a, a number of a very small handful of decks in Vintage Challenges that did actually top eight with Ren and Six in a mid-range bug or rug shell. So it looks more like a control deck than a Xerox deck, and it did appear in those. And I and I think like amazingly, I kind of just nailed exactly the number that it would be. I mean, <laughs> if you round, if you just round four point five. It's five, right? <laughs> so it's actually my my cute cuteness of not being able to settle on four or five, you know, actually killed, killed me from getting two holes in one here. But if you apply <laughs> no ordinary rounding, I got two holes in one. <laughs> um, yeah, and the result of our conversation, which which took a lot of twists and turns at the time, got really got us to the right point, though. I mean, you were very critical of that distinction between uh, Xerox and mid-range, and I think we didn't covered in, in as much detail as we could have on the show. We were really running long at this point, but the um, one of the things that you and I have since talked about offline is one of the key factors in your differentiation between those those classifications of decks is land count, right? which is directly related to spell count. And, and cantrips. Yeah. And cantrips, yep. So preordain is a big factor, and the presence of wasteland is a big factor. Yes. And Ren and Six tends to... Uh, push you toward a wasteland based deck which tends to basically just increase your land count and it, it i don't want to put words in your mouth but based on your conversations with me after the fact that's that figures powerfully in your differentiation between those two absolutely yeah i, I just i mean it's the, the it's the pattern unfolding of gameplay how like a like a matt sperling type rug deck plays out i just didn't see renin six being fitted in there and doing what he really needed needed it to do you know, like you're, what are you doing? Playing a long game with wastelands? You can do that, but he, you know, then you really, you need to shift your deck in kind of a different way. 
Yeah. And I just I just didn't see that happening in a big way. I didn't see this being adopted in the rug like Xerox X. And frankly, the rug Xerox X kind of disappeared after Dreadhorde Arcanist anyway, in in favor of like Just Guide X anyway. Yeah. So that that uh, helped my prediction. I but I, I take I, some solace in the fact that if Bug hadn't been as dominant during this period as it was, there probably would have been more Ren and Sixes in these top eights, right? That that space would have had to have been taken up by other things, and my guess is there would have been a little bit more of this action. You know, what's also interesting is that I think I had thought this would be an automatic inclusion in lands, and it may be, but the unrestriction of fast bond has not led to a huge boost in lands. Instead, the the, t- the deck that topped forward the vintage playoff this past weekend was the Arthur Tendemans deck we used to make fun of, Kevin. Like the all, <laughs> the you know, the four workshop, four bazaar deck, you know, out of yeah. X bazaar, four shops. Um and it's hard it's hard to know. I mean, I think basically the you know the the combo edge of fast bond is dark depths thespian stage, which is very attractive for a lands deck. Um and I don't think those decks have run in six, but I I can't remember honestly. I didn't don't remember whether I did or not. I, I do not think that it is standard, no. Not in no. those those more combo oriented fast bond crucible builds. If run in six had been printed two years ago, it would have been all over those like punishing fire decks. You know, yeah. we could have just fitted those right in, but those kind of had disappeared. Absolutely. So, so I've won everyone so far. I mean, this, frankly, this might be my best, like, set prediction ever. Um, <laughs> just in terms of both magnitude and then getting basically two holes in one and not really missing anything big. I think the only things I missed were I predicted some zeros that had some ones. And I also got Urza right, which is kind of like the exclamation point for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was pessimistic on that. But, but we're not quite finished yet, right? No, we're not quite finished yet. The heavy hitters are over though. The next uh, that we have is a actually grouping of five cards, and these are Horizon Lands, which we reviewed in totality and talked about their effect in totality, and we made a prediction in totality for all five of the lands. You predicted zero, I predicted one, the actual was three. Nice. Two appearances of okay. Fiery Islet and one <laughs> appearance of Waterlogged Grove, basically the two blue ones made nice um, yeah uh, scant appearances and that doesn't surprise me my, my logic at the time holds which is that the opportunity cost is low for including these into a deck and it's it's not difficult to take an otherwise successful deck and just add one of these and you're you're punished for it very little and occasionally it pays off so i won't be surprised if these don't become a little more popular over time especially if our Format defining Xerox or you know combo con- not combo uh, mid range control decks are move away from being three colors. Right. These these lands get even better if if blue red becomes the the standard control deck. If they slim down to two. Yeah. It, that seems unlikely. There's no reason I can right. see for that to happen. But right. if that becomes the case, then Fiery Islet is really a go to card. And the last one on our list, which is an interesting one, Prismatic Vista. Steve, you predicted seven. I predicted six. The actual was zero. Yeah, not Zero surprised. Prismatic Vista. I'm really surprised by this. I feel like this goes on as a miss for you and I, but I have to say, yes, if agreed. I'm being honest with myself, I feel like there's two competing factors. One is, obviously, the dominant deck being a three-color deck means Prismatic Vista is basically not useful in that deck. The other is that I genuinely feel like players haven't cottoned on to, yeah, the, the, the proper use of this card, because, because blue-red decks still exist, and I just... I can't shake the notion that some deck that top aided or a few decks that top aided in this last quarter maybe should have had some access to some prismatic vista. Yeah. So here, this is kind of is it's interesting. So that I I, I guess is that that's not a win for you, even though I went over. Or do you consider that a win for you? By the well, way, well, I mean Just, it's it's the same as Urza, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's no because Urza, you predicted 
two, I predicted zero. So yeah. in this case, it was zero. The actual result was zero, but I was one card further away. So I guess I guess if we both predict something and it's a zero, it's a loss for both of us equally. But I have one, I have put down it that is uh, yeah as a loss for both of us in the past. Okay, okay. So so here's the thing with Prismatic Vista. I think what we I think we honed in on this, but I can't remember. Basically, the issue with Prismatic Vista is that it's best in a two color deck mm-hmm. because if you're blue and white, Flood of Strand is your first fetch. Then after that, this is actually better than any other fetch land you can put in, right? Because I mean, uh, this is better than a Polluted Delta because it can get you both your planes and your island. I mean, if now, you're avoiding wasteland, yeah. Right. The problem, of course, is that it can't get you Tundra, we talk, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a very narrow scope for this card. Basically, the scope is... Here's the criteria. Number one, are you playing two or more colors? Or few, are you playing two or fewer colors? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, then you go on to the next step. The answer, the next step is then, um, are you playing with a lot of, like, more than three basics? If the answer is yes, then you're probably, you're probably going to be playing with this card, but not necessarily. The problem is if the answer is to no to any of those first two questions, then you're probably not playing this. Because if you're playing three car colors, then the second and third fetch lands become a little bit better. And then if the answer, if you're playing like just two or three basic, two or fewer basics, then this can just be, the, there's too great of a chance this is just a dead card. So yeah. what you read, the, the conditions for this are basically like DPS decks, right? Decks that like have four basics or three or four basics, four Cs, four polluted deltas, and then need like a fifth fetch or a yeah. sixth fetch. And we talked about and, DPS specifically, yeah. Yeah, and and so I I think we just overestimated how many de- decks of that type there are in the format, you know, because everything skews for the same reason we just talked about with the previous set of cards. Everything skews to three or four colors these days, you know, Bug, Rug, Jeskai, um, and then there's like Shops and Dredge, which don't use these things at all. So I think I think there's space for this card. You know, in the, in the summer of 2017, those Stone Stoneforge desk, decks could have used this. Oh yeah. But Stoneforge is not a player right now. And so, Landstill could play this. Should play this, Land, probably. Landstill could play it as long as it's two-color Landstill. Yeah. The problem... And, and I also think Landstill, unlike DPS, places a greater premium on their dual lands. I think that's the difference, is that because Landstill has such a density of, like, factory strips waste, it can't really... It needs, it needs greater mana consistency from each fetch. So I think the fact that this can't get a Tundra means that Blancel probably actually doesn't play this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my guess. It's, it's even for two-color Landstill decks. I think what you're, you really have a narrower range. You're talking about decks that have more basics, three or more basics, and no more than two colors. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. And time will tell whether or not the format promotes that, which will influence, as we've already said, multiple lands in this set between the Horizon lands and now Prismatic Vista. There is no way this card does not appear in a vintage top eight at some point. Just, just no way. Agreed. I, w- I would bet my entire collection, including <laughs> my Alpha Lotus on it. It's just, there's just no way. I'm serious because just at some point, there's going to be a, a two color deck that meets those two criteria. I guess there's a third criteria. And the third criteria is, does this deck absolutely need a critical juncture as a dual land? And again, the answer to that has to be no. So the flow chart, it, it's a narrow, it's a, a narrow route to get to this but this will see play at some point yeah absolutely so we lost we got one one big miss which is pragmatic vista 
a lot of wins and anything else that we, you know, weren't close on, it was just a matter of magnitude, not direction. You know, we had double digit numbers on all the cards that saw digit, double digit play. Yep. Um, and, and single digit on the cards that were single digits. I think we just basically nailed the set. This is, I really think it's our best set. Personally, I think it's my best set review ever in terms <laughs> nice. of prediction. I'm not saying in terms of like evaluation and assessment, but just pure prediction, you know, my, my best ever. Yeah. Well, congratulations. We, I think I feel pretty good about the results of this set review. And it was a tricky one too. It's really hard to review a set that introduces <laughs> this much power into a format as Abstract well as power. Yeah, yeah. As well as long-term staples, like what we're talking about, right? Force of vigor. Yes. You, you've already described the, the, the breadth and complexity of the systemic effects of this set in context with everything else too made it really difficult to get the scale right. But I really do think the, the use I, of almost all these cards we really nailed. I think that's a very important observation. I think that's probably why I did so well on this one. It's because both of us, we have a historical perspective on the format. And it our, our evaluation and assessment was not a kind of like day-to-day what's happening in the metagame. It was, how does this interlace with the larger structure that is vintage? Right. And that's the kind of perspective you need, right? Like, so just fundamentally, a two mana creature null rod, right? We don't need to know what's actually happening in the metagame to know (laughs) that that's significant, right? A free disenchant. (laughs) We don't need, we don't need to know like what's top, what the percentage of top eights are. We just need to know, like, broadly speaking, that this is going to, you know, what are kind kind of the decks out there. Um, and force of negation takes that even to the next level because it's such a kind of particular, you know, we, we talked about how it compares to Mind Break Trap, how it compares to Misdirection, all those kinds of things, mm-hmm. right, as a defensive card. Certainly, though, you, you, you talking about how, specifically what you said about how good that would be in Dredge dramatically shifted my opinion on that. Because <laughs> you specifically made the point in our podcast, so I would not have gotten close if it wasn't for you, because you specifically said, Kevin, that um, think about how good this is at countering cards that your opponent plays on their turn in dredge like tormod's crypt and graph digger's cage and stuff like that so i will uh, i will gift part of my hole in one on that to you as well <laughs> but very, boy, very generous of you boy this is a big another big set here and my god kevin it is beautiful this set is beautiful <laughs> it really is it's i love modern horizons uh, it's the first set in ages where i bought and this is not important to anyone else, but I just bought so many play sets of so many of the cards because I, I the, the magic I play the most of is EDH. This, this set was incredible for EDH. and But the vintage cards are just, yeah, just incredibly awesome and really satisfying. And I don't think we've seen the last of things like Urza or Renin 6 or the Horizon Lands or Prismatic Vista. This set's going to have long tendrils beyond those cards that put up 30 or 60 appearances already. And by the way, how beautiful is the art in Throne of Eldraine? Oh, jeez, yes. Good segue, Steve. Let's let's talk about some Throne of Eldraine. With Throne of Eldraine, we like to do what we normally do with each set and talk about the mechanics of the set first. 
there are a couple of new keywords mechanics and other other things in this set that are new and exciting so let's start with the most upfront one the one that is the most complex and i would say noteworthy and interesting for the set and it is adventure so adventure is i don't know exactly how to describe it i haven't seen the faq yet exactly but it's kind of a a rider or an additional effect for a card that is a creature it's like a kind of like a split card because you've got two ways you could cast the card but they've designed it in a little bit more of a complicated way so an adventure is a is another spell effect tacked onto a creature and it's usually since everyone i've seen has been an instant or a sorcery the way adventure works is a little bit unintuitive i would say at face value but what it means is you can cast the card in question that has adventure for either its spell effect or its creature effect when you cast it for its creature effect everything is normal it resolves normally and comes into play normally and is a creature and doesn't and doesn't change otherwise the difference is is when you cast it first for its adventure the spell effect when you resolve an adventure that is it, it doesn't get countered it doesn't go to your graveyard it becomes exiled and then when the adventure is in exile, you may cast the creature part of the card from exile, <laughs> at which point it resolves and comes into play normally then as it would normally. And so it's a very interesting thing. The flavor is that you have, you know, you know, this creature like the Jack and the Beanstalk giant or anything like that, yeah. you know, this creature. And then if it goes on its adventure, it can come <laughs> back from its adventure as a creature still. It's like <laughs> that's, a sorcery that's into a creature, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, as I said, it's a little bit unintuitive at face value, but basically if you play it as a creature, it's normal. If you play it as a spell, it gets exiled and then you can play the creature from exile. That's adventure, which is pretty complicated. And so far as I can tell, based on our audience <laughs> feedback, we're not going to be reviewing any cards with that mechanic. And, and all the cards with adventure look differently. They have like a kind of like a lattice scroll on the side. You know, they look like they have yeah. like the, the bot, the rules text. It looks like a book, right? Yep. A tome. So yep. the, the adventure part of the spell, the adventure spell and part of the card goes in the left half of the text box. As such, yeah. both creature and spell tend to be pretty simple in function because they have half the amount of text box room functionally less if you factor in the, the other art. Other new uh, rules for this set include the keyword adamant. Adamant is a effect that increases or changes, sometimes replaces the effect of a spell or how it resolves. Basically, it looks for whether or not you spent colors of mana. In the case of this set, it looks for spending three of one color of mana. Every animate card says if you spent at least three X mana to cast this spell, then you have some additional effect. If it's a creature, it might come in with extra counters or the spell could have a, a boosted effect. It's checking for three of the same color of mana. As such... It is probably not applicable to vintage. Vintage, basically. yeah, yeah. The only spells that would really be reliably good in vintage would be the blue ones, and they're all pretty sedate effects. There's no like if you paid three blue to, to cast this, you take an extra turn kind of stuff. the The last thing that I want to talk about is food. Food is not altogether <laughs> unusual. Uh, food is exactly like tre uh, clues from yes. Innistrad. Except when you sack their artifact tokens and they, you pay two and sacrifice them for an effect, in this case, you gain three life instead of draw a card. Uh, in my estimation, that is much less powerful than a clue. <laughs> um, right. and because clues you could sack for mana too, right? Uh, no, clues just sack to draw a card. Okay. Yeah. You're thinking of, what's it called? Uh, was it Ethereum Cells? I think one of the Tesserets and some other cards made Cells. Gosh, I can't remember what those tokens were called. 
that you could that were like little lotus petals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Exactly. It was Tezzeret the Schemer. Create a colorless artifact token named Ethereum Cell. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is a lotus petal, basically. Anyway. No, it's not that. It's just just sack. Two mana sack. Uh, you gain three life. That's what food does. Otherwise, functionally identical to a clue but in every much, other much way. Much worse. <laughs> much, much, much worse, yeah. And it's not like clues were tearing up vintage anyway. I think there was... Back in Didn't the day, they, there was some tireless tracker action. That's about it. all I can remember. Being uh, being artifact is really weird. I mean, food to me would be like gre- something green, you know, organic, like rather than an artifact. Just you make just a fair odd. point from I a mean, flavor standpoint. You can manufacture food, <laughs> so you can make a food artifact. Yeah, like a like a can of Pringles, right? That's a manufactured <laughs> food. <laughs> but you're, for yeah. the most part, especially in magic lore, I would expect food to be grown. You're right. I would expect yeah. it to be organic, like like something out of Fallen Empires token. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Our first card, and wow, are we starting with an interesting one. This is Wishclaw Talisman. It is an artifact. It costs 1B. Wishclaw Talisman enters the battlefield with three wish counters on it. A generic mana, tap, remove a wish counter from Wishclaw Talisman, colon. Search your library for a card. Put it into your hand and shuffle your library. An opponent gains control of Wishclaw Talisman. Activate this ability (laughs) only during your turn. Oh, boy. So this is the fabled monkey's paw. We should have said already, if it's not obvious, that um, Throne of Eldraine is based on a combination of Grimm's fairy tales and Arthurial um, knight Camelot. And so this is one of those fairy tale items, the, the monkey's paw, that has grants you three wishes. I, l- I love the card. I-, I Also, just to follow up your, your flavor point, yeah. I think the art in this set is s- spectacular. It's probably my favorite art, fantasy art, on a magic set since Lorowin. Um, yeah, just, I agree. It's just awesome. It's really great. There's some beautiful um, pieces in this set. But, Lots of fun stuff, too. Uncharacteristically right. fun stuff for magic. Some stuff that you would have seen in silver-bordered cards before. True. Yeah, I mean, in terms of just pure flavor slash ability. Um, so this card has the Rainbow Veil drawback built in. <laughs> right? Yes. The Rainbow Veil, of course, being the Fallen Empire's land that taps for any mana, but then immediately passes to your opponent the question so for black and one you you can get an artifact and then you have to pay one more to tutor and you can tutor for anything yep. which means that you can essentially pay two and one to tutor with the fact that it's not a, it's a sorcery but there's also an activated ability so that could be potentially a wrench if your opponent has a null rod effect in play naturally but so your your what would be a ristic tutor is that would be the uh analogy yeah. here Ristic Tutor is probably a pretty close comparison. Kind um, of a grim also, tutor. Yeah, yeah, kind of a Grim Tutor without all the with the easier mana cost and without the drawback. Well, with so, a different drawback, I should say. Different drawback, right. You, you don't lose life. So you get to use it immediately. And the question is, can you do something so effectively this turn that your opponent... Because you can only use this during your turn, by the way. Which yeah. means your opponent can't use it immediately. Can you win this turn with it? That's really the critical question, right? And if you can't, can you somehow prevent your opponent from taking advantage of it? Or can you somehow get another use out of it? So, for example, I've heard people talk about um, like untapping it with Manifold Key, mm-hmm. right? To get a second use. Yep. Or sacrificing it to something in response, right? Can you do that? Wait, is, let me see. Let me read this carefully. Uh, no, no, it's you all can't part of the resolution. It. Yeah. Well, hold on. You can respond to the ability by untapping it or sacrificing it. Yes. Because 
your opponent yes. gaining control it as part of resolution of the ability, but if the ability hasn't resolved yet, right. you do still have it. So you could put you could activate this ability, put it on the stack. Before the ability resolves, you could sacrifice it to what? What's a good what's a good uh, a ravager or something like that, right? I was going to say paradoxical outcome. <laughs> <laughs> you are a cheeky one. Um, interesting. That's very interesting. That's a good that's a good use. Wow. It is a good use, but you have to have the outcome and the requisite mana before you resolve right. this ability for it to work. So it's it's a little in, it's a little difficultly positioned in that analogy. Right. You have to have But it you're first. right. Ravager simply put does work. Is there anything else that you can sacrifice artifacts to or cards in play for some effect at instant speed? I mean, yes, that list is it's exhaustive. Playable. It's vintage playable, sorry. But I was going to say, or Ravager and Outcome are the, the only past. two cards on that list that see any vintage play. I feel like there's something else in the format. The, oh, you know what it is? It's, uh, there's, um, uh, Kaldotha Forge Master is one, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. What else is there where you can just immediately sacrifice a card to get some benefit. I think, oh, you well, to, go ahead. I mean, the, the dredge cards don't work here because they only work on creatures, therapy, and dread return. You can also bounce this, and yeah, if you've got a way to do that for value, well, Jeez. even better would be the Teferi. You can bounce this with Teferi because you can wait for their ability to resolve, and wait. they've got control of it, but you still bounce it. Wait, wait. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not following that. Teferi? Teferi time rev. Oh. What's that do again? Sorry, I don't know that one. <laughs> Teferi is the three mana from uh, War of the Spark that has um, bounce an artifact creature or enchantment, I think. I actually don't remember what the limitations are. So you would you would put the sorcery speed planeswalker ability on the stack and then respond by activating it? That doesn't um, work. You could do that, but there's... You know, you could do you, that if you, you wanted to. You can't use it at instant speed, right? Oh, no, you can. You can you can use Wishclaw Talisman at instant speed. It only has to be during your turn. No, but the, how the, do you interact a Planeswalker with this? I don't understand well, no, that. No, my point was it doesn't need to be instant speed. Safari so could just bounce it when your opponent controls it. Oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was thinking you don't even wait. No, for them it's to not. Get a, it's it. not a response just, issue. Nope. Got it. Um, and they can't the use is, it, so you could right. Yeah, there's no real risk there. Oh, I'm looking um, at Teferi. Sorry, Teferi is the what I think of when I think of Teferi. I think of the uh, the creature from Time Spiral. No, no. I think of the card that basically uh, uh, Orm's Chance your opponent. That's my. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. The defense grid. You're thinking of yeah. Teferi as a defense grid. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, I that's forgot. Fair. I've and I've every time I've ever used it, I've only used the first uh, the first ability. I think so. I think I've only played it once. <laughs> so the second ability is return up to one artifact. Yeah, that works fine. Um, it's not like Teferi is a staple in the format either. No. These two cards Plus, being together in a deck would be very unprecedented in the format right now. That would also be three colors: white, white, blue, black yeah. at minimum. Yeah. Um, Which is no kind of deal breaker, of course, but that would be almost an, a new deck at this point. What deck is that that we're talking about, right? So, so hold on a second. So let's just think this through. Yeah. So you get this in your opening hand. You play it. Let's just say you play it on turn one. Okay. Landmarks land, talisman. Talisman, right? That's interesting. That actually is very important because that makes us just different from Grim Tutor, right? You, so you can sit on this until you're ready to get Yawgmoth's will, until you're ready to go, until you have the PO. That yeah. makes this exceptionally deadly. Oh, now, you know but, what else this works with? Um, Goblin Welder. There we go. That's the, what I've been looking for. I've been looking for something like that. I knew there was <laughs> something like that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So you go, you go Landmox Talisman, or you go, you just go Land Welder, right, on turn one. Yeah. And then on turn two, maybe you go land mocks, activate the talisman in response, weld it out. I don't know. You don't have anything in your graveyard at that point. Well, you can you get, see my point, but you can be aggressive about it. Well, 
Yeah, you can't yeah. weld in. You can't weld into or weld out the card you get with the talisman is a problem. That's that cuts down on the welder synergy, but there's still something there. No, right. But you could if on the second use use you could. So for example, right. if you go so for example, if you go land mox talisman after turn one welder and you activate it. Let's say you pass the turn and on turn three you activate it. You get black lotus sack black lotus put it in the graveyard. Then you can immediately. Uh, weld it right back in. No, you Hold can't because your opponent in, will have it. I was going to say yeah. in that analogy, your opponent already yeah. has control of the talisman. You, you. So you have to bin an artifact have... in addition to the talisman in order for the welter trick yeah. to just work. That's it not, has to be that's a deck not that's hard to do. I mean, if you're playing no. with pedal and you know, it has to be a thing. deck that's already designed to be bending artifacts, though. Just in general, this is just amping wow. up that whatever that interaction is. This is such an interesting card, Kevin. And <laughs> it really, really is. It, and it's because it, the, the spectrum of possible use is so great. So let's think about this for a second. This is obviously great in a combo deck, which it just wants to win immediately, right? Like Yogmoss yeah. will into um, whatever, right? So this yep. th- is this better. This is interesting. This re- so if you play it, well, what what I'm thinking about it is two is two things. Number one, in a dark ritual combo deck with chain of vapor type effects and Hercules recall effects, which you want to use any in your main deck anyway, you have a backstop. So you if you can't win immediately, you can set up a situation where you can chain whatever, right? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to note that this works with both kind of sides of chain of vapor. Yes. Meaning you can yeah. sacrifice it and bounce your opponents, right? Yeah, that's no, what I was can. getting at. Well, yeah. Hold on, chain of vapor is um. Oh, Sac- it's only land. sacrifice a land. Yeah. Sorry, that doesn't work. But, but you're right. You could still find a use for chain of vapor, and you can kind of double up. You can tap your mox opal to bounce the opal, and then sack a land to bounce this, this, and maybe get a reuse out of it in the same turn. Right. So, so in a combo deck, you're typically going to be going for. Yogmoss will you. Th- this is the thing: is that you can't. The Grim Tutor can like the the Dark Petition often gets Necropotence, but when you play this, you don't want your opponent to get. It's the drawback is so steep that if you can't bounce this or remove this or destroy it, that you're in a position where you essentially need to uh, win immediately, and so you can't like pass the turn. You can't like get Necropotence to pass the turn, right? You can't get yeah. Ancestral Recall and pass the turn. I mean, yes, you could. But it's not ideal. So, oh, so I guess, and you can't even like duress your opponent to stop it. So I guess what you would need to do is sit on this until you can just go off and win that turn, yeah. or until you can find a bounce effect. You can treat right? it like a suspended demonic tutor. Yeah, but I, what I guess I'm trying to do is evaluate, even in that context, how much worse is that or better than just playing Grim Tutor? Right. That's really the question. Yeah. It, I mean, if you could amortize the cost of Grim Tutor over multiple turns, does that make it much better? And it's also, in this case, also null rotable, which is part of the <laughs> advantage of Grim Tutor in the, in the Dark Rituals to begin with, is yeah. they can't be needled, null rotted, so on. <laughs> it's funny. This card has an interesting interaction with Force of Vigor because wow. they can only pitch cast Force on your turn, your turn. And you can only use this on your turn. But if they remove it, it means they're not getting it, right? Yeah. So if you if you played this with mana up and then passed the turn, did they, they want to force a vigor it? They're denying yeah. themselves the demonic tutor. <laughs> if you just use it in response, you get all the value and they get none. <laughs> it's kind the, of a funny chicken game of chicken. The other thing that's that's a good point. The other thing that's interesting to think about this is: is there a way that you can leverage it into something so powerful that even if you don't win, it doesn't matter? 
So if you were to go, let's say, turn one Moxland this, mm-hmm. turn two, activate Dark Ritual Necropotence, you might just gorge yourself and get forces and stuff that you don't really care what your, your opponent can tutor. But it seems to me that that's really a dangerous game. I completely agree. The only other thing I can think of is a lock piece. What if you were playing a lock deck that had black mana? So you go yeah. Landlocks Talisman, turn two, activate it, workshop Trinisphere. <laughs> you yeah. know, so your opponent, it's your so opponent can't really abuse it that turn. Right. If, if there were asymmetrical but, null rod effects, then that would be a different conversation. But aside from Karn, there aren't any in the format. Yeah. Kevin, this also, you know where this is awesome? This is great in two card Monty. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Especially ones with welders, right? Yeah, because all you have to do is you have one half of the combo and you just win immediately. So it doesn't matter. You just sit this and play. You're you're totally right. This is such a great Monty card. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know what's also funny about this is it's not legendary for some reason. There's a whole bunch of colored legendary artifacts in this set, and this is not legendary. So you can just pile these in play. Jesus. You can just t- play one on oh one and then play another one on two and pass the turn and then go nuts on turn three or wow. whatever. Wow, so you can get combo, get time vault combo with two. Holy yeah. smokes. Well, and this works with Voltaic Key for the reasons we've already said. Right. So you can get, you can literally activate, like put two in play, <laughs> tap and get Key Vault. <laughs> well, also... That's obnoxious. Or Lotus oh, Yogwill. Right. Well, also, if you draw one of these and Key, then you've got time vault on tap, right? So you yeah. can easily see a deck with four of these and four keys. Eight keys. Strike that. Jesus. Eight keys, if you wanted. Good God. That could be a reliable turn one deck. Yeah. I mean, imagine, like, with Opals and um, Grim yeah. Monolith, how much mana do you need to make that work? So if you have this in a key in your opening hand, you need two to cast so this, one to cast a, key. Hold on. Let's say you have Shop or Monolith. Hold on, hold on. Oh, sorry, doing it the other I, way. I got you. Yeah. You, you, I, I just want to count the total mana. Mm-hmm. So you got this in key in your opening draw. You need two to That's cast four. this. And one to cast key, then one to activate this, you're at four, one, one to, to untap it, five, key. one to That's activate five. it again, six, and then, and then, oh, but then your key is tapped. Yes. Well, then you, you can get another key in a vault. Yeah. That's one, two, three, four. It takes 10 mana, <laughs> but you could do it on turn one if you had this and key. If you have shop, grim monolith, uh, mox opal, you're already there. Well, you can't do it all on one, but you can play this and key on one, and then turn two, you just win. If you go Mishra's workshop, grim monolith, voltaic key, Tap you Grim a, Monolith. You need a black mana. Play, yeah, play Mox Opal. That's four mana still floating right now. Then you can play, and you already have the key in play. You can do everything you just said. So, I still don't think you have enough. You can't. You have to play the Time Vault still, remember? You have to play this and the Time Vault, and it takes a mana to activate this. Yeah, I think it's still too much. You have four mana. You still need with three afterwards. Yeah, you would You would need one more on top of that. Yeah. Um. Still, but that but that's it's a close. very reasonable turn so, two deck though and, with, and by all, the way, with four of these and a the, time vault. That's five of those, and then eight keys or however many is a reasonable about five of each of those. That's a really consistent could, like London Mulligan deck. And you can play Demonic Consultation and Two Card Monty. By the way, um, Two Card Monty also ha- can play Trinisphere, which is one of those cards you're talking about that you can just play it down and just mm-hmm. your opponent can't really take advantage at that point. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and Monty has all has other cards that screw your so, opponent up, like Wheel and Twister and things like that too. Yeah, I mean that so doesn't what, interact directly with the Talisman, but it interacts indirectly with the Talisman. Card's just perfect for two card Monty because you just get the other <laughs> half of the combo and you're there. I can't so, believe this is not legendary. I didn't notice that until we started reviewing it. <laughs> that so, that screws up my evaluation of this card big time. So, so there's there's what I want to really focus on is you. The criteria for this is 
you need something where you can either win immediately or create such an overwhelming card adv- advantage immediately that your opponent can't capitalize. Or yep. you can you have to time it or, to where you can bounce it. Yeah, or you can and, yeah, mitigate the fact that you're giving it to them. Right. So the three things, those three criteria suggest that this could be like a dark ritual card. And what I really like about this is that it the amortization does matter because you can the fact that you can just play this on turn 1 and then use it when you want is significant. Now the trade-off of the amortization is that you can't yog will into the tutor, which you do do with dark petition. So the first dark petition gets necropotence, the second gets yogmas will and the third one which played out of the graveyard gets the tendrils. So the fact that you can't get it out of the yard is is huge, right? This will never go to the graveyard unless you can sacrifice it somehow. Right. Right. So I think what we're looking at is a card that is in a basically you have to have a combo finish. That's the key. Um and you can't otherwise use it. So you're looking at two card Monty, Paradoxical Outcome, or a Dark Ritual combo deck. Or potentially yeah, some other Yogmoss Will Tendrils deck, basically, is what we're looking at, right? Uh I think so. I think that's the place. And the other thing I could think of that I mentioned earlier is outcome, right? Yeah, that's if- what I said. So so outcome a dark ritual combo deck. Okay, gotcha. Or two, yes. or or any other combo deck that has like that can just win on the spot. Now, the thing that's hard to think about is that the tutors are generally restricted in the format. So, there are lots of possible two-card combos, but typically you don't have a free tutor to be able to just finish the combo. So, like for example, what are some of the two-card combos? Obviously, the two and two-card Monty are uh Helm Leyline and Painter Servant and mm-hmm. um and then what's there's Key called? Vault as well. Yeah, Key Vault and, and Painter Servant. What's the other card? I forget. Oh, uh, Grindstone. Yeah. Grindstone. Thank you. I always forget that card. And then, yeah, so you say Key Vault is a big one. Mm-hmm. And then there is um, uh, Thespian Stage Dark Depths is another two-card combo, but that mm-hmm. takes an, a, tur- a full additional turn. Um, what are the, some other two-card combos in the format, Kevin? I mean, Gosh, without going back to like the replenish days, right? Yeah, I, mean, like, I like Flash Hulk. Yeah. Yeah, um, Flash Hulk. Wow. How about Doomsday? Oh my god. Flash Hulk? <laughs> no, seriously. Hold on a second. My god. I don't, I don't think it's better than Key Vault. Hold on a second. Let me think. It, it's not better than Key Vault. There's no... So, the Flash it, Hulk well, it's, decks... It's that, immune to oof. Yeah. The Flash Hulk decks that exist right now, they... The one I ran in the VSL, I think it went 2-1 and one or 3-0 and one, three and oh with it. It had um, Academy Rector and Cabal Therapy. So, it has black. Sure. Um... And what you all you want to do is flash Academy Rector to get Bargain into play. That is which, certainly which could be worth it. Citadel today. No, you can't. You can't Rector for a Citadel. You'd have to get Bargain still. Yeah, which Darn. I'm fine with. I mean, you just win if you can get Bargain. Flash. Yeah, not that that's bad. Flash. Flash is a great potential card for this, Kevin. That's exactly the kind of card I'm looking for because it's a, it's a really efficient compact combo, right? Literally two mana with Academy Rector in hand, and you win the game with with Bargain. That is phenomenal. I mean, your opponent will never get this back. That is exactly... And, and there's, no, there's no tutor in the format that can just instantly get it with that efficiency, right? Because if you play this on turn one, yeah, and then that's on turn a good point. two, you activate it, you can just play Flash right then and there. And if you can protect the Flash, and it, like, let's say you have Rector right in hand, you just have Bargain in play, and you win. <laughs> so um, that is fantastic. That's really good. And it's so compact that you can get the next one. So, you know, even if you, you, with your 19 life, you can get enough mana to play the next one to find the, you know, whatever it is you need to actually win with right then and there. A tendrils. Is so that on. a, and that's a Grim Monolith deck too, right? You think? No, there's the no Grim it, Monolith in, 
in in the flash deck. Well, I mean, wouldn't you build it that way these days? I just it's interesting. Can't shake that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. With, like, I mean, the, well, the with, synergy with, with Key in this though, is so absurd. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Is wouldn't you build it with Grim Monolith now? Because you'd have Key Vault in that deck also. If you're going to have four talismans and Grim Monoliths and keys, I mean, there's there's no this there's no a, opportunity cost having Key Vault in there. This is a design space that we typically don't investigate very closely because mm-hmm. there just is, and the reason is because there aren't the inter- the kind of interstitial pieces that you need to make those combos consistent. This is just such a piece. This mm-hmm. is the piece that bridges that gap, right? Like the gap being <laughs> mana flash bargain, right? I mean, like this is so, <laughs> I mean, that's why I'm asking you, what are some combos? And you, you came up with some great examples, right? Flash is a huge one. I'm not talking flash hawk, I'm flash rector. Flash so it's rector, flash yeah. rector, the two card Monty ones, key vault is enormous, is huge. Wh- oh, what else is um, there? Dragon. What? Dragon. Wow. Let's think about that for a second. Wow. So, number one, it's the same activated ability as Animate Dead. Number two, uh, you can bin the superfluous ones with um, Bazaars. And Um, this goes in, unlike, as you said, the tutor problem is it's hard to find a tutor that can get Bazaar or Dragon or Animate. And this can get all three of those. God. is This is a black artifact, too, right? So you can pitch it it to Unmask if you wanted. (laughs) Yes, that's cool. Um, In addition to Welding. So, what about about a Welder combo deck besides two-card Monty? Um, um, well, Monty's probably the best one, but like there, Slaver. No, I mean, there's, yeah, God, that's a, that's a good way to. Oh God, that's great with Wishcaw Talisman because then you oh! Oh! <laughs> you get oh to activate God! their talisman for them. Oh my God, that has to be death. <laughs> if if they're playing a blue deck, you the can. Talisman. Yeah, you can get their ancestral and An play ancestral it on you. You, you yep. can get a, a card that kills them. There probably aren't oh. many cards that kill in the average deck, but yes. You could actually just shops, take you can, If you're playing shops, you just go get Ravager and then sack their whole board. their entire board. <laughs> Wait a second. But th- there's another There's another shop deck that once used, like, a Cerebral Assassin. What am I thinking? Oh, yeah. Cerebral-, Cerebral, yeah you think Cerebral Assassin was a welder-based. Well, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a shop deck, though. No, that was, that was a bizarre welder deck, yeah. So you so you're black. What if you played, like, a black... Red shop deck with this, like a yeah, kind of I mean, Uba st- stacks. That probably wouldn't be. Well, that doesn't sound very good, though. I mean, you, you, no. if you're not winning the game, so I, I, yeah, the thing that the I mentioned key. earlier about Trinisphere is that this card yeah. is actually antithetical to a long game for more reasons than one. Right. And one of those things, it, it, critically, is that um, if you like get this, get a Trinisphere with this and play it, it's great. Your your opponent really can't <clears throat> do much. But you're giving them the tools to get out of that, right? They just activate the talisman and go get a land, and you're helping them still. Yeah, this isn't this isn't used. So, um, where this is used, it, the Trinisphere example is like Necropotence, right? It's like a card that's so overwhelming that it, it, you can you can use this to do that, and your chances of winning are still really high. They're not a hundred percent because yeah. your opponent with this ability it only takes one to activate it can find the solution, mm-hmm. but your chances are pretty darn good. Um, and so it has to be a card of the, if you're going to pass the turn, it has to be a card of the caliber of Necropotence or Trinisphere. Yeah. So, and I, I just don't think that's right. Mindslaver yeah. is actually probably the best example of that. Like yeah. the thing you can get that doesn't end the game, but it's so overpoweringly oh, strong that your opponent can't, can't come back. So, so for Mindslaver, what are you doing? You're getting Tinker and then you're going to Tinker in Mindslaver and then you need the four mana to be able to activate it. If you can do that, that's absurdly powerful. In that case, this is probably that's, a one of and like that's a, an eight a mana combo. <laughs> yeah, but but that's so that's like that makes this like a one of in like a control slaver deck basically. 
Unless you can bake in some other combo. I mean, you do have Welder in that deck, so you've got access to a few things. I agree with you, though, basically. It's not... Shoot. Maybe not four of, but, like, isn't that deck still really good at just going Landmox, Talisman, Go, and then seeing how the game unfolds? Like, you can't... I guess how the game unfolds is basically what did you draw? How quickly can you slave them? (laughs) I... I think that maybe there, we might be thinking about this a little too, or we might be articulating this a little too um, all or nothing. Vintage games these days are not all or nothing necessarily. There's a lot of early interaction. Don't get me wrong. The format's fast. But like if you're playing against Dredge and you grab your one main deck, uh, I don't know, what's a good main deck Dredge card? Grafdigger's Cage. The fact that they got a Wishclaw Talisman is almost immaterial at that point. It's not, okay, it's not immaterial. They have main deck answers. But the point is, you could structure your deck such that in many matchups, an activation of this doesn't doesn't matter if your opponent gets it. Dredge is a, a tricky example because they frequently won't even have the one mana to activate it, so that's kind of <laughs> a tautology. But think about shops. Can you build a a, a, a blue-red X deck where one activation of this will mean your, your shop opponent is just dead in the water? Your right? shop opponent or are you playing yes. shops? No, your shop yeah. opponent. Can you can you have a Probably. one main deck kill? I mean, you could put a Hercules yeah, recall get a in here. Recall, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's I mean, good so with that's interesting. Talisman, right? That's interesting, actually. And that's you just flipped the script on on us. We've been I've been thinking about this. How can we abuse this without a let our opponent getting to use it? But what you just pointed out is really important. There are a handful of matchups where what your if your opponent can tutor, it might not actually matter that much. Like if you if your dredge opponent can tutor, oh god, they get a second bizarre. I mean, if you got a leyline play, it really doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily, like, actually, Dredge can't even, doesn't even have mana. Can't <laughs> yeah, even dredge, activate this. Dredge is an ex- extreme example. But <laughs> yeah. I guess the, sh- the, the shop, shop, the shop example like, is a good they're one. Gonna get if you forget Hercules gonna get, with this. Yeah, like a shop player no, is going to get, like, a strip mine or no, a Trinosphere or a, or a. Hold on, Steve. The, in the revoker. shop example, you don't even give them an activation. No, I you understand. Just get Hercules. You just get Hercules and then bounce their whole board, including this. I understand. Yeah, okay, I got you. But what <laughs> I'm saying is, what are they going to get? <laughs> yeah, that's well, what I'm saying. This punishes were, opponents yeah. whose decks are homogenous, right? Yes, that's just what I'm getting full at. Stop. That's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at. And I think you, you were, you're kind of leaning into that, but I wanted to make that explicit. There you is go. That this, this is really bad if your opponent is playing a blue deck, but if they're playing Dredge, it like this is just demonic tutor. It's insane. Um, so it's not just about it's not just about what you're playing. It's also about what your opponent's playing that will leverage how, how, how bad the drawback is here. So I, it also I, gets I want- better post sideboard, right? You're playing against dredge post sideboard and you go like land mox mox True. and you've just got your, your craft figures cage. Yeah, you get the best. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing they can do about it. It's, this is unbelievable against dredge. This card is unbelievable against dredge. <laughs> so here, I mean, it really is. It's, it's I mean, they, they can do stuff about it just like Even they can they, do stuff about anything. Yeah. But the point is, it's real good. Even if they have land and can activate it, it's they're not going to be able to do very much. What are they going to get? Golgari Grave Troll? <laughs> well, just, I mean, they're going to get yeah. they're going to get For, Force of Vigor nine times out of ten, but it has everything to do with what else you draw. But so, um, so let's just hone in on a second. So here, here's the thing: there are a class of decks that we've identified that can use this card, but we haven't answered. And and those those class of decks are again PO DPS and like two card combo decks. Yep, like Flash Academy Rector, Flash two card Monty. You know, you name it. The, even control slaver. And then yes, there's maybe like a Grixis control slaver deck that could use one of these. But the, the problem we, the, the next step, which we haven't answered is, is it worth building around or is it a throw in? And are there decks that can really build around and be viable or competitive? Mm-hmm. That, those are the harder questions to answer. I mean, this is, this is enormously powerful. 
I, but the drawback is so steep that it means that you can't just. So the 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 weird thing about it is it's it's like those Punisher cards, right? It has a terrible <laughs> drawback, but the difference between the Punisher card is that you control the timing. You don't just mm-hmm. put all your eggs in one basket. You can let it sit there and ride it, right? It's a threat just sitting on the table. Like if my opponent had that in play, and they're playing a combo deck. I would think long and hard if I had a removal spell of letting that just sit there, right? On my turn, I yeah. would consider destroying it. Um, because, like, do you really want to let your Dark Petition Storm opponent sit on that, waiting until they can just Yawgmoth's will with it? Right. You have to respect it as a, as a demonic tutor, basically. Yeah, it's a huge threat. Mm-hmm. It's not a minor thing. It's sitting there staring you in the face. So, I'm, I'm really, I'm really having a tough time. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. It's a, a sign of a, a, an interesting card. I agree with everything you just said. It's enormously powerful. I also think that there is like that the vintage player base is not constituted in such a way as to really experiment and drive with this card. I think, I think like the experimenters in this format are more interested in cards like Urza than they are in like trying to just win with two card money type decks. But I, I also, can't shake the feeling that you, I mean, you keep bringing up the point with keys. Right, I mean, you this card could, plays so well with keys, you, and now we have eight of them. I mean, you can just there. It just has to be easy to assemble key vault with this, and some sort of. I mean, w- you could build the Karn deck with this. I guess you can't because you have to have black, and there's the the chrome mocks are the uh, not chrome mocks. The mox opals are the and lotuses are the only way to get the black, and that's not reliable enough. Yeah, you have so, to restructure the deck significantly. But yeah. Urborg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Urborg, yeah. That you, means you, that uh, Workshop and Black is is no new thing to the format, of course. So, and I'm not even sure that getting Necropotence is good enough. I wonder, though, I wonder if this could be good in, like, a Burning Oath deck. You can get Oath of... You can play it on turn one, get Oath of Druids, or the Forbidden Orchard next turn. That might just be good enough. I mean, your opponent can then activate it to stop your Oath, but then you get it back. Yeah, I can't shake the notion that in the post-Force of Vigor world, even a reliable Oath is not good enough. Yeah, that's true. And Force of Vigor answers this and Oath. It's just yeah, that's bad. pretty rough. So, In looking for other op- options throughout Scryfall, I see Kark Clan Ironworks. Yeah, Kark Clan Ironworks. Yeah, that's which a, has synergy both before and... I'm looking for a Zernorb for artifacts. Something that's really well, that's, efficient that's and has what, a good that's use. That's what Ironworks is, but yeah, it's but not it's a, a four-mana card, right? I know, but yeah. any Ironworks deck is going to be a workshop deck, and so this is kind of like a a one-mana card. I mean, it, it's it's Tinker that puts the card into your hand for one mana effectively. After if turn one investment of Mox in a land, turn two activation. Yeah, you know how do you not win from there? <laughs> I mean, it it just seems absurd on its face. <laughs> I'm with you. I agree. So it's you worth noting flash, that you can get the, the vault, broad vault. categorization of cards that we've been talking about and that you observed, that like the three main categories that fits in are all very vanishingly small parts of the metagame right now. Yeah. Right? PO this is the only exception, and this is more awkward in PO than effective. Yeah. It's it's possibly useful in PO, but it doesn't it doesn't turbocharge that deck. No, it's just kind of another in role fact, player. It removes a permanent that you could use with PO. So it well, actually yeah, undermines it's, it's PO synergistic, in that way. Right, with the, 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 the A plan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm. I'm. I think it's possible to play this in PO because there's some synergy to be had there. It's a deck that already has keys in it, for example. But it, you might find in yeah. building it that you just end up wishing for 
time vault because you already have a key in play and you just accidentally win like a whole bunch of games that right way. and then right. your deck design switches from it being a payo deck to it being a wish claw talisman key vault deck right i mean if you're playing a deck with five keys this card is just frequently you're just going to sit on it until you get a key in play untapped and yep. then you don't even worry you just get the time vault and win the game but how <laughs> long can you aff- afford to sit there with that and, and your opponents and click collect a roof off the table yeah, yeah. and how and how long can, yeah um, exactly. How can you keep Stony Silence oof off the table? And how long will your opponent tolerate this sitting in play? Like, <laughs> right. as soon as you get a Voltaic Key, they're gonna, they're gonna have to do something. They can't let you double. I mean, I guess what you could do, you know what you could do, Kevin? <laughs> you could immediately activate it for Time Walk. You, so if you have a, a, a key and this in play, so what you do is you go turn one, land mocks this, uh-huh. turn two, uh, key. Uh, I guess you need a little bit of extra mana for this, but then you want to activate it, respond with Voltaic Key, Time Walk, get a second activation, get the Voltaic Key. I'm uh, sorry, the Time Vault. And then with the second activation, you take your Time Walk turn. They have the, the Wish Claw, but it doesn't matter. You've assembled Key Vault. That's pretty brutal, actually. I, That's a really I, short I see, path. Yeah. If you have any kind of extra mana, like if you have a Grim Monolith or a Workshop or a, an Ancient Tomb even, I think that line you just described is actually... Um, deterministic Game over. yeah because i think Time- you can go like turn one workshop oh shoot you can't cast this off workshop that's, that's on one you, it has well, to be black 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 well, colorless but imagine if you had shop um but you also had one other land you have urborg you go urborg mox talisman next turn you play shop you play a key uh you're one mana yeah you're one mana away still the, the key is actually time walk Time yeah. walk allows you to, to to get the double activation and use the voltaic key the same yeah. turn, and you get the time vault and the time walk. You play the time walk and then you untap and win. It doesn't matter if they have it. Time walk is actually the solution to this problem. I think you're right. I think there's. And, I think you got it. And so that that actually seems quite powerful to me. Um, but the problem is it's just it's so spread out. I mean, you you're you're just trying to do. I don't know how you can protect that in modern vintage when Steve. you're trying what. I can't believe we forgot until now about Dak Faden. Oh my god. Dak Faden just takes just your Wish Claw right Talisman back. back. Yeah. <laughs> How wow. funny. You know, you know, the funny part is when your opponent gains control of the Talisman, it doesn't untap itself. They gain it tapped. Tapped. And so if you gain control yeah. back with Dak, you can't get the extra activation immediately. Yeah. But that's still awesome. No. The, the, key, to, the key to breaking this card is Time Walk. That's the key. Because I think you're right. I mean, that's, all that's you pretty need to strong. Do, all you need to do is build a deck that has a certain number of Voltaic Key effects, mm-hmm. and then you play blue and probably red for Dak, and you don't even need to worry about anything else. It's all just superfluous. All you have to do... <laughs> it's, it's all superfluous. I like yeah, that. All you have to do is just um, activate it twice, time walk Voltaic Key, and you're there. Um, and then if you have problems, you could probably time Yog will This is a Grixis deck. That we're talking about a Grixis combo deck with this. It's yep. that's what this is. Yeah, I wonder absolutely. how good that would be. That I think that would be really good actually. I don't know if it'd well, be tier one. I but mean, the, it has all the tools think, to beat all the other tier one yeah, decks. You have, except well, you have to have a really inherent built-in answer to Oof and Force of Vigor. Yes. So if so, you have Lightning Bolts for Oof. Yep. You have Force of Wills and Fluster Storms for Force of Vigor. Uh-huh. Um, and it's fast. Right, you can you can do this really quickly. Landmarks this. Uh, the, the the tricky part is how many Voltaic keys are you going to play for real? <laughs> yeah, right? how many Grim Monoliths? Is it a big? No, Grim I would. I would I, you're not going to go Grim Monolith in a Grixis deck. 
Zero Grim Monolith. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think you're going Zero Grim Monolith. You're gonna play probably you're gonna play Mana Vault and Lotus Petal and all that stuff. I would be very tempted though to play a pair of Goblin Welders in this. Oh yeah. I think that's worth, natural. I think that's where we are, where, where I'm landing. And it's, I don't. It's worth noting too that the Goblin Engineer gets this. Yeah, and I'm thinking like in the Grixis deck, you're probably going to run like two of these, and you could even run. I mean, God, if you play with these and Thirst of Knowledge, first for Knowledge, you have more things to bin, and then you yep. can just weld weld and, this back. And don't forget Dak Faden, of course. Yeah, Dak bin it and then weld back until you're ready to, to win. I. I think I I think I'm I've landed that this is insane in a combo deck if you can build a combo deck around it like a flash deck or a two card money this just is obviously included in two card money it's unbelievable in two card money <laughs> naturally um uh but that's like you know zero one percent of the metagame. so I think I think I'm comfortable with where I've landed on this I don't see this going real anywhere else I, I mean maybe it could be used in the Urborg slash like dark depths deck maybe. To get the other half I, of the combo. I would combo. be very surprised. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to wait, wait until you're ready, really ready to go off. And then even then, your opponent would be able to get like a strip mine or a swords to plowshares or something. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to go in that. Unless I'm just completely missing something that's obvious about those decks. Um, well, the, the way I've seen those decks built today is those are Workshop Bazaar decks, right? They they do not want to truck with this black mana business. Right. I mean, well, you have Urborg, and you have, like, some of those decks run a Vampire Hexmage, too, so they have black. Oh, do they? I hadn't seen the Hexmage version. Okay. Let's let's kind of summarize here. This is clearly a vintage playable card. There's yeah. a lot of different shells, some of them potentially very potent. It, um, it doesn't factor strongly into the dominant archetypes right now. Right. It doesn't go in Bug or survival. the Jeskai decks or Survival or Dredge or Shops. I don't think this is a PO card. I, I mean, I, think, I could be wrong about that, but I just think that because it doesn't doesn't fulfill the plan A, I don't think this is a very strong PO card. Unless the PO deck really leans into, like, I'm, I'm going to win with Yogwill right now. I'm going to win with, you know, this PO. I I'm going to play post-wins. Go ahead. I completely agree this doesn't play into the A plan of PO. But I think you may find that this is a good enough B plan that it still deserves its slot. The PO deck I, is already it already has most of the characteristics of something that can abuse this. That's true. With um with all the keys and all the bounce that they tend to play, right? Yeah, I, don't I think know it might just accidentally keys, be good enough. I don't know how many keys PO is running right now. I, count me as a skeptic. I, well, I mean, I mean I, I'm skeptical too that that's the best home. I just also think that that probably is the easiest home, right? It's a pre, it's a ready-made deck that can just try one of these, and people are going to get a feel for it. So even though I don't think that's the best home, I think our initial results may include that to some degree. Okay. And I, I have to play with this card, right? It could be that yeah. it's just, it plays better than we think, even even in a deck like that that's not designed to maximize it. I mean, the PO decks, uh, they're they're lean more comboy. They're weird. They're hybridy. They're yeah. they lean more comboy, but they're really into Lavinia and Narset right now. Look and look I, at how good this card is with Lavinia and Narset. It's I, I so synergistic key, with those. Yeah, I mean, I just think the key with this card is Time Walk. Time Walk is the key. If Time Walk's in your graveyard, you get Snapcaster Mage and flash it back. Now, that's yeah. really the key. I think the problem the problem is that I think this is kind of it's it's kind of analogous to the Urza problem. I just don't think this is going to be smushed into PO. I think it's not high enough value in and of itself. For this to be in the PO deck right now, because it, because the tutors you have, you need to be able to use to answer things, and and also to get immediate value, not just sit there. So I th- I, I just count me as a strong, but not I wouldn't be 
I wouldn't be, I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm a strong skeptic that this will be play in PO. But I agree with you. I think this is vintage playable. Um, I don't think this is going to be played in PO. If things stay the way they are, with the top decks in the format being kind of a battle between Bug and Jeskai and Dredge and Shops, well, Shops not so much in the, in the latest event, but does it? this doesn't have a strong place in that arrangement, right? Right. It, nat, Bug is a natural predator, just by definition. Yes. And as long as Shops is in the and format, Je- plenty of decks are going to have inherent ways to abuse you for playing this card. And Jeskai sees a lot of play right now, which yeah. means that you can't just sit with this and play. If you sit in this and play and they just steal it, that's absolutely... You cannot actually activate it on your opponent's turn. That's which right. Which means Dak, it's, it's sitting... A, yeah, it's a natural it's predator. It's sitting prey for Dak. It's... Yeah. That, in fact... I mean, <laughs> the fact that this is so bad against Dak may just mean it just isn't isn't going to see any play. Yeah. Like you cannot gift your opponent a demonic tutor in this format. <laughs> you just can't do that. I know. I agree completely. Yeah, that's going to be game over. If you if you go landmox this, like if they're on the play and they go land preordain and you go landmox this and they go landmox Dak, that's got to be game over. Yeah. I mean, they'll just sit on it until they're ready to time walk with Mentor and play and just kill <laughs> right. you. So. Right. So I just think there are too many natural predators to this. The only way this is going to see double-digit play, which I'm not predicting. I'm just saying the only way this could see double-digit play is if this creates a new, strong, or nearly dominant deck. And I think our assessment is that it, if, if the place that it could do that was in a combo deck, the format is just naturally resistant to combo right now. I agree. I think that's exactly right. I mean, what I keep coming back to is that, like, think about Merchant Scroll as a tutor. Like, the mm-hmm. first Merchant Scroll either gets a Force of Will or an Ancestral. The second gets, like, the, remember, Gifts Ungiven, in this sure. case, would be, like, PO or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you can get, like, you know, go on to Yawgmas Will. The problem is that this can't get that first step. So right. you have to get to the last step immediately. Yeah. Now, the exception is if you can get, like, a Necro. But even then, it's really dicey. So I think you're right. I think this format is resilient enough to combo. This is, I think this is going to see play. I don't know if it's going to appear in top eights, but I think it's going to appear in tournaments. Um, and if it does appear, it's going to be... I don't even. I don't even know if this is going to be. I mean, see, I don't think this is going to be played over Dark Petition, and certainly no one plays Grim, Grim uh, Tutor right now. Mm-hmm. So if it does see play, it's going to be like someone spiking a tournament into a top eight with like a Hulk Flash deck running this, or, or running a Grixis type deck like I sketched out yep. with two of these, and and that's not a bad plan. That deck could be really good if it has like bolts and pyroblasts and you know, things like that. You could imagine this being really deadly. But is it really better than just playing Dark Confidant if you have to sit on it until you can actually combo out and protect it? Yeah. Probably not. I'm with you. I think the results are going to bear out that this is similar to Goblin Engineer. That, yes, you can build a deck that has that as an A plan, and it will be occasionally good enough, but not consistent enough to be a regular player. Yeah, I think I, I agree with everything you said. This is vintage playable. At the moment, the format is not conducive to it. If this has a non-zero amount, it's going to be, I think, in the low single digits. I'm the comfortable one, going Lon Zero with this, just because the yeah, vintage community is is com- creative and resilient, and we've seen things like Goblin Engineer, for example. Right, but I'm not going to be surprised if this is a zero. And also, the restriction of misstep means that Goblin Motor could actually appear. You know, this that that effect is better <laughs> right now. Yeah, than agreed. it's been in years. Um, maybe this gives it the boost to someone to do it. So, what's your what are you thinking? Non zero. I assume I, single digit. Yeah, I'm thinking one or two. I mean, I, I yeah. That's where I am. I'm just going to go one on this one. I'll, I'll take two. Yeah. I think it's enormously powerful. Um, 
boy, that was a lot of conversation for <laughs> landing on one and two. <laughs> but I think we, I think we reasoned, reasoned to a good place, honestly. Yeah, I do too. All right, let's move on because we do have to review some other cards here. Once Upon a Time. 1G Instant. If this spell is the first spell you've cast this game, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them. Put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in random order. So what we have here is a, an impulse variant. It is an instant for two men. It looks at five cards. but the And the, the casting um, bonus is real super interesting and nice, and we should talk a lot about it. It can only get creatures or lands, which immediately pigeonholes it into a certain subset of vintage archetypes. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it could be great in some of those archetypes, but it means that, uh, you know, on the average, it's not going to be played in shops or PO or probably not bug or Jess guy, right? This is the kind of card that could really bolster a land style deck that wants to find specific lands. It could yep. bolster dredge, which wants to find a very specific land as well as or creature. Yeah. Or creature. It could be great in survival, which yep. can benefit similarly to dredge. And maybe there's another archetype that I'm not thinking of. You know, the the, I don't know, the, the new fast bond decks come in strange forms now. But uh, in, in the you know the specific role for some of the specific decks, it seems like a pretty attractive option. And that whole if it's the first spell you've cast this game clause is especially relevant in vintage. Right? It strongly influences both mulliganing and your early turn plan for a deck that could be potentially seeing this card often if you run four of them. Uh, factor all of that into the fact that it's a green card, which now has the new It Pitches the Force of Vigor line that we've been using yep. for Force of Will all these years. <laughs> we've been using for years, yeah. yep. And so a green card is an especially new and powerful uh, additional bonus. So I've said my piece, Steve. How are you feeling? I think you, you covered it pretty well. Um, it's hard to know what where to go next. There's several different things we could talk about. One is, what's the value proposition in Better the Card? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's kind of maximum value in a deck like Dredge, where number... So, number one... You want a deck that doesn't play a lot of spells, cast spells, so that you can maximize your chance of being able to use this for free. Yes, deck right? destruction. So Dredge, de- Dredge is a deck that might not even play a spell until turn two or three. I mean, it technically it doesn't need to play spells at all the entire game. But like, it's certainly the only spell it's going to play on turn one is, unless it has to force of will or unmask immediately, is going to be like a hollow one, <laughs> you know, on turn one. So what you're saying um, is, if this is in your opening hand, Dredge is the deck that maximizes your ability to abuse the first ability of casting it for free. I mean, clearly. Yeah. Um, and then also clearly benefits from the fact that it really wants to find a high-value Dredger and or find Bizarre Baghdad. So, like, the fact that you obviously mulligan to Bizarre, but this means that you could find a second Bizarre or you could find a Stripbine or something like that. Petrified um, field, yeah. Petrified field. Um, so, th- th- like the fact that you can get like a hollow one or second hollow one or like a- another stinkweed imp or something like, that could be very high value. Oh, and, um, or you can get a threat, right? You like, say you kept bizarre and a dredger, and you look through this and you get past um, an, an extra force of vigor and some other card, and you find uh, Ikerid or prized amalgam or blood gas. Yeah, Hokak, right? <laughs> so, yeah, this. The the fact that Dredge is a very homogenous deck is a little bit um, deceiving because it really does want us. It really does want one of everything. Dredge is the kind of deck that really would, thrives on finding one of each of its cards. Right. The problem with this card in Dredge is is two two problems. Number one, if you've already played a spell, like if you were compelled, like let's say you had a Force of Will in your hand, and you had to force something you opponent down turn one, and you play Bizarre and you activate it and you draw this card, mm-hmm. it's essentially just Force of Vigor 
fodder at that yeah, point because you're not going to ever green cast. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to cast this card. So is it better than like Noxious Revival? Is it better than you know a- another Dredger at that point? Like a right, you know a, a Gogari Thug? Probably not. Dark Blast. Yeah. And then if you were to run this card, this is the second problem. Would you play it over like like it just if you run four or three or four of these cards, is it worth having those blanks in your deck? Right. Yeah, like just yeah. like it does nothing in the graveyard. It doesn't it doesn't help you dredge, it doesn't facilitate anything. So you get this tiny marginal value on turn one, right? It's kind of like a you know what it's like, Kevin? It's like Chancellor of the Annex. There you go. Yeah. It's like if you have it in your opening hand, you get value. If you don't, it's this dead card. It's even worse than that because Chancellor of the Annex you could dread return and <laughs> right. actually get like, you know, get the reuse again. In survival, it actually might be a little bit better. Because in survival, it's going to be free a lot of the time, and you can then pitch it to Force of Vigor. You can find uh, either a Hollow One or a Bastion Ruala or a um, a Vengevine. Yeah, you know, um, and, <laughs> or one of your mana I mean, creatures if that's what you need. Dark, you know, Death Rite yeah, Shaman. Yeah, it might actually be a little bit better, but I don't know. Again, I don't know if you'd run four. Right. Right. I mean, like, but then you get you hit this weird thing where like you run the Miser's one. Like, then how do you balance the benefit of being able to use it for free against the cost of having it, you know, and having to pay full retail on it? That's, that's a tough trade-off. I don't know if that's worth it. And five is not super deep in vintage. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's deep enough. It's, it's about as reasonable as you could expect. <laughs> I mean, dig through time makes you look at seven. Well, I mean, that, know, yeah, that for spell two costs mana. eight. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I can't dispute anything you've just said. I mean, the opportunity cost is real in these decks that are designed, especially survival yes. and dredge, that are designed to use the mulligan to to find their pieces. Right. Yes. One of the things I I definitely want to reiterate is that you you can't keep a hand that has just once upon a time and no bizarre in dredge. Exactly. Really. Not at all. There. <laughs> yes, there is a mathematically a reasonable mathematical chance that there's a bizarre in your top five cards. So it's not a zero percenter. But it's just with the London Mulligan, it's just so much more reliable to just mulligan. <laughs> Get it? So the the only place where this card is really great in Dredge is if you're like you're you're going to one and you keep this, <laughs> right? Right. That's 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 a great thing, right? Yeah, you get to one and your seven yeah. card hand doesn't have a a bizarre or anything else that helps. You keep this and you've got another mull to five basically out of it. That's a super narrow situation that's probably not worth it so the real cost of this card and this is the important point this is different than the point you were just making is the design space cost that's the cost the benefit is is material and it's relevant and it's clear but then how do you balance the 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 benefit of the ability against the design space that it sucks up that's the problem and survival you need to have a certain density of creatures Mm -hmm. and you can't just i mean i guess you can in the mid late game i mean just cast this but i don't know if that's worth you know if if getting one creature for free is worth the cost of you know having every subsequent one having to pay two and drawing this card in future turns yeah means you can't discard it to survival blah 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 i just don't think this is good enough in survival frankly and it's really weird in dredge like in dredge you're gonna play i would i i just can't see playing four oh no I, i agree so you would play if you play one and you don't draw it, then it's just and you and you mill your deck and you need like something else better there. It's just totally dead against the marginal benefit of having in your opening hand. 
It's like Sphinx of Foresight, which I did play in Dredge earlier in the year, right? Yeah. It's like good um, if you have it in your open hand, but the rest of the time it's just dead. Now, it's of interesting. Course, it's th- very comparable to Sphinx's Foresight, right? On yeah. so many levels. It's a blank yep. green card, where Sphinx is a blank blue card, right? It functions effectively on your first turn, looking at the top of your deck. Sphinx looks at three cards and is uncounterable. This looks at five cards. Oh, but Sphinx doesn't put it in your hand, but it effectively does because you've got to draw a step. Yeah, yeah the, the comparison's really strong there. Very strong. And I think the conclusion then is very similar. The same. Yeah. I, wow, that's great. I'm glad you said that. I do agree with what you were getting at there just a moment ago in that if this is played in Dredge, I think it'd be played in low numbers, like a one of or a two of. Yeah. I mean, the being green is good for Dredge mm-hmm. right now. Because Dredge does need um, more green spells. So there, I, I think this will see a play. I think someone... You know what's interesting? If people are playing the the non-pitch version of Dredge, this gets even better. Um, not just because there's a non-trivial chance they could cast it, but because the density of green is so much greater. Yep. And they don't have to worry about, like, you know, um, bidding bad cards as much, right? It's just the green... You want Force of Vigor reliability, so... Um, I don't know if that's like really where things are at right now. Yeah. Um, is is there anywhere else this could be played? Maybe like in a humans deck, you know, maybe like something like that. Um, Gosh, hard, I, hard, hard to think outside of that. It, I suppose it is technically playable in uh, a hate bears deck. You can't play it off cavern. No, but you can cast it for free <laughs> if it's in your opening the hand. first time, right? right. Um, but you need to be able to keep the pressure on. Well, so. any deck that is. Uh, the thing is, Hate Bears doesn't exist right now, right? At the moment, Hate Bears is called Survival. <laughs> so we've already covered it. Good point. Right. Good point. But if you were to try and construct a Hate Bears deck today, it would inevitably be pushed toward Collector Oof, which compromises Agreed. the Cavern of Souls synergy and causes you to reevaluate the whole structure of the deck. Any deck that's, tri- that's called Hate Bears that has Collector's Oof can cast this card by definition, right? You know, barring yeah. Cavern on Oof, which I suppose would happen. So that the the hypothetical deck you're talking about probably could cast this, which changes the the calculus. But I still don't think it's it matters. You know, there is one other upside to this card. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. There's one other upside to this. You're playing a survival deck. You open a great hand. This bizarre survival hollow one, but there's no green mana, no forest. Yeah. With between bizarre and this, I feel pretty good that you're going to find a green mana source. Uh, yeah, it's reasonable. So I think this can actually help in that as well. Help, yes. You know, cause to be heavily played and or more successful. Mm, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I think I would, if I was playing survival, I'd probably play this as a one-off. At least one. I would certainly test that, yeah. Because here's the thing. If it's terrible, you can just bin it to, to Bizarre, <laughs> right? But but the, the rest, I think the advantage of having to be able to use it on turn zero or turn one is high enough, I think that it's worth running one. Uh, you know what else is that survival is the bizarre deck that gets to keep hands without bizarre. And that amplifies the utility of this card. Yeah. Because you can keep the titular card, right? Plus one of these. And then right. this card is great if you've kept that kind of hand. And even if you don't find bizarre, you can find again. Well, if you kept the root walla. Yeah, if you kept the survival hand, then you get to use all parts of the buffalo on this card, basically. <laughs> Because finding bizarre is great, and finding yeah. a creature is just fine. If especially if you're about to resolve a bizarre, oh, sorry, a bizarre nice, a nice metaphor there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with you entirely. 
So actually, so, I think that the deck that benefits most from this it is survival, survival in that context. Agreed. It's still so not I'm great, going, though, but... No, it's yeah. not. So I'm going to go non-zero for sure, because this is going to appear somewhere. I'm, I'm going to go higher than our, our than the talisman. Really? I'm surprised by that. Ball. Well, I, I just convinced myself that this is a singleton in survival at a minimum, and a lot of survival decks. So, yeah. Okay, so let's look at survival in the last three months since basically mid-June. Since mid-June, there have been one, two, three, four, five, six survival decks using our criteria of 32 players or more. How many of those in that time period do you think would have played a copy of this or more? Let's just say a third. All right. Well, that suggests two, which is the same as your Wishclaw Talisman prediction. Yeah. I'm going to say three for this, though. Interesting. Because I think there's going to be a dredge, dredge. You know what? I'm going to go four. <laughs> I, you know, I, I would do three and a half, but I'll just round it up to four. Nice. Nice. <laughs> um, I just can't shake the notion that player. it's reasonable to test these things based on the conversation that we've had. I just can't shake the notion that players are going to try it and be like, yes, it was nice that, that 5 or 10% of the time when it was in my opener, but then I hated drawing it. I think that what is nice about this is the smoothing factor. If you really need to get the land, you get the land. If you really need to get the creature, you get the best creature you see in your top five. I'm looking at a survival deck here from the last weekend mm-hmm. that was eighth place in the playoff, and he has 28 creatures. So that means it's that like healthy. fully about... Two and a half of the cards are going to be creatures. You're going to be able to get the best one. You're going to be able to get, if you need Oof, you got it. If you need Rootwalla, because you have Bazaar, you got it. If you need, you know, Vengevine, you got it. I just think this is Hollow One. I think this is, I think this is just good enough as a singleton that's yeah. probably just going to slot right in. Oh, yeah. and by the way, po- post board, it can get things like Ixel Jill or things like that. Yeah. So. And then the survival deck, it obviously pitches to force. So, well, that's reasonable. I, I'm skeptical that it's going to really make the cut in a long term in long term for that archetype, but it won't surprise me if some players do well with it, you know, make a top eight with it in the next month or two. I'm okay to go non-zero. I'm not feeling as high on it as you are, so I'm going to take, I'm not just going to take three in order to, to cement my win. I'm going to take uh, two to be cheeky about it. Okay. If the actual is three, then we can <laughs> laugh about it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We got to talk about Mystical Dispute. Two blue, instant. This spell costs two generic less to cast if it targets a blue spell. Counter, target spell, unless its controller pays three generic mana. What an interesting thing. We're just coming up with all kinds of brand new stuff in this set. This <laughs> is a a mana leak, because it says counter target spell unless its controller pays three. That is exactly mana leak. That costs one more on the front side, but one less if it targets a blue spell. Now, mana leak. Right. One less than mana leak. Yeah, well, yeah that's right. It costs three if it's non-blue, one if it is blue. And Man Leak has been played in Vintage. It's been a hot minute, but it's actually a Vintage playable card in the grand scheme of things. Um, the fact that this gets a benefit from I, I targeting Mana blue Leak, spells... Man Leak became borderline playable when Spell Pierce was printed. That was kind of where it kind of lost some of its luster. The last, but go ahead. The last top eight for Mana Leak in Vintage was actually this year. No, I, <laughs> the I'm 10th not, of March. Okay, so... You're right. It but is playable, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's super, extremely fringe. Super fringe, yeah. yeah. So is your spell pierce better off costing, or, you know, countering blue spells even better? It's This is way better than spell pierce against blue spells. It can target creatures, for yeah. example. You can counter Leovold with this. Is it better off that way against blue spells when it costs two more than spell pierce against everything else? <laughs> I'm skeptical. 
This seems like a fantastic sideboard card, but we already have fantastic sideboard cards for the blue matchups, right? Between Pyroblast and Flusterstorm. Overabundance, Flusterstorm, Pyroblast. Why don't you just go off on this card? What's your complete assessment? (laughs) My complete assessment is is that it's not main deckable in the format as a whole. It's yes, there are plenty of blue targets. This is great against a Narset, this is great against Force of Will, etc. There are so many other things that have caused spell peers to become more played. Now, one of them was just restricted in Karn. Well, two of them in Karn and Forge. But the simple truth is, is where you really want to interact with the blue decks even is mostly on non-blue spells uh, as a whole. So this can't effectively counter an Arcanist. This can't effectively counter a um, a young Pyromancer. It can't effectively counter a Pyroblast. Ditto their force of vigor. It's... Yes, it it's technically has a much broader range, meaning you could counter a, a workshop card with this, you could counter a survival or something like that. The odds of this being good enough to do that at three mana is so small. At three mana, the fact that this has a broader applicability than Spell Pierce uh, in terms of color, I'm sorry, in terms of card type, sorry, is is so counteracted by the fact that three mana is way too much for a counter spell. Then if you consider this a sideboard card, it is just... I think too narrow as a sideboard card uh, when you're you really want to be able to get rid of problematic permanence like Narset and Leovold, where Pyroblast really shines, and you and or you really want to have the insurance that their spell really just isn't going to resolve, which is where Flusterstorm shines. I think this card is like um, it's like um, it's like a political moderate. It's it's too, trying to play the <laughs> middle of the field too much, and as such, doesn't do anything well enough. Well, I'm I'm glad that our listeners who, if they're blue players, are tuning into this because they really want to know our take on this, have your take. <laughs> because this card does not... It, I'm so disinterested in this card, it's hard for me to even focus on what we're talking about. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate what you just said, because I think you did an excellent job of kind of describing some of the nuances vis-a-vis other counter magic. I'm not only disinterested in this card, I'm aggressively disinterested in this card, and I frankly don't care if my prediction is wrong. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> that is an interesting take. I'm a little surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I mean, this card. Is, I mean, I know that some. I can see how someone could be excited about this. This card is ten years too late for me to be excited. <laughs> frankly, that's a reasonable I, I, description. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, you're right. Ten years ago, yeah, before Flusterstorm, and what's how long ago was Flusterstorm? Spell Pierce came. Spell Pierce <laughs> was first. Yeah, by about seven, eight months, whatever it was. And uh, I think it came in. It came in with the with Zendikar. Yeah. Was it 2009? So it's been 10 years. So it's, yeah, it's t- 10 years too late for me to be excited by this card. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm very much with you. All right. So zero from you. Yeah. And and I frankly don't wouldn't be surprised if I was wrong, but I don't care. <laughs> I you know actually I, I share your feeling in the sense that if someone managed to top eight with some of these in their sideboard, I would be like, yeah, okay, how good was it? And they'd yeah. probably be like, eh, it was, it, you know, when I cast it, it was okay. <laughs> Which is it's pretty much the sign of a bad sideboard card, too. Yeah, I think so. I think it's possible that this could make a top eight. It won't It won't be in the long run. And also, there's a, there's, even though the format is heavily blue, defined by blue, basically, there's still a ceiling on how many matchups, you know, in a tournament that this blue. is really going to be good against. And the blue decks today are not all blue cards. Yeah. Like, the important cards in the deck, are some of them are blue, but not all of them. And you're going to be bummed when they cast Dreadheart Arcanist or Lightning Bolt or Monastery Mentor and you're holding one of these. Yeah, you can win a counterspell fight, but Flusterstorm and Pyro are just better cards at that. All right, let's move on to one Shimmer Dragon. Now, Shimmer Dragon costs 4 UU. It is a creature dragon. It is a 5-6 flyer 
that says, as long as you control four or more artifacts, Shimmer Dragon has hex proof. And then an activated ability, tap two untapped artifacts you control, colon, draw a card. Steve, I think this shares a lot of DNA functionally with um, the Sphinx, consecrated Sphinx. <laughs> um, in terms, of, I mean, it's obviously a six mana five six flyer, which is the same stats, but designed to draw you cards. Right? Is this really the, yeah. the headline here? Shimmer Dragon has some synergy in the vintage context with the four artifacts bit. Meaning, if you're casting this card, the chances are you've got two to four artifacts in play. So it might be hard to remove in our era of uh, assassins trophies, for example. Yeah, but unfortunately, what that translates into too is that it doesn't do anything for you until you untap with all those moxin and then if you're lucky it didn't get countered it didn't get removed and uh you have to untap with it yeah Yeah. then you can tap two moxin to draw a card yeah i mean you can draw and then just keep drawing cards drawing cards drawing cards right it's kind of like a it's kind of like a i don't know so it's the inverted consecrated swings consecrated swings is, is partly supposed to be a disruptive card yeah that you know prevents your opponent from going off but also like just naturally gives you some advantage over time Mm mm-hmm this card is like, it lands, you can get a little bit of value out of it, and then the next turn you're going to get a lot of value out of it, and then the f- turn after that you probably win the game. Yeah. That doesn't sound like where you want to be in vintage. The other problem is that like the snowball positive feedback loop element of this card is awkward in that, you know, tapping the mana actually prevents you from, tapping your artifacts prevents you from using the mana to win the game, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, the two-for-one trade, like, so you... Like, let's say your deck is like a PO deck and it's like a fourth artifacts, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you can draw three artifact, three cards with this the turn after it comes into play. You're going to draw maybe one artifact and you're still not going to be able to draw yet another artifact, you know, yeah. out of that. Another card, I mean, out of that. So I don't think the snowball, the accelerative effect is, is, is pronounced enough to be able to really leverage this. I think it actually is going to take probably several turns. Unless there's some other way that you can like combine this, like with a Sahili Ray or something like that, to really go over the top. Oh yeah, good point. And then you're just and then you're just super cutesy. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. To talk about your Sahili Shimmer Dragon deck in Vintage right now sounds pretty silly, but you make a fair point. You could put an engine together, which if you got it going, could be a pretty sweet engine. Uh, but as our review and subsequent report card of Urza shows, those kind of things are. They just kind of need not apply in the format right now. Yeah. I would also and like to point even... out that four artifacts is actually a lot of artifacts. It is a lot. Even though it's hard for your opponent to interact with the dragon once it's in play due to hexproof, it's not hard for them to interact with your artifact, right? And the format is filled with things. A, a, you know, Collector Oof, this sidesteps Collector Oof in the sense that you can still draw the cards with the artifacts, but it's hard as heck to get a Shimmer Dragon into play when there's a Collector Oof in play, right? And yeah. you layer and on top of that that Force of Vigor naturally undoes both your draw power and this creature is hexproof. And I just think this is right out at the moment. Agreed. I mean, this is this. I've kind of lost track I've, or forgotten kind of <laughs> what the class of Brian Kelly cards are. This is, you know, I call these Brian Kelly cards like the six mana and up. Yeah. If creatures that have these useful abilities, um, I think that day has passed in the current format. Yeah. I mean, maybe Brian Kelly can prove us wrong, but I think that day has. Is no, I mean, that was, that was a 2015 moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That For the moment, that is not the case. It'll take some dra- dramatic changes in the format for it to become the moment again. Let's move on to Witch's Vengeance. This is a sorcery that costs one BB. Pretty simple. 
Creatures of the creature type of your choice get minus three, minus three until end of turn. This is a pretty cool little wrath variant, and I would argue that the creature type selection of th- that's inherent in this is deceptively good in vintage on average. When you think about the combination, the intersection of what deck you'd be playing this in, right? And there's a couple, we can talk about that, versus any every other deck in the field, ignoring mirror matches, because obviously that screws this card up a bit. There's actually some value to be had by being able to surgically, so to speak, remove your opponent's creatures and not yours. I think, for example, just put this in the context of Bug. You're playing Bug. You've got a Deathrite Shaman, which is a what an elf shaman, and your opponent is on Jeskai, and they've got a Dreadhorde Arcanist and a Snapcaster Mage, right? You just play this and name Wizard and, and kill their team. Similarly against Dredge, if if you've managed to live till turn three or whatever, even in game one, you play this and name Zombie, gets rid of all those zombies. Against Workshops, it's a little tricky because Ravager is a beast for some reason, and Revoker is a horror for some horror, reason. Yeah. But the simple truth is, even though it's overcosted, you can you can surgically target those two creatures and theoretically remove them, or you could get some two-for-one value on something like Construct, which gets a couple of creatures in the deck. So even though this card is not incredibly efficient at three mana, it's actually potentially right in a lot of situations that it uh, might not appear so at first glance. I mean, I think you covered the ground pretty well. You talked about where this can be used, what its advantages are. I think there's two fundamental problems. Number one is it's a sorcery. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Actually, that's not one of the fundamental problems. That is a problem. <laughs> that is a problem. The two, funda- the two fundamental problems are the fact that it costs three mana. Oh, yeah. And the second problem is that there are available substitutes which are just superior. So um, in the sweeper variety, I, I still think Pyroclasm is just better. Uh, or Subterranean Tremors. Um, and if you're in black, there's still the... What was the commander card, Kevin, that you pay life to sweep? Yeah, the Toxic Deluge. And I haven't even mentioned balance yet. Um, I also think that the sub-problems are, number one, that it's a sorcery, and number two, that hitting a creature type is just too narrow for the reasons you mentioned. Um, you know, even within decks like Jeskai, you have to deal with both Mentor and or Pyromancer and or Arcanist and or Lavinia, right? All different creature types. So I, um, I'd like to point out that Mentor... Uh, and it's and it's monks are all monks. So this is yeah. actually a decent answer to mentor. Sure, and, it's a that's my point is that it's a great answer to one thing. Well, but then you have to deal you can't deal with both mentor and Lavinia and the monks. You have to choose <laughs> two of those three, right? Well, I, I agree with you. I would also like to point out that if your opponent has Lavinia and mentor and some monks out, you know how, how good is any card really that game? You're, you're <laughs> like you're expecting well, a lot from a card to well, be good. What's the point situation? of a sweeper unless you're under pressure, right? If, you, if you're not under pressure, then sweepers are irrelevant anyway. I mean, so. in that situation, if you resolve this card on Monk and it gets rid of Mentor and all the Monks, aren't you pretty happy with that as a card that's like restricted in Vintage that, because it's hard to answer? Sure. But my point, though, is that you know you, there's some combination of threats that you're facing mm-hmm. that will make this useful, yeah. right? And you're under, you need to be under some significant amount of duress for a uh, a sweeper to have any value. I mean, unless it's like a balance that can just wipe an opponent's hand out, right? You're not going to be playing with Toxic Delusion, Pyroclasm, unless you're actually putting some, it, you know, hopefully it's more than a one-for-one. I, yeah, I, I see your point. I don't 100% agree. I do agree that the, the draw for a sweeper is to be able to get back from a situation like that. 
But I'm of the opinion that a, a nice two-for-one on Jeskai, where you get Snapcaster plus Arcanist, for example, or you get Snapcaster plus Lavinia, is that's that's an okay effect. This card is not for that matchup, right? So we're, we're, we're jumping to some conclusions here by talking about playing yeah. this card against Jeskai, right? Do you have one in the main and you have it's game one, right? But I think it's fine to get a two-for-one against Jeskai when there's a lot of overlap in their creature types on sure, Human and Wizard. Sure, but that, it is fine. But most of the time, let's go back to my first two yeah. concerns, so like the mana cost and then alternatives. There's another cost, cost which is actually having this in the deck. Yeah. Like if a Jeskai opponent, if you play this against a Jeskai opponent, they're gonna sure they're gonna be upset that you destroyed their creatures, but they're gonna be quite happy you have this in their your deck because well, it's a bad card. I, I I'd like to challenge you a little bit on that because. Taken out of context, it's a low power thing. Like two for one in creatures is not how you win that matchup. I'm with for you. Black, black one. Right. Yeah. There's a big difference though between this and Wrath of God and Balance at all. Is you get to keep your team. You've got Deathrite Shaman and Leovold in play. Leovold's a bad example. You're probably winning that game. You've got Deathrite Shaman and call it Tarmogoyf in play, and they have Snapcaster Arcanist, and you've got kind of a standoff, but they've got Dakfaden going. You just get to kill their team and swing in with your goif and kill their deck like there's something to be said for the fact that this is asymmetric if you play it right so that's true i mean this that's is not just true i resolved wrath of god but against this guy that's that's an unplayable situation you okay, don't want but that in that situation how how would dismember play like i don't know it's <laughs> there's a yeah. whole bunch of different costs to dismember so, right so 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 what i'm saying is like if you're if you're two for wanting a just guy deck let's say they have snapcaster and arcanist and you have a goif yeah like I think dismembers like again to my my main point that the alternatives are are better. Like I would rather just have dismember, which I think is overall better card. Okay. Um, and would be able to take out the arcanist and you know pay maybe black one for it, black one and two life. Um, and I'm just in a much you know overall better position because I have a better card in my seventy five than this. Well, I would argue that that's not a great example, but I take your meaning. In the just so like in the, in, if I'm bug versus just guy, the the two for one potential of of witches vengeance is more attractive to me than the speed example. Like I've already okay. got answers to Dreadhorde Arcanist. I'm bug, right? That's not it's hard for them to get through with an Arcanist. Yes. Full stop. That makes this even less likely to see play because where else is going to see play if it's not a bug? <laughs> well, Seriously. and maybe the bug versus just guy matchup is not the the best case. Like we we don't evaluate cards on just one matchup. I'm talking about the fact that. The two for one aspect is is actually your part of your strategy in that matchup. Being able to two for one them and keep your team like that's part of Plan A in that matchup is to was to stay is to have threats on the board and card advantage. Make the case that this will ever see play in Vintage. I think it's slight. I really do. I think that it's a it's a decent playable sideboard card for creature matchups. I think it's I like it because it's flexible and in most creature matchups, especially in a deck like bug where your creature types are a little obscure right you've got elf shamans and you've got tarmogoyfs and you've got oofs right the fact that you're rarely if ever removing your creatures with this is nice that's that's upside it's it, it has that as an advantage over something like toxic deluge right just it's simple. there is an advantage we often talk about cards that are situationally better and situationally worse this is situationally better in a deck that has obscure creature types because you can get card advantage over your opponents. You can, there's multiple decks in the format right now that you can two for one or better, right? This is a good answer to a uh, Hangerback Walker. They get Hangerback on three or four. You you trophy it and then play this and clean up. Like, it's not great. It's still, at best, just like a, an Ashes to Ashes. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think, that, yeah, I mean, I just think there's so many good 
like anti creature cards in this format. You're right. There's but no there's not many of them are card advantageous and leave your team behind. Yes, dismember by I all mean, means. Absolutely. It's great. But it's not it's a one for one, right? That's not the role of this card. It's not its efficiency. It's its flexibility and the fact rather, that you're not murking your own team. Look, I, I'm not high on it. I'm just, just, like, just saying there's a home there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I th- I think that like that point is is not is not really effective for me because if you're playing bug, like you just do not want to like kill your death ride shamans in order to keep your I don't know tarmogoyfs around and give them a, a clear lane into the red zone. Wait, I think wh- that that's just wh- why are you going to kill your death ride shaman? Oh, you're right. You don't have to. No, that's my whole name- point. Is you keep yeah, your creatures. But death ride shamans are human, though, right? No, they're elf shaman. Oh, okay. Well, then they're likely to be sur- they're likely to survive anything you would use with this. Then right. that's fair. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's the attractive part. That's the value proposition, is killing their team and keeping yours. And no, it won't always kill their whole team, right? The the whole Lavinia um, young pyromancer with some elementals, like, you have to make some choices there. But the point is, is there's a lot of overlap. Most creature decks in Vintage these days have some strong overlap. It's not great against Dredge. You're going to clean up some zombie tokens against Dredge, and that's not good enough in a lot of cases. So so I'm not I'm not singing its praises. And I'm not saying that this is exactly the thing that Bug has been missing. I'm a solid zero on this. Yeah. Well, I think given your pessimism, you're bringing me down on this a little bit. I agree with you that this effect, even though it has some upside, is not what Bug is missing in the format. And there's really not another deck that wouldn't just play Toxic Deluge, basically. Uh, that's not, you know, a, an obscure creature type deck. So I think I like it more than you do, but I do think it's a zero still. Fair enough. All right. This next one's going to be funny. Questing Beast. 2GG. Legendary Creature Beast. It is a 4-4. And its text box is a whole bunch of word salad. It has Vigilance, Death Touch, and Haste. It can't be blocked by creatures with power 2 or less. So small creatures can't block the this. The good old Dwarven Warrior's ability. <laughs> no, that's different. That's, it's target creature oh. with power 2 or less is unblockable. That's, it, oh, my bad. <laughs> it shares some DNA, but it's, uh, this one's <laughs> yeah. better. Anyway, uh, combat damage that would be dealt by creatures you control can't be prevented, which is weird. And then, whenever Questing Beast deals combat damage to an opponent, it deals that much damage to target Planeswalker that player controls. This thing, I mean, for lack of a better term, is a beast. Vigilance, Death Touch, and Haste for a 4-4. It has has six abilities. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's difficult to block if damage prevention is not really a thing in Vintage. but, But if there was something that prevented its damage, it wouldn't happen. And it has haste, yeah. And it just happens to be a uh, a Planeswalker killer, right? Like, it gets through right. and it hits, it hits their Planeswalker, which is really, in Vintage context, I would say, uh, a reverse way of saying, if this kills a Planeswalker, it also damages them. <laughs> right. Th- that last cl- ability bears some emphasis. It's mm-hmm. not a replacement ability. It's a trigger. It's a trigger, yeah. Which means that it does both. Oh, yeah, it, it does. functionally can do eight damage, in other words. Yes. That's you, important. You can take out their Narset on one, and, and they still take the four damage. And because it has haste, it has the old Slash Panther yep. effect vis-a-vis Planeswalker. Yep. And this basically at least kills and, and probably survives almost every other creature in Vintage right now. Also, don't know, don't yeah. forget, it's hard, to, it it's hard as heck touch. to block. You can't block this with Lavinia, yeah. Snapcaster Mage, uh, Arcanist, Deathrite Shaman... Uh, no. Revoker, small ravagers, small you know, small ballistas. This is hard to block. It can't, yeah, it can't be blocked by. Yes, it arcanist. Yep, yep. It, can't be it can blocked. be blocked by Leovold. It can be blocked by Tarmogoyfs that are of sufficient size and the the you know the mid sized um, workshop creatures. But it's also worth noting that this still just tra- not tramples, but this still just demolishes most workshop creatures. 
What's the what's the isn't there an ability that says the creature can't be blocked needs to be blocked by two or more creatures can't be blocked by a single creature? Yeah, menace. There you go, menace. Okay. Mm-hmm. This does not have menace. It's just, <laughs> no, it does it's not. Certain kinds of creatures can't block it. Yeah. And it's and on top of all that word salad, it's got vigilance too, so it plays defense yeah. on your walkers as well. I don't think this, this, the only deck I can think of that this goes in is like in a, a sideboard one of in the old, um, what was that other four mana troll card that couldn't be countered or had hexproof? What was that? Thrun, the last troll. Oh, yeah. This feels like in Thrun, the last Kelly troll deck. to me. Yeah. It's, it's, so what problem does this solve in vintage? This is basically an anti planeswalker card. Yeah. But vintage isn't really set up in such a way that, like, I mean, I don't know. You're playing against a PO deck. Sometimes it feels like you, you gotta you gotta nail some planeswalkers. So maybe this like comes in against the P. Like if you're playing Bug, you can sideboard this against PO when you know PO is bringing in Narsets and Teferis and all that nonsense. But I don't even know if it matters that much, honestly. Well, I I think it's more of a because, Jes- it's more of a Jeskai card because this sidesteps Pyro and Lightning Bolts, right? And it's hard to block and it mercs their deck and Narset. It's worth noting that Thrun has put up three top eights in the last quarter. Remind me everything Thrun does. It can't be countered, though. As well, Thrun, it can't be countered, which is critical, right? It can't be the target of spells or abilities your opponent's control, so it has hexproof, and it has regeneration for two mana. And what's its power and toughness? 4-4. Four, four, four. Four, yeah. It has no other yeah. combat abilities, though, right? So Thrun is yeah. there for its survivability, whereas Questing Beast would be more along the lines of there for its surprise ability. And this has haste, so it immediately attacks. Yep. Oh, and also um, and then, Thrun can just be chumped. Like, you can put elemental tokens yeah. or monks in front of it all day. Can't, this can't You can't do this. that. Yeah. And then now, also... Mentor can answer also this, this card with two spells. And you don't have to worry about, like, do I attack their Planeswalker, do I attack them? Right. And you don't even dilemma. have to choose which Planeswalker fact, you're going to damage until it gets can, through. <laughs> can you attack two Planeswalkers with this? Uh, no. The ability says when it deals combat damage to an opponent. Yeah, but I wasn't sure if Planeswalkers are players these days. <laughs> no, they're not. Okay. So... Yeah, if they have two walkers in play, you can't kill both of them with this. But the good news is, is you attack them, the, you know, attack your opponent, and they don't know which one you're going to damage when it yeah. hits. So they have That's to they useful. have to make combat decisions without that information, which is small, but it's something. Yeah, I don't know. I think the fact that Thrun is a playable also vintage card can't be jumped by a Snapcaster with Bolt, right? For, right. for a trade either, which is nice. Yeah, Snap Bolt Snap need not apply here. I'm sorry. If you have the mana for Snap Bolt Snap, it would kill this, but. Just a snapcaster by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Basically, the Jeskai deck can't stand in front of this except with a mentor plus two spells. And even in that case, they're losing their mentor to this. So the other problem is this dies to plow. (laughs) Oh, naturally. Naturally, which Thrun does not. And so this card is increasingly less attractive as Jeskai is on the rise with with more plows in the environment. But even the Jeskai decks are leaning on Bolt these days. So it's not a sure thing, right? Yeah, I, don't know. I think the there's, a nar- there's a narrow space for this in the format, especially with Teferi and Narset kind of at apex value. Yeah, I could see it. Are you more worried about their Planeswalkers or their Plows, right? That's really kind well, of the question. Well, it depends. Question. Against PO, you're more worried about the Planeswalkers. Against uh, Jeskai, you're more worried about Plows, honestly. Are you? If you're playing Bug, are you really worried about their Plows? Like, yeah, I am. You're overloading yeah. their Plows in that deck. Yeah, I'm still worried about it. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. I think in the matchup against Jeskai, I'm actually more worried about their walkers. Fair enough. These days. Well, this does this does a lot about it. So. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that's the difference yeah. between the choice between this and Thrun pivots on that in, that point. Also, which one would you rather have against Shops? I'm not entirely sure. This one punches above its weight Tarmogoy. against Shops. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you've already got that. That's true, because it has Vigilance and Death Touch. Right, so this is actually way better than Thrun against Shops, in my opinion, because it plays offense and defense. Yeah. 
I'd still rather have a Goyf against Shops. <laughs> well, I mean, but. it's not an either or. You're going to have the Goyfs anyway. My point is, as a sideboard card, I believe you can bring Questing Beast in in more matchups in the modern metagame. I think I think Thrun's pretty soft against Shops. It's not that great. I mean, this isn't great either. It depends on your calculus. But I think this is better than Thrun in, against modern Shops. They can't block this effectively. And if they do, it's because they've invested in a big like Ballista or... Um, Hangerback Walker or Ravager, and this trades with that creature in a way that Thrun usually doesn't. I don't know. I think that if we're looking at Thrun as a standard, and I I actively feel like this is going to be chosen over Thrun by some people, then it's a non-zero. It's a super low non-zero number. I'm going to go one. I I don't know. I I I think you know. I think that Bug is annoyed by Planeswalkers, but also has really good answers to Planeswalkers in the form of Assassin's Trophy and Abrupt Decay. Um, but on the other hand, its best answer really is something like this because it creates pressure in multiple ways. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go non-zero as well. I'm going to go one as well. I'm going to tie you up on that. Something we haven't done in a while. Predict the same number. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. This next one is crazy. Oh, geez. There's so many more crazy cards. Uh, Emery, Lurker of the Lock. Two, you. Legendary creature, Merfolk Wizard. She's a one, two. This is the lady in the lake. This spell costs one less to cast for each artifact you control, so it has affinity for artifacts, effectively. When Emery, Lurker of the Lock, enters the battlefield, put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard. Tap, colon, choose target artifact card in your graveyard. You may cast that this turn. So, affinity for artifacts means that this card is frequently going to cost one or two mana, frequently, especially in the deck she's designed to be good in, which is an artifact-heavy deck. So one or two mana, you get a creature with an activated ability. Oh, you mill yourself for four, and then you get this creature with an activated ability, and she lets you take a card in your graveyard, an artifact in your graveyard, and, and you can cast it this turn. I think we don't have a graveyard-based you know, artifact uh, c- combo or control deck right now, but the fact that this gives you selection out of the four cards you milled, so to speak, the turn after you play her, plus selection from anything you play that sacrifices itself, read Black Lotus, right? Especially in within the lens of the Wishclaw Talisman discussion we had at the start of this review, and the fact that she is somewhat, although not much, synergistic with Paradoxical Outcome, right? Representing one, maybe two, ultimately, permanents herself for one mana means there's got to be something to this. So which which of, is her, her main ability, in your view, is the last one, right? Well... That's the main one. I don't know. I mean, the first one is not is just a, is just a cost reduction. The second one is a, just a mill. Um, the third one is really I, I where the so. value is, like, the real value. And the reason I ask that is because Goblin Welder does a very same similar thing, except you don't have to cast well, it. Well, I mean, you you yeah. lose something out of that, right? Because you have to exchange something. But I'm I'm like, so for example, if you wanted to be able to get a Black Lotus, or if you want to be able to get a Tormod script to keep Dredge off balance, I mean, this is, I mean, Goblin Welder is basically the same thing. The difference, of course, the main difference is that Goblin Welder doesn't come in and mill you. So you can like, you know, play this for, I don't know, two mana on turn one with a mox and a land mill, and then next turn get that artifact for free. But is that really any better than Goblin Welder? In fact, isn't it just in general significantly worse? I would say that in the use case of cheating on mana, then yes, this is pretty inferior to Goblin Welder. Like Welder has historically gotten back things like mind slavers or big artifact creatures, that kind of stuff. Since Goblin Welder is not really a factor in the format right now, I think we have to recalibrate our historical lens. The example that you just used, for example, of Tormod's Crypt, Emery is actually better 
when you're trying to use a Tormod script than a welder is, right? Full stop. If the artifact is free, then Emery is superior. You can just yes. keep replaying the and same you're not losing an artifact in play every time. She actually just goes indefinite with a Tormod script. Imagine trying to be... Imagine yeah. you're Dredge, and you're trying to beat this card when your opponent has a Tormod script. Can't beat it. Cannot beat it, unless you have, like, a right. Chalice of the Void so or something So, from that standpoint, like that. you know, in that particular example, or when the artifact itself costs zero, I consider her superior to a Welder. It, and by the way, if you're if the Dredge player has a Chalice, then uh, the Welder yes, is superior. I would say. I agree. Um... The other the other thing is is that she has a synergy a type of synergy with paradoxical outcome that Welder really doesn't enjoy right she amplifies her benefit True. by being recast you can yeah. just keep bouncing her and and then she gets better and better with more selection as you do so so there's that element so she's kind of like a a one card engine so, uh, you know t- a small to a degree engine and something that Welder doesn't enjoy right Welder requires additional synergy to really be effective that's not saying much because you're going to build your deck synergistically but it's it's the truth right so we're doing small 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 benefits here another thing to keep in mind is that this is a blue card right which is inherently an advantage in in vintage as a whole and as such the um the the deck construction limitations aren't there so i think this card is another one of those potential engine cards for po it doesn't really here's the here's the thing the big thing (laughs) Well, I haven't know. we learned our the, lesson? <laughs> this has an advantage over Urza, right? There's a big difference between one and four. So there's that said. And yes, I'm, I am learning yeah. my lesson. But the other thing is that I think it's even more important is this does not answer any of the problems that PO has. That's the real yes. big thing. If there were, yeah. like, she makes something like Gifts Ungiven, you know, pretty effective. Game yes. over, in fact, for, for Key Vault. So if you go turn one Emery and then. I don't know, a turn two or three through Grim Monolith, play Gifts Ungiven, right? She can end the game that way. And she gives you a little bit of long-term inevitability, right? She's a, she's a value engine for certain matchups where, where it matters. But, you know, all, I don't think all the pieces come together to make a great vintage card right now. And and on top of that, she doesn't she, if she doesn't go in the one deck that really seems to need her right now, or could play her, I mean, which is PO, then she doesn't really have a home. Agreed. I mean, one of the things that I think is really useful about her is that she just keeps coming yeah. at you. Value. With, <laughs> like, key vaults or whatever. Like, yeah. Um, but I just, that's, I mean, like, she, you know what she could do? She could allow you to keep playing Memory Jar, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Yeah. The problem is, like, to me, to me, I mean, again, I think just, I think Goblin Welder is, is too good not to see any play right now. If, here's the question. Suppose Goblin Welder were printed in this set, and we know what we know about Goblin Welder, and it was a but it, yet it was a new card. Um, would you predict that Goblin Welder would see any play in the Ooh, next three months? That is interesting. Um, through the lens of what I know right now, no, I I would not. Yeah. Okay, so your answer then probably is zero here as I well. I think so. Even though there, she is situationally better and situationally worse, I think this conclusion is the <laughs> same. Yeah. I think Goblin Welder is better because, as you said, it can cheat. It's a mana cheat. And also, I think it can overcome a number of things. It, it's not strictly superior, as the you said, it's situationally higher, worse. The, the ceiling situa- for power, I think, is what? higher on Welder, for the reasons you stated. Cheating on mana is huge, and historically, exactly. it always is and always will be. And she does not allow you to cheat on yeah. mana, except you know for herself, theoretically. Like, you go land no. mox mox. <laughs> and she's not disruptive to the opponent, either, where, she, where Welder's very well, disruptive to Well, I think that's contextual, right? Theoretically, the card she would be getting back is disruptive to the opponent, so there's that, but... But I take your meaning yeah. by herself. I yeah. mean, like if you're playing but against she could shops, disrupt your opponent yeah. as early as turn two, right? If you're playing against Dredge and you go land Mox Mox Emery and she bends, uh, you know, yes. your your one yes. <laughs> Craft Digger's Cage or your Tormod's Crypt, 
She has a form of disruption, but I take your meaning. Yeah, I, I'm comfortable yeah. going zero on Emery, even though this is a really cool card. Yeah. Emery, beautiful art. I, but, I Thank um, you for saying so. Yeah, I really want to, um, to call out Livia Prima, the artist here, for, in, for surrounding her with black lotuses in the water. Lotuses? That, that is a, <laughs> just a, a perfect touch for the art on this set. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, if this were another format, like, say, Modern, for example, you might talk about the fact that she's holding a sword and that she could distribute cutlery. But in <laughs> in vintage context, she wants to hand you flowers. Yeah. All right, let's move on she to sure a card does. that I know we're not going to predict zeros of, and that is Deafening Silence for white. It's an enchantment, and it simply says each player can't cast more than one non-creature spell each turn. This card, I'm just talking about, this card is where it's at. So <laughs> cast ability, spot on. Can't get better than a single mana. Enchantment, perfect. That works great on the kind of, Decks you want to disrupt, the, the enchantment removal, even though Force of Vigor is omnipresent, enchantment removal on average in Vintage is low. And the fact that this is punishing of some very common and powerful strategies in the format, like Paradoxical Outcome, etc., uh, means that this card is immediately deserving of consideration. I'm not entirely sure where it fits in the system of the metagame right now. I'd like to talk about that with you. But <laughs> face value, this card simply has to be Vintage playable. Yeah, this is this is awesome. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but this card <laughs> makes me very excited. Um, well, I think here's where I'll begin. I'll ask you, Kevin. So let's go over all the rule of law type effects, arcane laboratory type effects in the format that have ever been printed. Okay, <laughs> that's a long so list. So we have at the top arcane laboratory. It's not that long. Arcane laboratory, the white plane, sh- uh, the the color shifted yeah. version, and rule of law. There's uh the arc uh the two mana. One that yeah, has the exception uh, for artifacts. Canonist. What's it called? The canonist. Yeah, I was kept uh-huh. wanting to say arcanist. Canonist. Um, well, there's the, the creature version, Eidolon of Rhetoric, right? Uh, no, yeah, it's two white. Plus the same as Rule of Law. Yeah. Then there is okay. a four mana version that's a curse. Enchanted player can't cast more than one spell each turn, right? Which is never played. So the point and, but then yeah. but, but then there's some Keep functionally equivalent ones i mean not functionally equivalent but there's cards that have are similar in effect right and i lump most taxing effects in with this right it's not strictly speaking this effect but the thalia the, the, there's well, the like and the spheres the, of the world yeah, play this role second. and then there's things like yeah that, that are functionally similar like um the the blue one legend that flips um arayo there you go yeah arayo yeah yeah, Arayo in, in Rule of Law. Boy, Arayo in this <laughs> yeah. is brutal. Um, Absolutely brutal. Yeah. So here's the point I want to make. This is the cheapest version absolutely. of this effect we've ever seen. The the, the previous version was the Aethersworn Canonist, and it had a pretty large exception loophole that people could <laughs> just vintage, drive a yeah. back truck through. Um, in Vintage, because even a PO deck could go, you know, mox, 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 <laughs> PO, mox, 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 yeah. mox, mox, you know, and then pass the turn and be in fine shape. But this, uh, this is really nasty. Um, and the exception, so of all the spell types in the format, let's just, ex- let's just, the main spell types, right? Enchantments, artifacts, land, right. uh, lands, uh, card type, sorcery, instance, and creatures. Artifacts. And of course, there's planeswalkers. So, s- yep. and artifacts is eight. Eight kind of card types that see play, seven, there are spells. Um, and we're not counting tribal, blah, 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 right? Like, the one that sees the least amount of play is basically either enchantment or creature. Creature sees more play than enchantment. Well, planeswalker. We'll just grab I that. I think the, the number one is enchantment, number two is probably planeswalker <sighs> in quantity. 
Yeah, the number three. The number three is creature. So creatures in the bottom half, right? The cards that see the the, the spells well, that see more play or sorceries. Yeah, instance, sorry, I didn't. I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I'm agreeing with you, and I'd like to add something to that, which is of the top three that are the the, the least common creatures is also the easiest to answer. Yes. So the most played are instants, sorceries, and uh, artifacts by far. <laughs> Those three, and then after that, um, creatures, mm-hmm. planeswalker, enchantment. That makes this. Not only is the creature the easiest to answer, but the enchantment right. is among the hardest to answer. Force of vigor, force of vigor, notwithstanding. Um, so this is a fascinating card. This is, I think, for me. I mean, the first card we reviewed was a real mind bender um, because it it it's positioned in vintage in such a way that creates so many possibilities, but the possibilities are so extreme that you have to kind of figure out right, how right. this might fit in. This card just like cuts a scythe through the middle of the format, and it's really good against everything. It's good against uh, Xerox, because Xerox can't then cast, you know, like, do what it does, mm-hmm. which is multiple spells per turn. Um, it can't, it's great, fantastic against PO. If you play this on turn one against PO, PO is essentially just dead. <laughs> just dead in the water. Yep. I, honestly, I mean, if PO can't play, can play one artifact a turn, I mean, I don't even, they can't even, like, develop until they remove this. Um, it's not very good against Dredge. Um, I'll grant you that because Dredge doesn't play a lot of spells. Um, and the exception for shops is kind of disheartening because all those artifacts, most artifacts are creatures. But even against shops, it means that shops can't go Mox Mox Mana Crypt, right? They have to go like <laughs> Workshop, right? Um, Foundry Inspector, you know, blah, blah. So it can slow shops, but it probably won't slow shops very much. At least not shop aggro. It would have been absolutely bonkers against the Karn <laughs> yeah, deck. I agreed. Like, I mean, it would have totally stopped the Karn deck in its tracks. Uh, hashtag unrestricted Karn. <laughs> but um, the the and also by the way, totally stops yep. uh, Mystic Forge. Um, but the point I'm making is that this is the fastest one we've ever seen, and it's the most disruptive one we've ever seen at. Less than three and, mana. Yeah, right. and the creatures so, in the format are not... I don't know how to articulate the point I'm trying to make. The creatures in the format don't adequately answer this, so that's one thing. Not that creatures are intended to answer one-man enchantments and vintage, rarely. But also, the decks that... Right, you can't Snapcaster right. and then hit this. You can't you Arcanist can't, something yeah. and hit this with reliability. You know, Leovold doesn't answer this. Like the creatures in the format will resolve for the most part, but they they don't answer this. And so if you've got a deck that has this and then a fundamental plan against the creatures that will you know the decks that do play, then you you're inherently well positioned in the format. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it a white deck is one of the better decks in the format right now at answering creatures, full stop. And that natural combination of this in a white deck with the proper strategy against the creature-based strategies means that you could you could be very well positioned against every archetype because this inherently punishes Xerox and PO and any other combo deck. And then if your anti-creature strategy can get one over on Bug, then you're just very well positioned. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's part of the, the problem, though, is that so you've got half the format which is hosed by this, and half the format that's not affected very much, right? The shops, the shop aggro deck not being affected is really brutal. Bug being limitedly effective is is a problem. Dredge being unaffected is not really a problem. Um, how do you 
how are you i mean i know it's i'm jumping ahead to a degree how are you viewing this card in terms of deck construction do you view this as a main deck card or a sideboard card for example so i think it depends so here's what i was thinking about i was thinking about is this good enough to main deck i think the answer is yes because it's so disruptive that if you if you can build a so for example the most obvious home for this oh, is yeah. in a white eldrazi deck this is unbelievable this is so in a white eldrazi so good. Now, the Wild Razi has the problem of mm-hmm. mana consistency. But if you can build mana consistency with this, like you just, you're not affected mm-hmm. by it, and your opponent can just be hosed or modestly ineffective, and then which place you just take it out. So clearly main deck there. Clearly main deck if you're playing it in like a, a humans or, or, uh, humans, you know, in a, uh, Cavern of Souls type deck. Um, I, I think this is definitely main deckable. Mm-hmm. I also think it's sideboardable. I'm also wondering if you're just playing, like, let's say you're just playing Landstill or a blue-white control deck. Is this just so good against PO that it's worth just, si- just like, it's just like stony silence against PO, but one white? Is it just that good? That's what I'm wondering. Like, if you're playing even like Xerox, where you're, you're affected by it, it's just so <laughs> good against PO that, like, you can just play this and they can't do anything. My instincts are that the answer is yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean... It has a little bit to do with the nature of the PO deck, right? How much alternate win condition does it have? Does it have Lavinia's, right? What else does it have? So there's that. Yeah. But it's not, like I said before, it's it's kind of trivial for a white deck in Vintage, especially the landstill kind of thing you're discussing, to answer a creature, right? That's really not the problem. The trick is, do you end up backing yourself into a corner somehow? Yeah. Or you can't play spells. So, yeah. If you're a landstill deck, then I think almost by definition, you're structured such that you can win the game without ever casting another non-creature spell, right? Your deck is right. the title. But if you're right, playing the title Xerox, of the deck is such that. that you're designed to do that. So I think the I, I can't remember the, the last time I played Ether Sworn Canadas in the sideboard, but I remember encountering sure. that problem frequently. Understood. So I think with, in the case of landstill, that's a special case. The answer is clearly yes. The, 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 the ends justify the means there. I don't think you can jam this in Xerox against Outcome. I really don't. Well, what if you're playing a, like a, a Delver deck? Um, can you talk more about the the salient features of that deck versus a Jeskai deck today? How much heavier on creatures is it, for example? Yeah. Is it anything more than Delvers well, and Pyromancers? Maybe uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Vendillion Click. Oh, here we go. Here's a Delver deck. In the playoff, there's 16th place is a Delver deck. Four Delver, four Eidolon <laughs> nice. of the Great Revel. Two Scab Clan Berserker, three True Name Nemesis. It's basically a Xerox deck. It's got even two that's days. A, as that's main a pretty deck. unique. Jesus. That's a pretty unique animal in the, the larger vintage context. I wouldn't draw too many conclusions from that. But I, when I guess what I'm getting at is more along the lines of the your strategy versus tactics. Right? Is it? Are you talking about a deck that's trying to play this on one against outcome and then hold up? counterspell and then just play it like creatures as they come right uh, maybe you play a delver on two maybe yes. you play a pyromancer yeah. on two but having a greater density of creatures such as you're reliably putting pressure on while protecting this card and or any outcome right is that what you're getting at yeah i think that's yes. reasonable but i have to clearly examine how that deck is constructed to fight the whole metagame right i'm not saying it's not valuable i'm just saying if that's your plan, then you kind of has to be your plan in multiple matchups or, or almost matchups, which is totally reasonable. Don't get me wrong. Aggro control and Xerox exist for a reason. But modern Xerox decks don't, in, for, for the last couple of years, haven't been structured on that Delver premise. They haven't been structured on the, I'm going to play this threat and protect it and stop you from winning kind of plan. 
they've gone the way of I have four or five creatures in my deck and I'm just the control deck that's going to eventually snapcast or bolt you out, you know, which is a different animal. Those kind, that kind of build, that kind of four or five creature build that was popular for so many years, I don't think can abuse this, even even though it's so great against outcome. I feel like you're setting yourself up for, I think it's a trap. Yeah, I think you're right. right. Let's not focus on that because that's not really, this is a big, a bigger card than that particular, um, matchup. So, so I, the answer to your question, the originally asked though was, would you play this main deck? I think the answer is yes. Um, now obviously we already said it's great in, in White Eldrazi and I think good in humans. Is it, where else might main it deck? be good enough? Are you asking specifically about main deck? I yeah. think survival. Wow. Interesting. Right. Because survival also, I mean, yeah, I mean, multiple c- cards is going to play our creatures. Um, interesting. Wow. So, I mean, survival like, was, wow. it was, was never That's trying to play more than one That's non-creature really spell a turn anyway, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it literally wants to play two spells, which are both creatures <laughs> right. to trigger Vengevine. Yeah. Wow. And it lets you, and it makes, it makes That's certain hands, terrifying, actually. certain hands that were already great for survival, even better. Like you can keep a two land survival hand, which would normally be real sketchy. If you, if your first turn is this, if your turn one deafening silence, turn two survival, that makes that hand far more keepable. And now depending on the matchup, your opponent has to answer both those things, maybe, or they might lose, right? Like against Jess guy, that's a super yeah. frustrating hand to fight. Because you you really don't. I mean, wow. if you're just guy, this this deafening silence doesn't totally beat you, but it really hampers you. And if you have to fight through that and answer a survival plus whatever creature follow ups they've got, that's super tough. And obviously, that hand is strong against uh, PO because they have to answer the deafening silence. And then if your survival stays online, you can get oof next turn, and they have to answer that too. The fact that this is com- almost completely dead against shops, though, is a question mark. I'm not. I actually haven't studied or talked about how modern survival is against shops game one so i don't know if this said like making your deck that so much worse that you can't even win that matchup but still it's worth considering that's actually <laughs> terrifying to me i hear you seriously like this it can make certain survival draws just impossible to manage from the, the standpoint of a uh, blue based deck <laughs> oh yeah. and you know what this unlike many many cards before it is actually kind of disruptive to dredge because you can't chain like therapy into dread return and then you can't like right. therapy and force back on your turn. Oh, you can't even therapy twice. This actually, this can actually indirectly protect your dredge hate because you, you play this. Let's say you're on the play. You just go land deafening silence. They go bizarro. You go untap, play a second mana source, uh, pass the turn. And they're like dredge. And on your upkeep, they dredge again and you rav trap them. They can't play any more spells that turn, even if they force your rav trap. They can't subsequently therapy you that turn they can't subsequently dread return right yeah yeah it's not totally dead against dredge i mean it's certertainly not uh, its yeah it's, strength, it's not maximized but, but i think it's actually going to be better than you think i mean it doesn't stop them from casting uh, that's true that, or that's absolutely true one. but it's it's not dead i think you could construct let's put it this way you can construct a plan against dredge that involves keeping this in that's a, maybe a better way to say it it really supports creature-based disruption against dredge too it really makes containment priest much better right because that's it because then mm-hmm. they can't protect their contagion on it and similar spell-based uh, removal for creatures yeah i don't i'm gonna have a, a bear of a time predicting the quantity of this card <laughs> but it seems like it's pretty clear that it's main deckable in in decks that are trying to aggressively disrupt you and win with creatures so that's survival in white eldrazi it seems like it's so good against PO that it's uh, 
sideboard card in in Jeskai. At least it's it's worth considering as a sideboard card in Jeskai. Any Jeskai deck that is thinking about, well, I still like Stony Silence better for that matchup. But certain kinds of Jeskai or white adjacent control decks are definitely should be considering this. And already that's a that's a pretty significant swath of the metagame at the moment. White Eldrazi, which hadn't been a thing for a while, just suddenly did well in the last challenge, right? It was it top right. four or top two? I forget. S- it split. Sp- uh, Rich Shea and, and Yama Killer playing that's White Eldrazi split the finals. There you go. They didn't actually play it out. So that's yeah. a heck of a showing for White Eldrazi, a deck that's obviously proved its worth in the at the moment. And while it's not a very common deck at the moment, like it's the the last several appearances have just been in leagues before that. This card, what what I can't here's what I think. I think this card could be in the mode of gra- of a graph digger's cage, kind of like a deep, um, kind of format defining disruptive card because it's so good against mm-hmm. a certain class of decks. Both the je- both the Xerox and the PO decks are completely hampered by this card, like completely. Like if a survival plays it against them, the survival ha- in resolves it. The survival deck has to be a favorite unless they can immediately remove it. It's just so hard to develop it's, it, with this yeah, in play. Yeah, you just can't be a Xerox deck in the way that your deck is designed to be with this in play. No. And what if, and if Survival then plays an Arayo? Like, does Survival up Wait, Arayo? Arayo is... No, Arayo doesn't work with this card. Well, how well, are you going right? to flip an Arayo with Deathwing Silence in play? Are you going to play four creatures in a turn? Creatures? Or three creatures in a mox? Yeah, I mean, you can try and flip it first, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I agree that a flipped Arayo... Um, with the deafening silence is is pretty much game over. But I just think that I mean they play two. You could get the third, the third one in the mox. Yeah, I not that hard with survival. I, I think that's unlikely. The chain survivals. All you need is three. All you need is three. Literally three green mana. Rootwalla, Rootwalla, Hollow One, uh, Mox. I get you. I get you. I think I would rather have just survived for a Vengevine and won that game rather than <laughs> anyway. Yeah, fair. I mean the the point though is I'd probably okay. run a Singleton Araya that's worth, in that's this survival time. target. Yeah, so I think that multiple strong archetypes are going to be playing this, either main or side. I I would be I would expect to see it in survival. I expect to see White Eldrazi. I expect that this makes White Eldrazi a better position in the metagame, right? Because especially if Jeskai and yeah. Bug are are dueling for the top spot at the moment, this this is really pretty good against both of them. It is awkward to cast in White Eldrazi because they you can't cast off Cavern or Souls, so it leaves mm-hmm. no not I a agree lot with of you, land. But we're in the London and the you know, era. And yes, yeah. that is totally a factor, yeah. but I don't think that's a, a dissuading factor for playing the card. How are we going to? Wow. This card really, this card really upends like the way in which I think about the decks that defend its <laughs> championship. It really does. This is the last set before this card, and then the you know this card really more than the other card disru- upends what I, the way I think because it's it so significantly shifts the positionality of some of these decks. Like to me. Survival is just a big dog to PO, but this totally changes that if Survival uses this. Totally. Agree. Um, and this also strengthens Survival against Jeskai. So we'll see if Survival adopts this. I think I'm not a person who's inclined to play Survival. I, I just, it's never works for me <laughs> in the way that I want it to, but a lot of people like it and I imagine they've got to try this. I mean, it's so good in Survival. It's so good. It's crazy good. Um, wow. It also sets up some really nice plays for the Survival player where they bait a creature that they, they think their opponent must consider must counter, and then they land the better one. That's that's going to be yeah. really tough Agreed. and frustrating for players. My real question, my real question is: I think survival and Thalia deck based decks are are shoe in for this. What 
do you, do you think this is Where are else? you going to see this in a Jeskai sideboard in your eyes? No. No, but you could imagine it in a blue-white Stoneforge or Landstill sideboard. I mean, didn't Landstill made top eight last year? You could imagine that. I mean, it's basically like moat for PO. You know? <laughs> moat for PO. <laughs> it's like, That's funny. It's, it aside is, from it, yeah, it aside is. from I mean, Landstill's surprising top eight last year, the last top eight according to our, our criteria um, before that was well, there was there was one in October of last year, and then before that, August. Like it has it hasn't been put up one top eight since champs last year. One top eight since champs. <laughs> so, despite the fact that I agree with yeah. you in, in theory. Uh, it's a very, very vanishingly small part of our math. So Elliot Burke's um, list from the top eight last year, Sideboard had one Arcane well, Laboratory. Go. Pretty easy. Yeah. yeah. He had one Moat, one Arcane Laboratory. And this is just, I mean, yep. you would just up the number of that, right? I mean, it would be Oh, yeah, that absolutely. Good. So wow. I agree with Crazy. all of this. I think that this card, does this do anything? Is there a new, well, I guess there's nothing new under the sun, really, but Stoneforge, you gave as an example. When's the last time Stoneforge made a top eight? I can't think while. of one. I, probably 2017. There was a lot in the top eights in 2017, though. So there was one in 2018 of of July of 2018, one in May of 2018, and then you're right, 2017 was the, before that. So there hasn't been one in the last year and a half. Um, so I, I mean, don't. It's, it's great with that because you play Stoneforge, right, and then you can still protect it, and then next turn. Um, Acti- you can activate. It's it's so. great with the card Stoneforge Mystic. I don't think it's any good with the rest of that deck. I think the rest of that deck is not creatures, right? Stoneforge is frequently yeah, the only creature in a Stoneforge all you need, deck. All you need are instants and counter magic, and then you're good. So uh, Yeah, but are you playing Preordain? Probably not. <laughs> well, okay. If you're not playing Preordain, then I don't like that deck in the format right now. Deafening Silence or Fair no. You know? Like... I think I agree with you in principle. I just think the where you end up there is the deck that's not good enough to play at the moment. Well, this card gives us a lot to think about. It's hard to, you know, I think we've kind of gone round and about. Yeah, tried but to figure out where to we're, land. We're talking about how good it is, but I, every every road I go down says it's not going to be played in that deck, right? So what <laughs> I'm getting is it's going to be played in Survival and Thalia decks and Landstill. Those three decks combined made 10 top eights in the last quarter. Those three. Yeah, decks. that sounds about right to me. I was gonna say this is a five to ten card. That's my range. I think it's like you know, so like we we've got these ranges, right? Like one to four. Like yeah. one to two is like extremely marginal. Three to four we think is more than marginal. And then once we get over four, those are cards that we think like these are serious like playables. Yeah, in right? one in one archetype and, maybe in in single digit numbers. Yeah. No, no. I mean it. I mean if I'm saying nine, I'm thinking like maybe two different decks, yeah. or it's like really mainline in one archetype. Right, like Hogak right? ended up being. Yeah. Exactly. Um so I think this is still a single I think this is probably still a single digit card. I mean I could see extending the range into the low low double digits. Yeah. But if, I think this is a I think this is above this is I think this is above one to two. So it could be in the three to four range, but I I'm I'm willing to go into the upper single digits. If this card gives a significant boost to the positioning of White Eldrazi and you double or triple that White Eldrazi number yeah, then yeah. you're up into the the ten to fifteen range, which the, is what it feels thing, like. How good this is the way we're the way we're yes. talking about it, but in practice, it's going to take a, a significant increase in the success of one of these key decks to so, re- realize so that. So here's the thing: you're again. Th- this is like the, the the conversation we just had about Modern Horizons, <laughs> right? The way in which I approached my estimations were not just based on like where is this, which deck is this going to show up. They were also based on like generalized assessments of like how this 
cleaves the format. Yeah. Right. How's and so that's part of my um part of my prediction has a built in element of that. Right. I'm not I don't want to just restrict it to these like two or three archetypes. I think there's another factor that I'm gonna layer on top of that mm-hmm. that gives it that boosts it up for me. I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go the Hogak number. I'm gonna say nine. Interesting. I'm gonna stay on nine. I think I, I would not be surprised if it's more than that, but I'm I wanna really I really want to emphasize I think this is a really good card in vintage. And I have faith that this will show up. I mean, here's the thing for me. This is really what it all comes down to, Kevin. This is one mana. <laughs> yeah. This is one freaking mana. You can this is the mana this this is the same mana cost as a pyroblast or a duress. Like that cannot be over you know, stressed enough. That cannot be stressed enough. Mm-hmm. This like one mana this is there aren't a lot of one mana plays in vintage. There just aren't. Like you know, there's Pyroblast, Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, uh uh Sensei's Divining Top. You don't get a lot of great unrestricted cards. This is a very disruptive one mana spell. So hard, I, hard I think to argue that with that. Really yeah. puts it, and also I mean, Ether Sworn Candidus, if it wasn't an artifact, it wasn't would see a lot more play. Like yeah. I remember it's Ether Sworn Candidus being so good when it came out. So good. The problem with it is that, like, it's not, it's picked off by literally everything, just about, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's picked off by, uh, Ancient Grudge, Lightning Bolt, Swords to Plowshares, Fragmentize, you know, anything that can pick off something, it can pick it off. Assassin's Trophy, Abrupt Decay, that's not so with this. This card is an immensely disruptive force. And I, I just have faith that, that cards like that can be used for tempo value in this format. Tempo is power. Uh, you know, you could even just, I mean, just steal games, even against Workshop Aggro. Like, Workshop Aggro deck, again, keeps a Mox, Soul Ring, Mana Crypt hand, and they think they're gonna go off, and suddenly they can't play spells until turn three. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know? So, I, I just, I have a lot of faith in this card. Uh, white is no longer, it's like Nadir. It's, uh, it's, um, a, a heavily played color. Survival has, can play white easily, splash white. If I'm survival, I'm not even playing Stony Silence anymore. I'm just playing this card. And you will not lose to DPS. You will not lose to PO. If you can resolve and stick this, you just won't. Yeah. And it's not like you need to win 10 turns later. You play this and you can win next turn or the turn after, right? Turn three. It's not unrealistic. Well, turn one, this turn two, survival, turn three, win. Absolutely. It's not. So Stony Silence is a good point of comparison. It's not played in the main these days. But that's because it's slow and hard to mm-hmm. play. This is not. Like, you gotta have a mox. Like, when the survival deck is so parsimonious when it comes to every card in its hand, right? It wants to be able to do maximum efficiency at everything. It wants to be able to activate Bazaar, <laughs> discard a Vengevine, discard a Rootwalla, play a Hollow One, it, right? It, it, like, if it could do everything it wants to do and play one mana to cast this and get essentially the effect of a Stony Silence, if not better, because then, like, the Xerox deck is also shut down. Survival is going to have, I mean, be very happy. Well, I, I'm not here to argue that point. I agree that this will be played in Survival. Survival is also, uh, you know, like, it's like it's a, they put up six top eights in the last, um, you know, last quarter. Uh, yeah, what, but it's, point, hot, it's, it's very uh, hot and cold. Yeah, and by the way, DPS got third place in the Vintage Playoff this week. Yeah, understood. What I'm trying to get at is where's the, where's the oxygen coming from? to produce the higher like the slightly elevated numbers because i don't think i don't think 100 percent of survival thalia and landstill all necessarily play this card 
You, you know where that's, but that's my point. My point is that you're asking me an unknowable question and I'm saying, I'm, I'm not going to disaggregate. I see. Where force of negation is going to go in every deck. I'm just not going to do that at this point. Like this card is so powerful <laughs> in terms of what it does in the format, how this card fundamentally interacts with the structure of the format that I believe it's going to see play above and beyond where I can pinpoint at this moment. Gotcha. I mean, if you want me to pinpoint some places, okay, this can go into lands. Lands has always played wanted this kind. Uh, uh, remember, I don't remember in Legacy, but when we played lands, like one of the things you wanted to do in the sideboard was put like thorn effects. Yeah, sphere you know, like yeah. sphere. This is just as good. Like if you want, if you are playing lands, right? Number one, you're playing lands, so you've got four savannas, right, <laughs> and mox diamonds. <laughs> so you can. I'm looking at the fifth place, the fourth place lands deck from the vintage playoff. This deck has three three mox diamonds. Four savannas, four riftstone portals, Kevin, and a forbidden orchard. Right, right. This deck can play. This deck can sideboard four of these. Hell, it could split it two and two. You were asking me earlier. You were talking about force of negation. Isn't it unusual to see decks split these kinds of cards? Not when it comes to this kind of disruptive effect. I mean, Rich Shea complains about um, effects that have that are powerful in turn one. This is like a. This could be as annoying as a chalice of the void. Right. I mean, I won the die roll. I get to play it on turn one, and your opponent is sitting with three Moxen in their hand. That's just super frustrating. This card can do that. None of the other versions of this could do that. Ether Sworn Canadas couldn't do that, and Rule of Law and Arcane Laboratory were too slow to do that reliably. This card can do that. Well, I take your point. I am. I mean, this. I'm fairly skeptical. Had, I'm fairly skeptical about a deck that has zero creatures in it playing this card. This lands deck. But the, the lands deck doesn't play, it doesn't, all it does is play fast pawn and crucible. It doesn't need to play creatures. It doesn't even need to play spells. What? It's a spellless deck. The, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, hold on. I mean, it's, what's your point that you, by playing this card on lands. one, then you're preventing yourself from going off until turn three at the earliest. Oh, and by the way, this lands deck had two enlightened tutors main deck. I mean, I get you. By I, the way, I don't actually yeah. think this card is that good in that lands deck. No, what I'm saying is that so this lands deck actually has four sphere resistance main deck. What if it just played four of these main deck? Yeah, you're hurting yourself more than your opponent. That's my point. It's counterproductive to play this card in a deck with zero creatures. You've just you've just arcane labbed yeah. yourself. But you're how does this you, deck win? No, no, well, I mean, I watched it win. It basically goes turn one fast bond mm-hmm. and plays a bunch of stuff, almost all lands. And what it does is it plays like, for example, I saw it go turn one fast bond, bizarre Baghdad, bizarre Baghdad. Activate, activate. Uh, actually, what it, one of the games I watched against Rache <laughs> online, he literally went turn one fast. All this is what he did. He goes land, fast bond, Misha's workshop, crucible of worlds, and then he yeah. just played. He played bazaar in a wasteland and stripped his bazaar, replayed the bazaar like ten times until he got all the combo parts in his graveyard. He didn't play a single spell after crucible. Well, it was just it was just uh, bazaar until he found the combo pieces, meaning dark depths and. Um, and thespian stage and then win like these decks don't actually need to play more than two spells per game at all life right from the loam you literally have to play one spell you just life from the loam the 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 combo pieces and play them after you've uh after you played two spells per like this deck these deck deck can consistently win undisrupted with just two spells playing two spells the entire game i think it's a perfect candidate for this card well all right i guess i'll take your word for it oath of druids by the way so you're saying you expect to see this this version of Fastbound no. Crucible deck playing this card? No. 
what I what I'm saying is you're asking a question. You're saying where is this going to show up besides White Eldrazi humans, Athalia decks, and um, like Landstill Cyborg. Yeah. And I'm saying I don't know, but <laughs> right. if you want me to speculate and give you some ideas, here's another possibility. So I, I'm not going to like I'm not taking my prediction is not based on I think it's going to show up in one Landstill deck. Three wide Eldrazi. That's not the you see. I'm saying that's not the approach I'm taking. I'm saying this card is powerful. It's going to be a sideboard card. It's going to be a main deck card. You know, I think nine is too low because this is not just a main deck. I think this is a main deckable card, but I think it's going to be more in sideboards. And um, I mean, look, I would agree. It only takes one copy in a sideboard for you know for this to actually count as a top eight appearance. Um, I just think it's immensely powerful. Yeah. So I, I do think I do think though this could go in these lands decks. And these lands decks, literally, you want you don't even need a lot of life from the loam. You find the first life from the loam, and all you have to do is keep playing that until they can't counter it anymore. You know what I mean? And and you win. And at some point, I mean, the only spells you have to resolve are fast bond and or crucible of worlds. You know, to actually win the game, <laughs> which is what they do. And except he played sphere of resistance, which does you know did almost nothing against rich. Because Rich was playing plenty of mana and Jeskai, I frankly think this would have been like deafening silence if he had had that instead of Sphere would have been much more disruptive about against Rich. Interesting, because Rich Rich wouldn't have been able to go you know play all the multiple things, let alone use Dreadhorde Arcanus the way he used it. Well, so you're sticking with nine then? Yeah, I think it's a safe bet. Okay, I'm going to take the under. I, uh, I think it's in the middle of my range. Like I wouldn't be surprised if this like a 16 card. I also wouldn't be surprised if it was like a five card. I just don't see this going under five. When you add up the possibilities for sideboard, there's just no way. Yeah. Well, your instincts are strong on this one. I am skeptical about the the practicalities of where it goes, but I do agree in principle that this is a very powerful card. I am racking my brain for who's going to splash this thing in their sideboard, and I'm, I'm not following you on the lands example, but I will grant that I don't have pure foresight here, so I'm not exactly sure. Uh, like a, I don't know, a blue-red Delver deck that just how touches do, white for this and, and mentor or something, you know. But how does this not show up in survival? I mean, you must think survival is just like not part of this metagame right now. I mean, I'm accounting for that. Like I said, survival put up six top eights in the last quarter, and I and it's Surv- it's a hot and so, cold deck. If a hundred percent of the survival, if, yeah, if a hundred percent of the survival decks make it, then there's there's six. But it survival could put yes. up two top eights in the next quarter, or it could put up twenty. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what to expect. Maybe twenty is too much, but. My, but so if we get a hundred percent adoption and the pattern stays exactly the same, then nine is a very strong prediction. It really is. It matches the data that we have. You're you're describing uh the you're the, the the thoughts that you're describing describe an environment where we're going to have these these ten decks that we've outlined plus another population of decks. But then you're giving me the number nine. So to hear your your vehemence, I would I would think you're you're arguing for a number like twenty, <laughs> which I know you're not. Yes. But then you're giving me an answer that just kind of matches the numbers that we have. Well, so I'm well, kind of stymied. So what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that I think this is a really good vintage card. Yeah. It, it to me, it's not more. It's more than a playable. Agree. I think this could become a staple. Agree. And not only that, I think it could be. Yeah. And so what? What I think is what I'm trying to say. So Matt Hazard won the vintage challenge at the beginning of the of the month, right? Yeah. With with. Belcher. Mm-hmm. Like, this card just completely destroys it in one card at one mana. <laughs> That's what you're looking for, right? I mean, not, I'm not saying it's just, you know, just Belcher. Is, you know, there's a lot, not like a lot of Belcher. But but let me just say a couple things. So, just in the last two weeks, there have been two White Eldrazi decks in the top eight. Two. 
in the last two weeks alone. Yep. Uh, do you not think that there's going to be at least one of these in the White Eldrazi sideboards going forward? At least one? Uh, I am accounting for that in my okay. calculations. In the last two weeks, in the last two weeks, there have been two survivals in the top eights. Two. In the last two weeks alone, right? And they all had, they all ran white. Yeah. They could be running this in the sideboard Look, as well. You're not gonna, you're not gonna counteract my position by, by using the two decks that I'm using to base my opinion on. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I'm estimating based on the decks we know of, and I think nine is the, is about the sweet spot. But, but you are arguing as that, as though there's going to be an additional population that is not accounted yes. for by that method. And I'm right. saying, I don't see it. That's what I'm saying. And even when I'm looking hard, hold on, hold I don't on. see where it Kevin, even could be. That's my point. But there's something you're missing. Okay. What you're missing is that you are looking at actually what appeared in top eights. Mm-hmm. But the format changed on 831. Uh-huh. The that's, no, that's a good point. Yes. Yes. The last three challenges, two challenges in playoff, are a different metagame. See, and now, they have, that's, a, that's and, a new point. Okay. But I thought you, that's, the, I didn't realize that you weren't accounting for it until you made your last point. Well, okay. And that's what, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I thought you were like extrapolating from the last three, not, you were actually looking at the metagame that was like 60% bug <laughs> in like Mystic Forge combo, when of course there was very little survival then. But in the last three weeks, there have been a clip of one survival per top eight, which means that if you extrapolate that out, that's four, what, four, four and a quarter survival per month. That's, that's, what is that? 14 survivals per quarter. Yeah. And then, so that, that's a completely different set of, Okay. Maths. <laughs> okay. No. See now. Now you're talking my language. The, the, the way you made it sound was that there were new decks that weren't in our radar that we're going to be doing. Now you're talking about the the ratio of of decks we know about would increase. And there I can follow you absolutely. If you're yeah. if you're proposing that that just guy plus survival makes up twelve to twenty percent of the metagame, you know, at rounded numbers. 15 to 20 percent of the metagame maybe for the next quarter well then then you might be on to something at which in which case the the nine you predicted is too low right because nine is based on the old baseline i think i'm making a conservative estimate i was thinking in my head 11 12 but i i I just don't want to overshoot i'd rather undershoot than overshoot and that's i think why i'm conservative on like you know not going 40 on force of negation (laughs) i mean force of vigor rather i mean that i mean i i'd rather i'd rather if I'm saying a high single digits, this card's going to see a, a decent, a good amount of play. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm telling the audience. In my opinion, this card is going to see a good amount of play. And I'm also saying to listeners out there, if you are a survival player, if you are a White Eldrazi player, if you are a Lance player, give this a shot. I think it's going to be damn good against Jeskai. I think it's going to be obviously fantastic against the PO, Belcher, DPS decks. I, I really think the metagame is well positioned for this. I think it's also just amazing as a tempo play. I think it's going to really gum up. I think I think you're going to get a lot of frustrated players who, oh my god, my opponent played Deafening Silence on turn one, and I had Lotus Mentor Land, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I think we're. Gonna, I mean, that's going to be frustrating for those players. Let's so let's do a little bit of math. If if you're theorizing, and I'm not saying you're putting putting these words in your mouth, but I'm saying if there were two decks that had this in the mainer side in every top eight over the next time period, the next quarter. That's thirty copies, only counting vintage, vintage challenges. Yeah, I I don't think it's crazy to think that there'll be one. You know what? Okay, I'm gonna put my money where my mouth is. I think this is gonna average a clip of one deck per top eight in let's say months two and three. So for vintage challenges, so that's, I'm gonna that go puts way up. You at, that puts you above 24. ten as a baseline. That's like ten to twenty. Yeah, that puts me. That puts me. So let me see. 
I mean, obviously, it depends on how many actual weekend we uh, Saturdays there are per month. Well, there's four, there's four point three challenges a month, just on average. Four point yes. three yeah. times one deck per so, times so that, two that months. Me, that's that eight point six. That's, yeah, yeah. That's and then plus paper. I was saying, that's about right. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it up. I'll take it to. Um, I'll take it to eleven. No, it's got to be more than that. <laughs> it it's does have to be, be more than that. I'm I'm yeah. I'm thinking of twelve. I'm shooting for twelve myself. You want to you want to take the over? Well, I mean that you're you're then assuming that, that I mean obviously we don't have a lot of data. We have three weekends, mm-hmm. and we see we've seen in both in all three weekends we've seen a survival, and two of the three weekends we've seen a white Eldrazi, right? Mm-hmm. And we've also seen a lands. So I mean those decks could all have that. And probably would. There's a good chance they would, right? So that's actually we don't know. My, we don't know that extrapolate forward. My, num- have, my number is no- too low. If there's one and a half decks that play this per challenge for the next three months, that's that's 19 copies. I'm going to go 19. Really? You're yeah. going to take the over? Well, yeah. Are, I mean, are you, think about this. Am I? But I'm I'm saying, Kevin. What I'm saying is my projections. We can't. We have a small sample size. No, I get we don't it. know that survival is going to be a top eight every week. No, I we just it. don't know that. I mean, I'm accounting for the fact that it's the combination of survival and white Eldrazi, which I think white Eldrazi is on the on the rise, and this card only contributes to that. And I do think there's a little bit of unknown. I I genuinely can't say where it is, but I have a feeling there's a deck outside of survival yes. Thalia land still that will have this in the sideboard. And I think lands. I do think lands. Yeah. I think lands is ex- is a is a burgeoning archetype, mm-hmm. and this card is great in lands. I mean, it doesn't slow lands down. I got lands you. can literally every like literally lands can go fast bond anything it wants, and then the last card it plays for the turn, if it has to pass the turn, can be this card. I got you. So um, I'm going to go 19. What do you think? Wow. My method is just 1.5 per top eight. I, I understand. I understand. I don't think it's going to be quite that clip. I think what we're going to see. Is we're going to see a slow start, and then it's. I think it's going to be like Arcanist. It's going to be absent the first month. I think it's going to explode right before explode, but I think it's going to rise right around and maybe at the Vintage Championship, maybe after the Vintage Championship, depending on how that plays out. And then the rest of the month, the rest of the year, it's going to see a lot of play. So I don't think it's just a straight line am- amortization. I think it's got to be. It's mm-hmm. there's, like th- this card is going to have some curves to it, sure. right? It's going to. That's, that's understandable. So I'm going to go – the other thing is, I mean, I think what you're reacting to is just when it comes to these really high-impact cards, we have uh, – we've under-hit, but we've been accurate in predicting this see a lot of play. And I think you, you're making a good-faith attempt here not to make that error. I am. Right? But I'm yeah, – I'm, So I think I'm, – I don't I mean, want I'm you to overreact in the other- – Yeah, I'm very confident in the decks I think it'll see play in, and I'm persuaded a bit by your – prediction that the metagame is shifting and so the recent history numbers that i was starting with were not well just the I right mean, baseline it's just it's just a fact that in august the metagame was like 56 55 no, whatever I'm it was 50 percent bug yeah so th- it just squeezed out everything else right yep. i mean bug just there's <laughs> there was like what one survival in august um so you have to go back i mean to get a comparable even close to a comp it's it's really hard to do that right you have to go back way back agreed um well, I mean, after I spent the last, I don't know, what, 20 minutes talking this card up, and then you overshot me, I'm a little frustrated <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't want to be um, outbid by you on this card. That's fine. Um, I understand. I mean, I, we've got a nice intersection here of, of mathematics and intuition, so <laughs> I don't have a problem with you me, taking me over me, on this. Let me see. I'm, I'm obviously um, not as uh, you know hip to this card as you are. 
that's that's why I was confused by how our numbers were lining up because you were talking so much more in favor of this card than I was this whole time, but I was coming up with the same number as you. This to me is the <laughs> card of the set. I mean, I think that the obviously the potential for the the monkey's paw is really interesting, <laughs> but this is the def- this to me is the defining card of the set, and I think sure. this card could is the potential to just kind of join Force of Vigor and Collector's Oof is like really enduring and annoying cards in this format <laughs> and it does it, it does a lot of good things that i think are i mean if you think a card that's super annoying that's usually a card that's super powerful yeah um, agree. and and also i like cards that that really reward you for being on the play they can really punish because in a, in a best two of three match you can steal a game that way like this card just has the potential to just win a game on turn one yep. by doing by virtue of nothing else than just that <laughs> even in matchups that it's not even targeted at exactly yep. just because this is because the chalice of void effect it's even more annoying than chalice in some way yep because they can't even play the things <laughs> um and it expands beyond moxen right agreed it's like you can't even play like soul ring sensei's divining top yeah <laughs> so obnoxious when you say it it's so annoying um agreed and if you choose to play your mox for the turn then you're cut off of force of will Jesus. Yeah, this um, card actually plays really well with Ancestral Recall, right? You just go, Deafening Silence, go. You've got Ancestral in your hand. You just wait for them to play something. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Granted, your whole um, deck can't be that way, but anyway, you see my uh, point. It, it really makes me wish now that we I could see this against Mystic Forge. But <laughs> that's, I mean, because this obviously would take a while for that adaption to occur. Yeah. But, I mean, if you're playing against Mystic Forge deck, you just play this on turn one, and they're that that whole entire Karn construct is completely shut down. You cannot eat, if you get this down on turn one, the Karn deck has no ability to do anything. <laughs> it can, I'm serious because the well, Karn deck can't play Karn off a shop. Look, I'm with you. You don't have to convince yeah. me of that. The, no, <laughs> I mean it's, I'm just it's, saying it's, like it's, the whole idea of like shop Grim Monolith Voltaiki yep. is a joke with this card. And a deck with like six creatures in it. Yeah, this card's pretty <laughs> think, good against it. I think your number if. The the methodology I was using was like my you know like I I I'm, I want to do a high single digit because I want to emphasize I think it's going to see a lot of play I think your straight line amortization is actually a very accurate prediction I think nineteen is about right so just for the sake of contrast I will go eleven um, okay but when I get crushed by you on this <laughs> I'm gonna say that. Your initial vote was like very low. <laughs> hey, the initial vote doesn't count in the end. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> All right. So good, good discussion. I'll, I'll let though. you have this. Yeah, I think we, yeah. we lingered a little too long, maybe on our own personal methodologies on this thing. But the simple truth is, this is obviously the best card in the set for Vintage. I think so. All right, let's move on. Only a few more. Stone Coil Serpent costs X. <laughs> it is an artifact creature snake. It's a zero zero. It has reach and trample and protection from multicolored and it enters the battlefield with x plus one plus one counters on it so you tap mishra's workshop you put three mana into this thing <laughs> it is a three three with reach and trample and protection from dak faden protection from yes uh death right shaman protection from assassin's trophy protection from Pretty leovold cool. uh what else protection from lavinia or teferi time raveler uh what else what am i missing that was a pretty good encapsulation. I'm impressed. So the the headline here is that this is a, an artifact creature that's undackable. Your opponent cannot gain control of this with Dak Faden. It also scales very well with uh, scales uh, very well with Mishra's workshop and all the mana production of the workshop decks. Right, you get rewarded for having a double workshop draw and make this a six six that kind of thing. And um, 
it's just generally good reach and trample reach isn't that hot and vintage but trample's nice you get rewarded for going large here you can't chump effectively with a uh, snapcaster mage for example how good does a vanilla or pseudo vanilla creature have to be for workshop aggro to play it when it has protection from basically assassin's trophy and dac fade <laughs> um, it also has almost it, it kind of has protection from lightning bolt too <laughs> because it easily yeah. scales out the range of lightning bolt this is pretty frightening turn one workshop inspector go turn two yeah. ancient tomb play this for six like that's frightening yeah wow it's been a while I since mean, anyone has played anything other than worm so, coil engine in shops just because it was big and nasty though i've seen a lot of um what's the uh the 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 Precursor Golem. I've seen a lot of Precursor Golem recently. Have you? Okay. Um, just yeah, in, in, in modern workshop aggro? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's a trend or just like an initial post-restriction flurry. And we're talking out um, of the sideboard or no? No, both. Okay. So, I mean, obviously this doesn't get you to like Traxos power, right? But well, the Resilience Sure build- it does. Traxos is 7-7 with an Inspector. You can play this on a 6-6 on turn 2. And it's better than yeah. Traxos. It doesn't have the... In the yeah. sense that it doesn't require extra help. Yeah, Precursor Golem put up one main deck copy in September and two more in That's July. Yeah, so so yeah. three in the main for Precursor in the last quarter. And then out of the side, another... Wow, a lot. One, two, three, you, four. You know what? Yeah. You know where this card is also Lots of copies of Precursor Golem in the sideboard. You're right. So this card is all may also be really good in the mirror because because i could be talking out of turn here but it strikes me that one of the things in the shop mirror is now obviously in, in the kind of rich montolio 2000 what was it 17 top eight mm-hmm. this is not very good but in a in a in a because your everything is so low well but in a, in a on, game where this is real low too like if you have an inspector well, this is a one mana two two yeah but what i was trying to say is like in in a game in a game where like one shop player has an asymmetrically large amount of mana, mm-hmm. like two shops in academy. This ki- this has trample. That's the thing. Yeah. So at that point, this this could just be game over. That's a good point. And this obviously plays well. The trample means this plays well with uh, overseer and ravager too. That's you know some right. of the traditional tricks. I think right. that this to your point just then. This is also really interesting for the workshop mirror due to the way it scales. Right. If you've got any of the traditional tricks, if you've got a Ravager, if you've got an Inspector, if you've got a, an yeah. Overseer, this synergizes you with all put, those. You could you play could this for none. You could put all onto it and protect yourself from Dak and then trample over and kill them. Well, yeah, and on top of that, if you've got an Inspector, you can just play this for zero. You can just go turn one, <laughs> yeah. Inspector, and play this as a 1-1. One, one. If you're planning to do to Overseer them or, or you know, or Ravager them. Now, I'm not sure that's but necessarily the right play, but the flexibility is strong. I guess that one of the things is that late game mana is really effective with Ballista. Ballista kind of fills that role, right? Because it scales. This, Naturally. If your opponent has a Ballista and you have this, who wins? Let's say the board is clear. And like you, like your opponent plays a 10-10 Ballista and you play a 10-10 this. Wait, who wins? 10-10's a bad example. You're probably dead from a Sorry. 10-10 Ballista. Yeah, so, you mean a 10-mana? So, so I mean, <laughs> yeah, 10-mana. So they have a 5-5 Ballista and you play this. And you have a 10-10 Serpent? Yeah. That's going to come down the to... The Serpent wins, probably. Well, I mean, in the abstract, the Serpent wins. Yeah. But I mean, it has everything to do with where the the race is and who's on the play. The yeah. the you know in the abstract, the serpent wins, but the ballista scales up better with something like Ravager, yeah, because it doubles its damage effectively. So and but then there's the blocking factor, right? The um the yes, ballista is really easy blocking. to block. I mean, comparatively easy to block. This you can't. 
Right. You can, but you can't suck up all the damage. Well, and also, this in, in mid-combat, this actually matches up really well against Ballista, because the trample means they can't just block and then shoot you, because then they're taking all the trample damage. So the trample is actually surprisingly effective in it's, the workshop It's one here. of the most important points here, yeah. actually, of this card. I, Protection from multicolored is nice. It still doesn't, it still isn't, you know, stop, doesn't stop shattering spree, it doesn't stop ancient grudge. Yeah. It feels like it should stop ancient grudge, it doesn't. I mean, it I, doesn't. I, I, I think one of the things you're getting at here is that protection from Dak Faden is great. It's also a little, it's it's possible to overstate how great it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, Dak Faden is played in vintage right now, don't get me wrong. It's in one of the stronger decks in Jeskai Dreadhorde, but rich's list you know from the playoff only had two decks in it like you're much more concerned about the the two plows and the snapcaster plow action and snapcaster bolt you know there's far more things that are monocolored that are going to interact with this thing than there are dak fadens in right in modern jeskai yeah so being dakless is nice like you can play it out there and you know it's not going to get dacked there's a there's a certain value in that it's not the end all though it still just gets shattering spreed like everything else does and there's the risk of you over investing in it for that reason if Ravager like was a restricted card, then this card I think would be much better. But Ravager does a lot of what this is trying to do. True. It it's like evasive, right? This is evasive. It's anti-removal. This is kind of built-in protection from certain kinds of removal. Yep. Or theft. Yep. Um, and it's big, just like Ravager. So I would um, say I think- this this most closely overlaps actually with Hangerback Walker in terms of its position in the deck and where the, where that card factors into multiple matchups you can't replace the go wide aspects combined with uh overseer which so that that's a, a, a big thing against it but the simple truth is is hangerback walker was the way you really i mean aside from ballista which the decks are always going to have it was the thing that you could ratchet up on in your deck construction that would give you a leg up in the mirror yeah and the other thing is um i mean hangerback obviously can scale over time mm-hmm. and then also can can feed all, be sucked up into the Ravager and then spit back out somewhere else. Yeah. Whereas this is less flexible in that regard. It, 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 you have to select what its power and toughness is. Yep. You can do other things to boost it, but it, it can't be added to like bullet, like wa- Hangerback Walker. Um, I don't think you can play this card in the main. It's too underpowered. What problem does this card solve? Because yeah. I don't see it solving any problem. I, it doesn't do anything that Chops doesn't already do. I was kind of about to go right there. I don't think you can play this in the main. It's just too underpowered. It's not as good as any of the other creatures that are being played right now, right? You wouldn't play... I guess you could cut one hanger back in the main, maybe, for the decks that have one hanger back. Yeah, and I was just... And I said... You were going exactly where I was going to go. I don't think you can main deck this card. It's just, it's too low power for the average matchup, right? It's a, I mean, it's got some good qualities, but it's a vanilla creature. And the deck's already great at producing vanilla creatures, right? On mass, and they get, are cheaper, and then they grow, to your point. So the only way I see this is really as a sideboard card. And modern shops, that is Ravager aggro decks, for the last, I don't know, three, four, five, six years, I don't know, don't sideboard anything for the deck decks. Right, they don't like. They have some incidental things that they can do. They can make some adjustments here or there, but they don't have anti Jeskai sideboard cards. Right, precursor golem is is some in some cases okay. Like it's better than something else you've got in the main. Maybe like a I don't know spyglass or whatever. So they do some swapping, but there's nothing they have in their sideboards that's for Jeskai. They're not going to replace something that's like a precursor golem with this. Precursor is just too valuable in the other matchups, in the shop mirror and other decks. So 
I just don't think this has a home. The the upside of protection for multicolor and some of the other things we've got aren't as good as some of the other upsides that they've got available already. Plus, there's just so much competition for cool things to do out of the workshop sideboard. We've reviewed so many cards in the last few years. I'm thinking all the way back to Joy was familiar and then the, the Skyship Weatherlight. Yeah. And there's just all these cool cards just, <laughs> that we're already yeah. aren't seeing play. The the the, vin- the the vintage workshop aggro archetype is so compressed to the mm-hmm. ground within the era of you know Steel Overseer and Inspector that it just doesn't it doesn't get a lot of you don't you don't really go big like that it just goes wide and over the top yep. and it has two new restricted cards in Karn and Mystic Forge putting pressure on that <laughs> like yeah yeah anyway I'm gonna go zero here wow we've been Saying all that, we've been I burned I too many times by saying, "Oh, this is probably a cool sideboard card." In the mission, it never, it never yeah, happens. It's like the Urza right. outcome; it just never happened. So, so what kind of workshop aggro card would see play? Obviously, one that's more efficient than an existing card, but does the same thing. Um, what are the problems workshop has to do with? Deal with number one: it needs more sphere effects. So, if there was another card that would be with, it would bottle, you know, bottle up mana mm-hmm. somehow or tax the opponent's mana, it would see play and, and cost basically three or less. It, it would see play. If it yep. existed, right? Or um, something that provided more card advantage in a compact package. And I mean, card advantage in a very broad sense. Mystic Forge obviously gets a ton of cards, but there's also the yeah. Walking Ballista, Hangerback Walker, Ravager kind of card advantage where you're you're able yeah. to be flexible and impact the board in a flexible, powerful way. Like a Frexian Revoker type well, card. Uh, yeah, but, but more like... Yeah, uh, yeah, that dovetails with your first point, but yes. Right. Yeah, basically every card so, that Shops plays these days is is designed to generate car- virtual or real card advantage and kill your opponent at the same time. That's why so many of the right. creatures are I'm, disruptive, etc. I'm looking at uh, a list from uh, the um, September 7th challenge that was 28th place, and it had two hangerback walkers mm-hmm. at a blast zone and <laughs> one Mystic Forge in there, so it's running the running the forge. Yeah, naturally. Um, I don't see Karn in here, but I guess that makes sense. Well, um, yeah, I mean, Karn is a judgment call, right? <laughs> because you can't yeah, abuse the sideboard effect. as much as you used to. Um, more recently, in the Vintage Playoff, on September 14th, there was... Thim uh, got a 12th place Workshop Aggro deck, and he played... Kevin, he played four Fleet Wheel Cruiser main deck. <laughs> nice. But it was otherwise, you know, Ravager, Inspector, Revoker, Overseer, Ballista. Um, sideboard, he had... I wonder if he had Karn main deck. He had... He had... Uh, he has Time Vault and Key in the sideboard, which is curious, because I don't see a Karn anywhere, but maybe he just wanted that as good measure. I don't know. Um, there was a 14th place shop aggro deck as well that had one Karn main deck, and it was basically looked the exact same. He had Oh, he had three Sorcerer Spyglass, so that kind of fits our what you were talking about, is a disruptive card, Kevin. Right. Right. Um, and then there was a 15th place, which was Workshop Aggro. Ah, this is interesting. This has Golos, Tireless Pilgrim, um, as, and as a one of. So there's score one for Golos, <laughs> yeah. we reviewed in M20, and two Traxos. But this this deck got 15th place. Otherwise, it looks like, again, Ravager Inspector. He has three Fleet Wheel Cruiser and one Sorcerer Spyglass main deck. And then that's it. So there were f- there were three Workshop Aggro decks, 12th, 14th, and 15th. Um, and one had Traxos. So that's not a top eight, but <laughs> the 70 some player qualification only. Yeah. event that's not bad well if your point that is that this serpent could potentially be seen in the same spot that a Traxos is i would say yeah. sure absolutely yeah it could be in that slot 
I mean, for, for five mana and an inspector in play, it's six, six and it with trample, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to go non-zero. Okay. Well, I don't know. That's the difference between the top eight. I'll just go one. Hell, I'll go one. <laughs> Someone's going to throw it in somewhere. So someone, one of the common themes of the creature bases in these workshop aggro decks is they are trying to minimize the effect of deck Faden. I think that might be. <laughs> a little bit outmoded by today's standards. I think some players might be attracted to some creature bases that are a little taking in, taking a little too much deck into account. But the simple truth is that's one of the reasons why Fe- Fleet Wheel Cruiser and Traxos are played is because your opponent doesn't profit very much from decking them and it doesn't wreck you the way it can with other monsters. So I think it's reasonable to say someone will try it. I just don't think it's that yeah, good. Yeah, fair enough. But it only takes one copy <laughs> in the top eight yep. to count. So. Yep. I have three months for that. All right, let's talk about Robber of the Rich. 1R, Creature, Human, Archer, Rogue. It's a 2-2 with Reach and Haste. Whenever Robber of the Rich attacks, if Defending Player has more cards in hand than you, exile the top card of their library. During any turn, you attacked with a Rogue, you may cast that card, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast that spell. This is some serious work for a Ophidian variant. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so you've got a two mana two two reach and haste. So it comes in swinging theoretically, assuming that's the right thing to do. Which a lot of vintage matchups it really kind of won't be. The triggered ability depends on you being attacking, so it triggers on attacking, not damaging, which is nice. But it also yes. depends on them having more cards in hand than you, right. which is an interesting condition and not one that we have to contend with very much in vintage. It definitely means that in certain matchups, it'll be dead in the water, right? Uh, even if you're on the draw in certain matchups, this card's just not pulling its weight anymore. So I really don't know like how to evaluate this. If it's going to trigger, it's very efficient. Like, landmarks this, go, get your trigger. And yeah. the simple truth is is that the the card advantage element of this means if, the, if you could cast a spell that turn, like it's free or it's a mox or something, you could cast it right away. You could cast it again in future turns, so it's not like many of the red Ophidian variants we've seen where if you don't cast it right, then you lose the opportunity, right? You can you can cast the card that you exiled on turn one on turn two if you manage to keep this creature around and attack with it again, which is nice. That's some nice upside. I like that variation yeah. on the Ophidian ability. But the simple truth is, is you also lose all your card advantage when they, go, when they bolt this. I mean, conceptually, you lose that advantage. I'm talking about on the first turn. So I don't know how to balance those things. I think on the play, this card's amazing. <laughs> landmarks yeah. this is a, a serious beating and your many of your opponents are gonna have to contend with that but it's also got a randomness element depending on your opponent and their deck the card you exile could be completely useless to you you know you go landmarks this and you exile a mistress workshop well okay i don't know i i think this is too high variance in my opinion even though it's pretty efficiently costed because if it's not working then this you got yourself a grizzly bear with haste which is unplayable in um i think you put it really eloquently I think that, that you, you've twice in your summation, you focused on how do you balance these things against each other. I think the, the fulcrum, there's a fulcrum, and on the one side you have, look, haste is something in the Fidian that we almost never get. Mm-hmm. So that's like incredibly enticing, right? It's like, hmm. Yeah, it rewards you the turn get, you play it. That's really nice. Yeah. And also the hand size thing, um, you know, presumably because you're playing a creature, hand size go down, goes down. So it's it's likely that the first time you use it, not a given, but it's likely that you'll get an activation. Mm-hmm. And the any mana of any color, I mean, it's basically unprecedented. I mean, for, for this Ophidian. kind of effect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we've, I mean, we've seen... You've like, seen Thala, some variants. Thala, Adele. Of, yeah. I mean, it's that's that's phenomenal um, that you can, you know, use any mana to to play the spell. Here's the here's the problem. All of that is balanced against the fact that reliable usage depends on having a smaller hand. Mm-hmm. That's just completely unacceptable. <laughs> there's there's no two two ways about it, right? It's just having to consistently deplete your hand rather than build it up in order to make advantage of this means that you can never use this in a winning position. And that that is a big problem for a Xerox type deck. Agreed. Um I don't know that this would have been seed play seen play much in a Xerox deck anyway. I mean, as we we've seen, we got burned by what was the the other red card that that Snapcasters your opponent's graveyard. I'm sorry. What was the card we that we predicted a couple years ago? Maybe within the last two years. Oh yeah, the Snapcaster. You talking about Direfleet Daredevil? Yeah, we got burned by that card. <laughs> I mean, I think we over predicted where that would see play, and it saw I think zero play yeah. or something like that, and we were in like the higher high single digits. So, um. Yeah, I mean, it just like here's the thing. In addition to the fundamentally disqualifying feature of of requiring you to keep a lower hand size, which is acceptable in the short run, but never acceptable in the long run when you need to, you know, snowball your advantage into overwhelming advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the the having to rely on your opponent's deck is also never good. The worse <laughs> your opponent's deck, the less value you get. Yeah. Right. Or the or the like more orthogonal to your strategy, the worse value you get. So, um, there are many matchups where even if you could tutor from their deck, it still wouldn't be any good. <laughs> useless. Yeah. yeah. Like against Dredge. Yeah. So, um, I, I just, yeah, I mean, I guess against Dredge, you would like get bizarre, but their hand's going to be empty pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I just, I just think it's terrible. Um, but those, those two things together are like, I, I'm just going zero on this. I love the card. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a place for it somewhere, somehow. Uh, I, I, I think Darefully Daredevil is probably better than this card. Despite the fact, and again, this is the thing that really is going for this card is is the haste factor. And yeah. I also like the fact that you can potentially like steal an opponent's really key card, like a win condition. But I mean, like if you could like take the mentor out of the Jeskai deck, the Jeskai deck like may not have a way to win very easily, <laughs> right? You know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't see it. I do like the design of this card in the sense that if you are hitting with it. I guess by hitting, I mean triggering its ability repeatedly. The cards that it gives you access to don't increase your hand size. So if you're playing like a a Jeskai Mirror, where you had this and they had a current right. Jeskai deck. Yes, that's it, a good point. If you go landmarks this and trigger it, the card advantage, quote unquote, that you got from it is sitting in exile. It's not in your hand. And so it's not increasing your hand size and thereby making it harder to trigger this. Right. And if you hit it, right. it, if you hit them again, then you've got a second card in exile, and so now you've got virtual card advantage. It's not even virtual; you've got real card advantage, but it's still conditional, super conditional. You can only cast the spells on your turn, and so that makes a whole bunch of the reactionary stuff from Jeskai in, unapplicable. Right? Most of the counter spells stink. And then the other flip side is that you're incentivized to keep casting and being proactive, which doesn't work the way modern Jeskai is trying to work. Right? It's, you're still trying to take the control role in many matchups. Especially exactly. in the mirror. <laughs> you don't want to be the beatdown in the mirror in Jeskai, right? Right. So yeah, we're we're patterning this card after an Ophidian. I mean, because, unless you can go like quick quick tempo with the mentor, but it, yes, yeah, yeah, most yeah, right. of the time. That exception uh, accounted for. We're patterning our re- analysis of this card after Ophidians, partially because, strongly because you and I view Ophidians as control cards, and they, they help you take the control role in every matchup. Yes. This card doesn't let you do that. 
Exactly. It, it actively prevents you from you taking the it, control role. You, you, you put it quite well. Yeah, yeah, so I'm zero as well. Yes, there are games you could, quote-unquote, steal, get it, if you played one of these out on turn one, and you could snowball an advantage. It, all, all, the, you know, all the stars could come together, and you could, you could flip up a, a lightning bolt from them, and you could flip up a Black Lotus next time and play Narset, right? I mean, like, yes, you could steal a game with this, but on average, that's not going to work. Right. Maybe you could play this like in a mono red hate deck or something, but yeah. But then, what is the mono red deck getting uh, out of the stealing a card from their opponent? Right. Well, that's the nice thing is that they could they can pay their red mana to play preordain or whatever. Yeah, I know, but so. like uh, that's what I was getting at is on, on average, what card are you getting from them? Like not 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 great. You're getting yeah. I mean, you get a force of will and that's garbage. Yeah, you could get a land. That's no help. I mean, you don't you don't need it. If you were to dice up a Jeskai deck, I think you would find that only. I don't know, 20 to 30% of the cards would actually make you happy to get at any moment anyway. And that's and that's one of your better matchups, too. Many other matchups, like you said, like Dredge would be awful. And Shops, like, you're going to get their Ravager. It's not that great. This way this this way in which that loads up, though, Spells in Exile is interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that, that part. That is interesting. Yeah, the flavor is that's good. nice. All right, Zeros on Robber of the Rich. Hey, that brings us to the end of our Throne of Eldraine set review. And just a reminder to our listeners, if there's a card you want us to review, tweet us. We take <laughs> we take your recommendations. Before we go, though, and before you do a summation, Kevin, I I have to revise my deafening silence. I, I can't let you get the I can't let you get ahead of me on this. Um, you, you feel like you have to take the over. Yeah, I have to take the over. Okay. And it's not just it's not just as petty about like as beating you. <laughs> it's I I I feel like I feel like. I'm playing it safe on a card. I feel like I mean I'm not as confident that this is going to be as heavily played as Collector's Oof. I mean, what did I say in Collector's Oof? I said 14 ended up being what 34. You said um, 15, and it was 34. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought I thought I was really confident that card was going to see a lot of play, and I should I could have gone on a limb, but we had had almost no evidence in the last four years of any card exceeding 30. Yeah. Right. I don't even think Paradoxical Outcome came close. I think Paradoxical Outcome might have even been like in the single digits. After our prediction, I think we overestimated paradoxical outcome. Yeah. So, um, you know, I it's just I think this card is just too good um, to be a mere eleven. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna give you my my final estimate on this card. <laughs> I think that this card is gonna be an average of one point seven. Here's the thing about it. I didn't say this earlier, mm-hmm. but the more it sees play, the less incentive opponents have to play it. So there is a kind of natural cap to it. Oh, it's not like force of will. Or yeah. like misstep where it actually feeds each other. So I think I think one and a half per top eight is about right in the long run. So you extrapolated one and a half across how many top eights in the next three months? Well, I just did four point three times three. That's all. Which is what? What's the what's the answer to that? Well, it's multiplication. 19. Oh, you mean nineteen? Oh no, you mean yeah. what's four point three times three? Oh, that means I mean yeah. on average there's thirteen. Yeah, top eights in a quarter. That's all. Thirteen. Yeah. And I took one and a half of thirteen, so that's where I got nineteen. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. I'm gonna take. Uh, I'm gonna go a little bit higher because I think it's gonna appear in other top eights that we get reported. We have a Waterbury coming up. You're we have right. The vintage champion. That's true. I was up. only counting the Magic of Line. There's yeah. So I'm, I'm watering it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna add, let's say, four more paper top eights to that at one point five. So I'll do three more paper top eights to that because we'll probably get those reported. Plus one point five. So I'm gonna add four and a half to your nineteen. Mm-hmm. That'll put me and I'll round it. I'll round it down. <laughs> so that'll that'll be for someone twenty three. Reasonable, yeah. You know, for as much as we talked um, early on in this episode about getting the scale right or wrong, 
I think that we're, we're spending some energy here to try and get the scale right also in this case, which yeah. I'm not against, but I do, it's not it'll be interesting do. to do our report card here to come back to where did this C play? I, I really want to <laughs> analyze that when it comes back around because it'll be interesting to see how close we got to where it appears. All right. Well, so Throne of Eldraine has some fun cards in it and we've predicted play small or large for one, two, three, four, five cards. That is Wishclaw Talisman, Once Upon a Time, Questing Beast, Deafening Silence, and Stone Coil Serpent. It's certainly enough that it could throw a wrench in people's like extrapolation of what the metagame is going to look like. I mean, these cards are, they're good. These are good cards. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, the, the, the monkey paw, the witchbane talisman, right? Is that witch, what it's called? Wish claw. Cl- it's a wish, wish claw with a claw. <laughs> Got it. Wish claw talisman. I mean, that card alone has enormous potential. It doesn't mean it's going to see a lot of play, but it could really, you know, it could like boost an archetype that we just hadn't foreseen. You know, we, mm-hmm. we did our best to like think about that, but you know, we might have missed something. Couldn't and, agree more. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm excited to find out. I'm excited to try and, Noodle around with these cards and see what I can come up with as well. I want to talk a little bit in summary about this set. One of the things you you alluded earlier to the fact that the art is beautiful. I um, I mean the art, the fantasy art, and the settings are spread the the gamut from beautiful to whimsical to funny and satisfying. I like that aspect of it. I think this set is a step backwards in terms of character and art depiction of diversity in Magic. Fair point. I think this set, because it's yeah. set in some arthurial and otherwise Eurocentric Grim. legends, yeah, yeah, it's just heavily features white presenting people, which is actually a little surprising in uh, in the direction of magic's uh, diversity and and positioning these days. I don't think that's a deal breaker a good- or anything, but it's worth noting. Yeah, there are a couple of exceptions, but but not many. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it's interesting. Now, vintage is a special animal, and it puts certain pressure on mechanics for sets, and we talk about that all the time. Some mechanics just need not apply. Combat mechanics, you know, among them, pretty strong. These for limited only. I do think it's a little disappointing that none of the cards we even discussed in this set have anything to do with this set's mechanical themes. We did not even review a card that has adventure, adventure. adamant, or food on it. <laughs> well, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in the past is that a lot of keyword mechanics on new sets tend to be combat oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and in most cases, the combat oriented mechanics are not going to see play in vintage mm-hmm. or, or make an, have an effect, especially new ones, right? Um, I, that's not necessarily the case here. Um, or, or they're, you know, just out of reach of vintage, like, uh, the Theros gods, right? Um, so I'm not really shocked about that. I do think that for vintage kind of selects for a certain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to take, you know, the new, the newest mechanics. Um, but we also, players also didn't suggest cards like Folio of Fancies, you know, which, which is kind of a, um, I guess it's part of the cycle with Wishclaw Talisman. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, that there are cycles we did touch on, but I agree with you that kind of like the core mechanics really didn't come up. Yeah. But I'm not shocked by that. No, I agree on both fronts. You know, Kevin, this is a phenomenal year for vintage sets and new sets in general. So we're going to have our work cut out for us at the end of the year, trying to figure out what the the best card is. But uh, (laughs) I feel like Eldraine did not disappoint me, at least, in terms of offering some interesting cards and some some vintage playables. So 
I think it was a nice fitting conclusion to what was a very intense year. I couldn't agree more. It feels like a little bit of a, a relaxing return yeah, to, <laughs> to normalcy, so to speak. Like one standout <laughs> card for vintage potentially and a couple of other role players are interesting things. Yeah, this is a, you're right, Dana Maw is a good way to put it. It's also kind of a nice uh, breather since the whirlwind that has the, been the middle part of this year. Yeah, and we could use for a little bit of a a break from the whirlwind, I think. So <laughs> quite so. So we'll, but we're we're looking forward to seeing how these cards will play out at the Vintage Championship. Well, with that, thank you for listening to episode ninety four of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail dot com. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.